Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, hosted and sponsored by GrandTheftWorld.com. It's July 24th, 2022. This is episode 90. It's going to be called something like How to Outgrow the NWO. We're going to play uh, a segment that I did with James Corbett earlier this week. But before we can get to juicy stuff like that, I'm sorry to announce that the former vice president has cancer COVID or COVID cancer. He announced that he had cancer and then the next day he had COVID. I'm not sure which, but our hearts and thoughts and prayers go out to him. And uh, I want to, you know, he's he's had those four shots already. He's on the Pax Laquil, whatever the, the pill version is. He's on in years. I just want to wish him well. Uh, also, there's a new story out this week on the efficacy of SSRI, serotonin reuptake inhibitor, inhibitors, actually selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors as they're known. They're used for people who have depression. And instead of asking, you know, what's your life like? What's your philosophy like? What are your goals like? What, well, you know, where you were, where are you at with your learning and, and where you are with, with life? They just say, take this pill. They tell you on TV to ask your doctor to take the pill. Well, now there's new science out there. I guess that's a thing, science. And uh, it shows that those pills might not have been doing the things that they claim to have been doing. So we're going to dig into that story later tonight. Also, um, crickets. It's not just for bad jokes anymore. It's in your food supply. We're going to learn about cricket bars, cricket meal. They want you to eat crickets. They call it micro agriculture, micro ranching. They want the world to eat crickets. It's not just Klaus Schwab who says, let you eat bugs. It's not like just uh, who's that actress uh, from Australia telling you to eat the six course meal of bugs, right? It's about the fact that they reserve meat, cows, poultry, these sort of things for themselves, they want the general population in the prison to eat the bugs and the world economic forums making the whole place into a prison. We're going to hear a couple different clips on crickets as your protein source in the future. If you don't do anything to raise the game here, because we got to, we have to make the system they are creating obsolete before it takes hold. It takes hold. It's kind of like you got to hit the death star before it fully becomes functional, which in neither star Wars movie, did they get that done? So we got a lot cut out for us <laughs> ahead of us, right, Tony? <laughs> also, uh, Bohemian Grove happened this week. I brought you guys a little artifact of that endeavor. Here's a 1992 play from uh, Bohemian Grove. We're going to be digging into that later on the uh, the book camp. Check out Cristoforo Colombo and uh, the mRNA stories that we've gotten over the past few years as it's unfolded for this experimental mRNA DARPA-funded gene therapy that Moderna has pushed. There's also the problem I have with, who is it, Stefan Boncel helped to mm -hmm. create through BioMilieu, the lab in Wuhan, and then he's also involved with Moderna that was funded from DARPA. There's a whole, whole lot. Yeah, Moderna, Sanofi. Yeah. The story is that DNA is now being altered by the mRNA in those experimental shots. We're going to have Kim Iverson bring that news to you later. And uh, like I said, we got the, uh, the interview I did with Corbett on autodidacticism. So how to learn anything for yourself. That's going to be something you might want to catch up on. Oh, look, did I change cameras? I'm not even look at the right one. Oh, blew the intro. All right. So let's go to the kickoff right, with, with Luke Rudowski of We Are Change and bestpoliticalshirts.com. And uh, let's get an overview of the news of the week. And then we'll dig in, do some deep dives. And uh, we'll dissect the news until the wee hours of the morning. Seconds here, bring this up. Anybody living out in the boonies, 
anybody that's got a couple of acres of land and his own water supply and can grow his own food and that kind of thing, or have some sheep or some chickens, these people are a threat to the collectivist society because they aren't going to go to the politicians and say, please feed me, please clothe me, please give me shelter. They tend to be independent. That's the secret. Yep, self-sufficient, personally responsible human beings scare the crap out of the central controllers, and that's why they have been the number one target when it comes to attacks against them in our political, cultural society. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Luke Radowski here of WeAreChange.org, and there's a lot of crazy news, literally, from the New York Times, and globally, that is worth talking about. This, as of course, the Great Reset has just shifted into a new paradigm. What's happening? How crazy will it get? What's unfolding right now? Especially in places like Panama? Well, we're gonna be talking about that. Ukraine, Ecuador, China, civil unrest is almost everywhere you look, and... It's it's deliberate, in, in my own personal opinion. So much news to get into, we're just going to jump right into it. As of course, there's so many crazy news developments that we probably won't have time to get into all of them. So without further ado, the biggest instability we are seeing on the world stage is emanating, of course, from Ukraine, where there is a larger proxy conflict between the United States and Russia unfolding right now. A conflict that looks like will be continuing for a very long time, as we predicted. Could last 10 years, could be indefinite, who knows, these conflicts don't go away very soon. There was a long buildup towards them, especially from the Maidan revolution in 2014. And now today we're finding out from the president of Ukraine that he has been rejecting any possible ceasefire with the Russians. This as the United States keeps arming Ukraine to what many military analysts have said is just enough to continue this conflict, but not have a decisive victory in it. We saw a lot of circumstantial evidence suggesting this as well. We talked about it on this broadcast previously before. This as Zelensky is saying that if there was any ceasefire, it would, according to him, even prolong this conflict even further. And geopolitically and internationally, we are in an absolutely sticky, messy situation that, of course, we were warning about. A very serious one with many of the poorest countries in the world who are going to be the most affected by it, as, of course, there is expected food shortages to come as a result of this conflict. There was a recent deal struck with Turkey and the parties involved here in order to set up a sea corridor, which would allow some grain, some food actually to be released on the world market. And shortly after striking this international deal between all the countries involved here, Russia is being accused of striking that port that the grain was supposed to leave out of with a cruise missile. Now, according to Reuters, Russia struck a military boat in that specific region. Some Russian officials are coming out saying that they had, quote, nothing to do with the strike, putting out the possibility of a possible false flag. As conveniently, because of this attack, even CNBC is reporting that world leaders are slamming the president of Russia for this attack and that, quote, he simply cannot be trusted because of this action. Now, who's telling the truth here? Who attacked who? Who in the world knows? As, of course, the first casualty of war is truth. There's been a lot of disinformation, a lot of psychological warfare, a lot of straight-out propaganda, mistruths, and lies being purported by both sides during these, of course, initial conflicts. As, of course, the information war, the propaganda war, is as just important, if not even more important, 
than the actual war happening in Ukraine right now. So when it comes to consuming any kind of information from this larger theater, I think it's best that we should always question every piece of information that we're getting. This says here in the United States, in one of its largest cities with its biggest police department, they are now waging a war on people's hearts and minds by literally going after bead blaster super soakers. Yes, I am not kidding you. The New York City Police Department has sent out an all-out bulletin on their social media that they will be hunting down, going after, ticketing, and confiscating children's toys. Yes, I am not kidding you. The New York City Police Department said bead blasters that shoot gel water beads are, quote, loaded by an air pump which technically, by some kind of vague bureaucratic definition rule of law, makes it a violation to possess, and that they will be issuing sea summonses to children and confiscating their toys. Yes, in a city where criminals are just running free, able to do whatever they want, usually just released out of jail after committing a major crime, unless, you, of course, you're defending yourself against these criminals, the New York City Police Department, with an annual budget of $6 billion, intelligence agencies like agencies, working internationally a domestic spying program is focusing their efforts on stealing toys from children this is what happens when you have too much government absolute nonsense which happens in many different spheres and examples of our everyday lives as some of these same government officials are coming down and saying the science that that they used to set up lockdown social distancing punishing civilians destroying their businesses destroying their mental health denying them their ability ability to see their loved ones as they were leaving this life in this world? Well, according to Dr. Deborah Bricks that was making a lot of these decisions, well, a lot of them were made up. This as today, we're also finding out that a pastor that was jailed for holding religious services during the lockdowns in Canada just had a major legal victory. Pastor author Pawlowski, a fellow Polish person like myself, as you can see from the Polish flag that I always present to you almost every single day. This says he is going to be reimbursed after an appeals hearing that will also have the Alberta Health Services reimburse Pawlowski for his legal cost as well as the fines levied against him. This is a major win for religious freedom and personal freedom. This as we're also finding out from The Guardian that the scientific community doesn't always get it right, especially with a new bombshell study that is highlighting how potentially the medical practices for depressions might have been wrong all along, as a new research study questions the use of antidepressants, highlighting how chemical imbalance are not the direct cause of depression. And as we know, the scientific community has become a lot more political as of late, pushing a lot of medical procedures on children that, of course, some people are questioning. Some of the people questioning this and including comedians are of course the ones being attacked and even having their venue cancel on them last minute like was done to comedian Dave Chappelle who is being accused of not going along with the latest authoritarian cultural dogmas as of course woke activists tried to deliberately cancel him and his performance which absolutely backfired as Dave Chappelle was able to find a new venue last minute and continue his show, which was exclusively poking fun at this larger cultural issue, which is not only dividing a nation, but distracting it from the larger economic and social problems ahead of us. This says, of course, Dave Chappelle was also physically attacked previously before for his 
comedy, which to me is absolutely ridiculous, and this is why we decided to try to make people laugh as much as we can through a piece of political speech that cannot be censored, even though they try a lot to do this, through, of course, our shirts that we have released on thebestpoliticalshirts.com. And what... Now, uh, as we know, we're facing some significant food shortages that are coming up and, and probably will be affecting the third world very soon in some very negative ways. Now, in my opinion, a lot of this could have been avoided. Some of it is being done deliberately, especially when it comes to the deliberate energy crisis that, of course, the people of the world are facing as a repercussion from some of the political moves. But now, I think the levels of absurdity have definitely been reached by this New York Times article that is literally trying to culturally reintro reintroduce the ideas of cannibalism, which already is being practiced by former hosts of CNN that literally ate human brains on television and on YouTube. Yes, YouTube allowed actual real cannibalism on their platform, but political speech questioning the narrative, yeah, that gets censored. CNN gets promoted. New York Times now is suggesting that it's time for cannibalism. This as the Pope also recently came out and said that, quote, eating meat is now part of a self-destructive trend, as of course, time and time again, we have been seeing the push for individuals to eat bugs. Now, what is going on here in the face of deliberate food scarcity that's going to be affecting the world? Well, this is what the Great Reset and the Build Back Better agenda look like. And a lot of this is being made worse by the deliberate tampering of energy from the general public, which is made less available, which is made more expensive. As, of course, if you look at the UN 2030 agenda, if you look at the World Economic Forum, you'll own nothing, you'll have no privacy, you'll be happier than ever agenda. If you look at the policy spurred on by unaccountable billionaires that like to go to islands that they get to hurt little children on, you see a deliberate agenda for people not to be able to eat meat, forced to eat bugs, as they're living under the servitude of an unaccountable technocratic dictatorship that controls every aspect of their lives and confines them to a small pod where they have to eat the bugs. And we're slowly moving towards that kind of society. The corporate media is just acting like the PR representatives of it. As already, we're seeing crazy things being done here in the United States where, quote, smart thermostats are being changed without their owner's consent in order to save energy from the grid. This as Texas has also announced that Tesla drivers should avoid charging their vehicles during record heat waves. Why is this happening? Oh, oh yeah, because of the Texas grid moving towards, quote, more uh, environmentally friendly policies, policies that just leads to the reduction of energy, prosperity, life, when in reality not doing much for the environment. This, as we of course saw, destructive policies that are being coordinated by other world governments, like in the Netherlands, now also in Canada, that previously were passed on in Sri Lanka, that of course reduced the ability of farmers to have the necessary ingredients to be able to sustain their farms. This, as Canada is joining Sri Lanka, with their ban on particular fertilizers, which, as we saw in Sri Lanka, literally lead to an entire societal collapse. As, of course, there was a political collapse and then an economic collapse. Why? Well, the government there was following the policies of the World Economic Forum. They had a great ESG score, and their reckless policies limiting the ability of farmers to farm has caused massive economic upheaval, the price of food to go dramatically up, along with other deliberate policies that created more fuel 
fuel shortages. And now this has not only been happening in just Sri Lanka, this is also happening in Panama, where there is massive upheaval, as of course there's food and fuel shortages. The same kind of shortages that hit Sri Lanka, the same kind of shortages that are hitting Ecuadorians that are also protesting high fuel prices and the deliberate inflation caused by the central bankers. And as we told you, this upheaval will first be felt in developing countries and soon come inwards. There's not much coverage in the mainstream corporate Western press of these larger civil unrests that, of course, are spreading like wildfire everywhere in the world where the poorest people are told to pay the price for the political ambitions of unaccountable billionaires and their multinational corporations and banks that, of course, are having record profits. The poor people in the world are becoming poorer. The rich people in the world are becoming richer than ever. This as in China. The government there has even rolled out tanks on the streets to try to scare protesters who are trying to get their money out of the banks there. Why can't they get, get their money out of the banks? Well, their entire financial system is a Ponzi scheme and your bank doesn't hold your money. They, of course, squander it as, of course, the entire system is rigged and they're taking more and more for themselves and leaving you with less and less to the point where even here in the United States, AT&T is talking about a crisis within its company as, of course, Americans are finding it harder and harder to afford their phone bills. All, of course, as the deliberate world problems brought on to us by the central controllers are becoming more and more unavoidable. What's happening in now Ecuador, what's happening in now Panama, what happened in Sri Lanka and continuing to happen in Sri Lanka is not an accident, are not unrelated incidences. They are all a major pushback against the central controllers, the big bureaucratic governments working together and denying people food and energy. Why are they doing this? Well, a depopulation program according to my own personal opinion and perspective i talk about that on lukeuncensored.com a lot but these are just my opinions expressed from my perspectives if you think i'm wrong in any way shape or form let me know why down in the comment section below i always appreciate constructive criticism i always appreciate the ability to be able to have a real rational conversation with of course not just predominantly involving my ego but being able to have a rational conversation that absolutely involves logical point of views rather than just unhinged emotions. We prioritize that, and if you appreciate that here on this independent media broadcast, share this video with your friends and family members, because while YouTube is literally promoting CNN's segment, Eating Human Brains, they're, of course, limiting the access to this channel, prioritizing, of course, for more people to see that garbage on CNN. The only real way to fight against that is by you sharing these videos. And because you do, because you're all the way at the end of this video, because you're the real MVP of allowing these videos to get out there to the general public, this is why. I love you guys. Stay tuned for more here on wearechange.org. All right. So at the end of that video, he said, it's his opinion depopulation right he's he's like it's it's his opinion all right well i gotta show you some facts let's go to the book cam let's get real with this this is the limits to growth document okay limits to growth dennis meadows Donella meadows we're going to see them 30 years later in the update but this is the report for the club of rome's project on the predicament of mankind now that predicament of mankind it looks something like this, okay? 1970, a proposal, a quest for structured responses for growing worldwide complexities and uncertainties. And the result of this report from the Club of Rome in 1970 is as follows. 
they desire first the project described herein undertaken by the club of rome and dealing with the empirical aspects of the situation its morphology and interrelationships that operate among its components this will be a rough modeling phase and the second a subsequent more ambitious phase hopefully be undertaken by the world forum well a year later the people who brought you this document they bring you a guy named klaus schwab and the world economic forum we're going to get to that in a second so it starts with limits to growth and the predicament of mankind. That is the problematique that is discussed still 30 years later. So these people, same people, say 30 years later, they're still working for the club of Rome on this limits to growth problem. Now that means you can't have population growth because the earth won't sustain it. So they're going to have to depopulate and de-mechanize, de-civilize the planet to make this come come true but they're 30 years into it by the time they get to this book well let's get to the 20th century they're you know right here uh this is closer to the 20th century first global revolution a report by the council of the club of rome same group of people club of rome same gist that they're trying to get to and by the time you get to their chapter on not food security here it is right here the common enemy of humanity is man so they just make us the enemy and searching for a new enemy to unite us we came up with the idea that pollution the threat of global warming water shortages famine and the like would fit the bill in their totality and in their interactions these phenomena do constitute a common threat which demands the solidarity of all peoples right so they need something that brings everyone together the real enemy then is humanity itself but wait there's more you got klaus schwab still advancing this idea he calls it now the fourth industrial revolution. This is the pre-COVID talk. And then once the uh, COVID happened, they called it the Great Reset. It is still the predicament of mankind and the Club of Rome limits the growth, planning to de-civilize, to demodernize the planet. And they do it you know, in plain sight. All you have to do is read their books. And I'll take Plus, it one step. Please do. Add, add more, uh, more yeah. stuff there. Um, the Fabian socialists before them from like oh, a yeah. social theory perspective. So like now they're weaponizing it through science, but before it's a social science theory before that it's the emergence of the new scientific theory, the 19th century, the X club and stuff like that. So you can see how it's out Huxley, of like theological. Yeah. Yep. Philosophical theology, all these different that Gatto outlines, you, you can sort of see like it's a justification for why they're, or at least a rationalization for why they are elite and get the opportunity to try to, you know, bring in their, their new world order or whatever they want to call it. So I'm looking for the big thing that would unite everybody. They, they could have had aliens. They could have had uh, global mm -hmm. freezing. They decided yep. on global warming, climate change. And this is yes. what they've brought up over since 1970, longer than I've been alive. They've been trying to give us fear porn to embrace the idea of climate change. That's correct. That's correct. It hasn't stopped. I mean, it's ramped. It seems like they've settled uh, the climate change as being the supranational sort of problem that will allow for these international bodies or agencies to help, you know, the governments of the world manage it. That seems to be the one they settled on. That's a good point because they, they've considered and they've talked about literally their memos like uh, alien invasion. Wasn't this Kissinger talking about this back in like the 70s or something? When Reagan it comes like certainly it, consider it. Yeah, these things are talked about over time. Not, not to say alien invasion is real. But yeah, not no, to no, say but it's they real. would use yeah. it as psychological warfare. You got it. Yeah. Like what would come what would uh make mankind come together sort of arguments? So Club they, Rome said it was global warming, pollution, yep. overpopulation, overproduction. 
Yeah. Nuclear so all, war. It all goes aliens, in the same place. It goes to tyranny. Global famine. Yeah, exactly. Real fast. Real right. fast. And they do talk in that book about how the media will have to change over the next 30 years in order to embrace this idea. We can't just have people publishing ideas that are outside the narrative. They talk about that at the end of the 30 year update. Maybe we can look at that later. Right now, we got to go watch the mainstream media embrace the climate change fear porn with Christy Lee and her weekly media malfeasance episode. Abortionists take a victory lap nearly celebrating the rape of a child when an arrest was finally made regarding the viral story 10-year-old had to cross state lines for an abortion. Never mind the Columbus Dispatch now confirms the victim did not necessarily have to cross state lines. Of course, no mention of why the story spread before an arrest was made or why news outlets weren't concerned with investigating the rape to corroborate the one-sourced story sooner. Turns out the alleged rapist is an illegal immigrant from Guatemala. So why did big media all refer to him as a Columbus man? If investigative journalist Megan Fox hadn't questioned the validity of the story, would we have even seen this arrest happen? Well, she gets death threats for continuing to ask questions. She's one of the few still trying to get confirmation this child, the victim, has been removed from the home. A question the county children's services still refuses to answer. And more questions remain after a woman who says she's the mother of the victim contradicts the stories law enforcement are giving. La niña vivía aquí también. Sí, pero ella está bien. Todo lo que están diciendo en contra de él es mentira. Ya. Y la niña, eh, usted es familiar de la niña. Es mi hija. La señora quien se negó a dar su nombre y quien ocultó su rostro asegura que ella no ha impuesto cargos en contra de Gerson Fuentes de 27 años quien está acusado de violación. Paige Wiley asks an obvious question. Do people even know this is really the mother of the victim? A big disgusting secret of U.S. immigration policy is that the number of children who come across the border and are housed with dubious relatives by the federal government is in the hundreds of thousands. Axios, government can't reach one in three released migrant kids. And in the first half of last year, more than 65,000 unaccompanied kids crossed the border illegally. How much worse is it this year, you think? Is our current administration doing anything about this? Actually, a George Soros-linked group wins $172 million contract from Biden to help border crossers avoid deportation, according to Breitbart. Speaking of Biden, there's now even more evidence he lied about having any knowledge of his son Hunter's business dealings. Hunter Biden's abandoned laptop shows dozens of meetings with dad and business partners, according to The New York Post. With developing revelations, it raises national security concerns. But remember what NPR had to say about the Hunter Biden laptop. We don't want to waste our time on stories that are not really stories. Potential collusion and conflicts of interest with foreign governments are not really stories, NPR. And yet this same propaganda outlet peddling disinformation released plans to form its own disinformation board. Meanwhile, the Pulitzer board has doubled down refusing to remove awards given to The New York Times and Washington Post for their later debunked Russian interference reporting. This even after special counsel Robert Mueller failed to find evidence of Russian collusion and subsequent reporting that the Steele dossier was based on mere rumors or outright lies with connections to the Clinton campaign. But this is not the first time the Pulitzer board has refused to remove awards given for propaganda. It has twice refused to withdraw a 1932 award given to correspondent Walter Durante. 
Even the New York Times now acknowledges Durante took Soviet propaganda at face value and covered up a massive famine, one that killed millions in Ukraine. You know what makes spreading propaganda easier? Word fluidity. We've seen many definitions suddenly adapt over the last couple years. We'll add female to the list. Merriam-Webster has now added having a gender identity opposite of male to the definition. Or if you don't like a word altogether, just ban it. Media Matters is now urging Twitter to censor the word groomer, which it characterizes as anti-LGBT. Sorry, pet stylists, you no longer exist. No, we just had a little, we had a little discussion. Look at me, look at me. Don't look at anybody else. Don't look at the fat ass losers or freaks. You look at me! English dictionary definition. Groomer is also a person who wins the confidence of a victim in order to commit sexual assault on him or her. So why are they saying the LGBT community is threatened by this? The AP is spreading disinformation again, according to The Federalist. The AP reports Trump waited more than three hours to tell rioters to leave. But this is contradicted by detailed timelines from both The Washington Post and The New York Times. WAPO says Capitol was breached at 2.15. At 2.38, Trump tweets, please support our Capitol Police and law enforcement. They are truly on the side of our country. Stay peaceful. And we're now seeing big media support to transition from a medical dictatorship to a climate dictatorship. Biden is moving to bypass Congress to enact a climate agenda. But do Americans really want this? Stunning. New York Times. Do you think the climate is the most important problem facing the country? Total voters, 1%. <laughs> Among Democrats, 3%. Among voters age 18 to 30, 3%. Same poll had the economy at 20 and inflation at 15 percent. Well, but hey, fear and sensationalism can drive up views. Well, at least it appears that's CNN's strategy, according to a CNN tech director. We're going to start focusing mainly on climate, um, uh, climate like global warming, and like that's going to be our next like. Um, I don't know, like, what's the word I'm It's going to be our focus. Like, uh, like our, our focus was to get Trump out of office, right? Without saying it, that's what it was, right? So our next thing is going to be for climate change awareness. It's going to take years, so they'll probably be able to milk that for quite a bit. You know, for, for. Bringing you what's ignored, sensationalized, unbalanced, misleading, or just plain false. That's your media malfeasance for the third week of July. To see all my reports, check out freenews.news. And join my community. Find Christy Lee TV on locals.com. All right. That was a wonderful report. And we heard some uh, ideas throughout that reiterate, right? So um, I wanted to go back to this Limits of Growth book real quick, right? 30-year update. Let's zoom. Let's focus that nice for you guys, right? Limits to Growth, 30-year update. This is published in 2004. This is the 20th century. Still the same people behind it. Let me go to the back. Now, they didn't call it social credit score yet. They called it something else. But I wanted to, to introduce you to appendix number one. Now, let me just bring you in real close. These nice folks at the Club of Rome <clears throat> have been running a computer program for the past 30 years uh, designed by Jay Forrester, one of the first cyberneticians back in the day and um to prepare He's the one this that's interviewed real quick by yeah. uh adam curtis and i think the second episode of all watch 
all watched over by machines of love and grace. And they're that, that energy diagram of energy flows, pollution and industrial production and that sort of thing that that's famous and the limits to growth. But like that was the first sort of model they utilized as part of a cybernetic theory of closed system feedback. Like they saw the whole world as that. So, right. So they're running computer models, trying to plan out the world for the future. And this is how they're making decisions. They're not actually taking data from the real day environment. They got a computer model, tells them all about it. They call it the world three. World three was originally constructed for use in our 1972 volume, the first edition of limits to growth. It was fully described in the technical report in our study. The model was originally written in a computer simulation language called dynamo. By 1990, a new language, Stella, offered the best tools for our analysis. That was a Marlon Brando joke. When, <laughs> when we prepared the scenarios for our 1992 volume, Beyond the Limits to Growth. Wait, isn't there a limit, though? How can you go beyond right, the limits? Right. So there's yeah, a they limit. make the this limits. They make the limits up, Tony. Very this is strange what, this contradiction. Yeah. The World 3 <laughs> model was converted from Dynamo to Stella and updated into a new version called the World 3-91. The changes we made for that conversion are described in the appendix to Beyond the Limits, that other book I showed you earlier. When preparing the scenarios for the current book, it proved useful to update the World 3-91 slightly. Yeah, it's been over 10 years. You might update your model. The resulting model called World 303 is available on CD-ROM. That tells you, <laughs> tells you what they had back then to share yeah. that type of data on. You couldn't even like, get it from the website yet it's still on cd-rom sure oh yeah but it is simple to summarize a few changes necessary to convert world 391 to 303 the three changes calculus so they're just telling you the changes now check out these changes this last one a new variable a new variable called the human welfare index an indicator of the well-being of the average global citizen it's kind of like the social credit score let's mm-hmm. go and uh, read just a little about it see here's the structures they had uh you know, technology development. You can literally, that's that's literally like a circuit diagram. And to a certain extent, it's like a very basic wow. idea of energy flows in a, a closed system. That's what JFAR. So they took, they're using the same models that have been defunct for 30 plus years and still doing it. So you can read this later. in this appendix. Crazy. Here's where they design the logic for what ends up being very much like this uh, green social credit score type thing. And uh, yeah. Read all about it. Then there's indicators of human welfare and the ecological footprint, that appendix. That's fun to read. Anyway, these people who were planning out limits to growth for the past 30 years, 40 years at this point almost. Yeah, over 40 years at this point. Mm-hmm. Al- almost uh, 50 years. 50. Yeah, just about right? 1970 is what they go back to with the predicament of mankind, man. You know, while people were watching Cheech and Chong movies, these people were making plans to take over the world for your kids and grandkids. Sad but true, not conspiracy theory, not uh, anti, you know, Earth. I'm not trying to destroy the planet, but these people artificially making people do conspicuous consumption through making things like cheaper and not to last long time. So you fill up the landfills to convince people that the world is overpolluted. The plastics that are poisoning the oceans that could have been replaced with hemp 60 years ago, we would have a biodegradable form plastic that is natural to the earth and doesn't cause any CO2 footprint problems, right? In other words, the predicament of mankind is something they artificially created in a Hegelian dialectic. Now they're going to come in and provide you with uh, the solution to it. And the solution is unfreedom. The solution is no more air conditioning. I heard Biden talk last week about community cooling stations because you're not Mm -hmm. going to be able to run your AC like you want to. You're not going to be because that's not good for your carbon footprint. 
they're not going to allocate you the electricity you might want or the gasoline or the electricity you might want to travel. Right. So right. they're trying to restrict people in a very serious way these days. It's and just people the are feeling of the, the squeeze, but they don't understand where it's coming from. And they definitely don't understand where it's going yet. Right. If we keep making episodes, maybe someday they will. Well, you know, I just have to say this. I'm curious because in the 1970s, there was protests by many um, of the youth against what the Club of Rome and Jay Forrester's predictions and obviously limits the, the publication limits to growth in regards to like, yes, they want to, we all, I think anyone that is just has any basic humanity understands the importance of clean air, clean water, clean food, and uh, the issues of pollution. And certainly like we want to have a healthy planet, healthy for ourselves, animals, we get all that, but they seem to recognize, and this goes to what you just said in the nineties, where they talked about how they're going to have to utilize media um, and utilize like a new media to bring in this, this burgeoning new um, global warming initiative is back then, although those people still were, you know, probably against forms of industrialization and, um, you know, the production of commodities and whatnot and a mass scale and rightfully so because of what it causes to the environment. They recognized that it was done by the major corporations that are the same ones building up and using the Club of Rome as a way to protect their industries. Be the, in other words, as a PR propaganda stunt to be like, look, I'm green here, I'm green there. This is our initiative for why we, you know, have uh, certain uh, certain corporate agendas and missions and you know views of how we're going to change our culture and stuff like that. Now, what's scary is fast forward 30 years later, and what was it beyond limits to growth? But there's you said something in there um, previously where you're talking about how they're talking the need to utilize media information to teach people about this terrible problem because it's so abstract and so hard yeah. to sort of understand. But now we and that's to me when I juxtapose, in other words, like the the revolts by the youth um, in the 1970s versus now, like they've actually been able to propagandize the youth to a point where the youth are the ones most invested in the sort of misanthropic ideal of Gaia worship, if you will. Well, they have and, something they call the new humanism. There you go. Which yeah. Aurelio Pache, I'll just show you the book. Let me just yeah. not read it to you. I'll just show you the artifact page. It's two, just scary because, in other words, they had to they had to create a type of society. They had to yes. get the gen, the newer generations to accept that global warming really is like it goes beyond just don't look at the problems of the major multinational corporations and how they do in, industry and globalization and all those sorts of things. It's you. It's not them. Anyways. Right, right, right. So here it is, uh, Aurelio Pache, the same guy from the predicament of mankind, the same guy from the World Economic Forum's manifesto in 1973. He's he's talking about the new humanism. I was looking for that media reference in here, or it might be in the other book. Yeah, but but but, but I assume it's, it's one of the later books, right? I was no, waiting good. patiently while you were talking because you were talking mm -hmm. about Jay Forrester. We were talking about Jay yep. Forrester, mm -hmm. and uh, he's in the history blueprint. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, cybernetics is an idea. J. Wright Forrester is a cybernetician. He did some work once upon a time from our four Club of Rome, right? So let's just click in Club of Rome, see what they're all about. Oh, here's that guy, Aurelio Pache, eugenics and population control. Okay, they work a little bit uh, over here. Let's see who's this guy. What is Project MK Naomi? And what did he have to do with it? That'd be my question to start. What's his relationship to Roberto Calvi might be another one. Anyway, not here to look at that. We're back into cybernetics, right? That was the idea. 
Jay Forrester right. is just a guy, but what's the idea he's bringing forth? Ooh, fiddle click. Here it comes. Big idea. Big idea. Cybernetics. So there's a lot of people interested to have a legacy and teach about cybernetics and brought forth ideas like Bronislav Trentowski in 1841 coins the term cybernetics. And then it goes on from there. But then uh, you got people like Norbert Wiener. Wiener. He's a whiner, that Wiener. You know, he develops <laughs> the, the technology to make cruise control and cruise missiles. Right. Uh, not maybe not cruise control. Maybe it was. Uh, yeah, I think it was cruise control. So they use uh, mathematical digital models to make technology to bring us modern conveniences. But also in the background, kids, these same people have been working on how to control and command the human machine. They look at us as soulless beings that they can just dumb down and turn into uh, animals that will hunt and peck like a pigeon who has been trained to read by following certain cues in a Skinner box. So the uh, cybernetics aspect comes around in the 1940s, 1950s. It formalizes through the Macy conferences and from these. I was going to say, was he part of the Macy? I want to say he was, but I can't. Norbert Wiener was. Oh, Wiener for sure. But um, Forrester, I think it might have just been after his time. But anyway. Well, yeah. uh, Forrester's uprising was concurrent to the Macy conferences. I'd be surprised because von Neumann and a whole bunch of other people were participating. Uh, Kurt Lewin uh gregory bateson there was a bunch of people participating yeah, Gregory Bateson, that's a big one right right bf skinner right yeah. so the the top minds and how to command and control human beings also overflowed interestingly with the mk ultra projects going on at that time it might have been a continuation of tavistock projects that were going on in britain before that so there's a lot exactly right exactly right exactly that's yeah you know, and then by the time you get from the Macy conferences to Agenda 21 in 1992, this started, this started the Earth Charter. That's right. This started the Earth Charter that they're still pursuing today. The Agenda 2030 is still about getting this Earth Charter done. It's all about saving the Earth for them by depopulating the rest of the planet. I actually found the clip of Jay Forrester from. They want you to eat. I watched over. If we want to. Oops. Yeah, let's play that clip My of Jay Forrester. Let's, we're just, uh, we're off the show card. We're just like uncharted tangents at this point. It's only like two minutes. It's like I know, two this minutes. Is good, so, yeah. This is what people like, actually need to know. So this is valuable. Yeah. Well, it gives con- exact everything you're saying. This brings all the context. Yeah. Bring it full yep. circle. That's what we do. All of these lines here, I sketched out. And he would build a model that would do just that in his computer. At a meeting in Switzerland, Forrester told them that the only way to do this was to look at the world as an entire cybernetic system. And he would build a model that would do just that in his computer. But our problem is the big problem. Our problem is the hard one. And you're not dealing with the hard problem. And that hard problem was? The world. So, on the way back from Switzerland, I sketched out the first sketch of such a a system, which... On the way back from where? Switzerland. (laughs) In what year? Where's Davos in the World Economic Forum that is the front for Aurelio Pache and the Club of Rome's agenda, along with a bunch of other globalists? Fabian Socialists famously Mm. want to depopulate. George Bernard Shaw talked all about how they should get rid of the... It's funny how they run to the... 
It is. The, it uh, is. Okay. Valley, but continue to, with that context, end. like he's coming from Switzerland, from Schweiss. Who is he saying? Charles Schwab. Let's see. Maybe. I don't know. It's a good question. Strange all Switzerland remains neutral. Very neutral. Isn't the BIS on the name? Yeah, Schwab. Let's see what it goes from here. Take us back to Jay Forrester. Was this? This is a picture of that first sketch of the world in terms of population, resources, capital investment in industry, investment in agriculture, and the accumulated pollution in the world. All of these lines here are the feedback loops, the many feedback loops, and those feedback loops are spread all through the model, as you can see by the various lines that are connecting things here. Back in America, Forrester set up a team of systems theorists. They built a computer model of the world. The team designed it as a giant cybernetic system in which all known data about population growth, industrial production, food and agriculture, natural resources and pollution were all fed in. The team then ran the model and what it predicted was an imminent global collapse. And when you ran that model, what did it show? Well, it showed that in all likelihood population would overshoot the carrying capacity of the world and then you would have a collapse of population back to some lower level and that the standard of living would decline through all that period in a serious way. The model based on current policies lead essentially to disaster, disease, crowding, wars, atomic bombs. It was pessimistic, wasn't it? Uh, well, I consider myself an, an optimist. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So but he's like, look, he's like, look, we built this computer model and it tells us everything's going to go to shit in the future. So to prevent everything from going to shit in the future, the governments of the world got together with the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, Club of Rome. And they said, let's take control of everything going to shit and make ourselves rich while it happens. How how can we be so convinced that they're right? First off, Another the computer like model's that, bullshit. And what did Buckminster Fuller say about your data? I think he uh, he proved his point, but no one reads his books. So he's not <laughs> here anymore. I'll mention it. Uh, he disproved Malthus. He disproved all, all the oh, you know, yeah. population, consumption, production, all that bullshit. Because of human creativity, ingenuity, technology, all these other things. And yeah, not that's to mention been that they artificially fucking created the problem. They talk about that we had to make yeah. up a problem. We had okay. Now let me just take you real quick, real quick. Since I did, I used the F words. Let me just fix that. I'm going to tell you about how they want to control the media. This was oh the role of mass media. Look in the resu- the resolutique, right to the problematique. You are the problematique, and they're going to have the resolutique uh, with the role of the mass media, for better or for worse. They're one of the main main agents in forming public opinion. And the, the, the thinking individuals out there. So they're going to have to control that. And they spend several pages and then they go into motivations and values. How can they start to pick at What makes people tick? And then they get into, uh, well, this was the, let's see, this is first global revolution report council uh, club of Rome. And this is from 92. I think this is no, 91, 91. This book is, so this is the one in the middle. So we got a, we got a beginning. We got a middle. We got to end. We got a how's it going right now? Stack of books you could read and become educated, more educated than anybody you're going to see on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, 
because you're going to have to learn to read between the lines. They're not telling you what's up. They're not telling you, hey, there's a big group of people that have been planning for a long time to do specifically what they're doing to the whole world right now. It's not Grand Theft Auto. It's not Grand Theft County. It's not Grand Theft State. It's not Grand Theft Country. It's Grand Theft fucking world right now. And for people who don't want to realize it until there's no food in their house or in their neighborhood and people are panicking, that's going to be too late. So to take a look at the facts of what they're doing now, why you still have the comfort to have a Twinkie or a snack or whatever you do over your on your end. Use your time wisely. Learn about what's going on. Use your critical thinking, creative problem-solving skills, and be a solution and add value in these situations. Don't be one of the people with no plan and you panic when it's too late. You deserve better than that, but you're going to have to take action sooner than later. It well doesn't go away without resistance. Things that Very take well away said. your freedom never do. Yeah, there have been a number of really good debunkings, and I'm trying to find one book that I remember Corbett would reference all the time in regards to limits to growth. Mm. And there's a couple of different, a lot of economists actually have come out against just on the basis of like, you're not factoring in human ingenuity. Plus it's contrived models to begin with. So you're yeah, stating there's a problem. Right. Like, They're yeah. the same people that run game theory to destroy freedom in the first place. You can't destroy something <laughs> you don't understand. And that's why they've been trying to do it for 60 years and they're not there yet, but they're pretty close. All right. Yeah. They've dumbed down the latest generation so much that people can't, you know, make oh, yeah. up from down, black from white. Well, yeah. Now we're questioning. You see the that circular argue or circular definition of uh, well, a female is someone who doesn't identify as a male or something like that. That Christy was alluding to, and I'm laughing. I'm like, if we're at that stage in our culture, then uh, oh boy, oh, we got a lot Miriam of learning Webster. to do. Yeah, that's the dictionary that changed the definition. Well, they've been changing definitions the whole time. And that's the thing I have definitely controlling I have, words is controlling in the mind. I have a series of books with definitions over various centuries, right? Mm -hmm. I got that. I got the dictionary. You also have uh, volitional sciences book, which gets a lot of oh, yeah, definitions. Yeah. I have that Galambo's book right there. You guys want to see it? That's a rare book. That is a yeah, rare show. and very expensive to, uh, to say the least. I'm trying to find that other book as well. There's a couple. I'll find it in a second. Here. This book right here. This is a big daddy book right here. <laughs> Right? This is no joke. Now, this book, this book is titled Sick Itter Ad Astra mm -hmm. by Professor Andrew Galambos. And I will now show you the spine of this. Oh, no, I lost my book cam. Where do we got to go? Let's reactivate. Get a little reactivate. bit of reactivate. Oh, no, I did the wrong camera. Look at that. This is video capture device two. Did I get it back? All right. No. Yeah. Yep, get right, back. Cool. Yep. All right. Sick Itter Ad Astra, Volume One. Professor Andrew J. Galambos. And let me see if I can, like, on the spot without preparations. Let me see if I can get you a quote out of here. And I'll probably need spectacles for this. Now, if you were to look this book up, I don't know, years ago, it was probably a thousand bucks. I don't know what it goes for today. Galambos is an interesting history. It's a theory of volition. Okay. And he, uh, he's a professor. He's a professor of quantum physics at Princeton, if memory serves, when he wrote this. These were his lectures. These are the Volition 50 lectures or the V50 lectures. And you can find these out there without having to acquire this book. <clears throat> Let's see. You get you down so you can see it, but not cut off the words. And then move the book into frame. And it might work like this. All this is to indicate that the word freedom is difficult to use in a true sense because everyone means freedom uh, by me. 
everyone means by freedom something that is personally peculiar to himself to suit his own pleasures, and those pleasures may or may not interfere with other people's pleasures. Talk is cheap. Freedom is not cheap. True freedom is an absolute concept. Hmm. It is the same for all people. It is not subject to reinterpretation, misinterpretation, abuse in the transference of meaning from paragraph to paragraph, like they change the definitions in the dictionary we were just talking about, from person to person, from day to day, from year to year. Freedom is an absolute permanent concept. Now, the problem is, what is freedom? Where do you find such a definition? Before this evening is over, that's one of the things you'll learn that you will have a definition of freedom that will be universal, universal absolute, and permanent, permanent. permanent yeah. and will not, which will not be injurious to anyone. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Where, you know, and so does he still teach us at Princeton? No, of course not. They don't want. It. So that's why the ideas in this book. I mean, so that's the beginning of the lectures goes into the importance of identifying our reality and defining our reality and yeah, I mean, communicating about, effectively. A thousand big, 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 big pages, but let's go to volition is his name for social science, right? So, which is very similar in a way to what Mises implies in his theory of praxeology, which is interesting. But, anyways, that's a separate one of the pages I had marked is his section on freedom and the theory of electromagnetic wave propagation. <laughs> that's Hashtag. fascinating. Hashtag when he talks about Maxwell's demons. If you're a nerdy nerd, check it out anyway. This is not on the show card, so we'll put this artifact yeah, away. Yeah, that was just a reference one day. And, uh, yeah, I'll find yeah. that book at some point. I, mean, I have it somewhere on my list. But anyways, um, it's good to know, though. When he's talking about absolute, universal, um, inexorable, those are important concepts to understand because what he's trying to recognize is what do we share in common as a definable class with an objective reality. Hey, I'm just going to tell you this, Tony, because this is going to blow mm -hmm. your mind. And then... Um, mm -hmm. Anybody who watched, we had a premiere earlier this week of, uh, not a premiere, but like a reshowing of uh, my film from 2007, uh, which was called The World Against, War Against Us All. In there, in part one, I think I talked about the various energy aspects and Joseph Newman is in there, right? Joseph Newman's executive assistant is also the executive assistant who did design and layout for this, Evan Soule Jr. Really? I and I remember I had this big ago. red book and I also had Joseph Newman's big red mm -hmm. book and yeah. I put those two and two together. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's interesting. The Volition 50. And just so you guys can see a title page. A little synchronicity there, to be honest. That's right. Uh, Sick Iter Ad Astra, Course V50, Nature's Volume wink, 1. You know? So it's 50 lectures on the theory of volition. And uh, Sick Iter Ad Astra means this is the way to the stars. Yeah. Or this way, yeah. This way towards the stars. So there you go. The big red book. You see it on the shelf back there. Now you know what it is. Thanks for uh, mentioning that, Tony. Yeah. And Lambos, no. I think every time he used uh, concepts based on Thomas Paine, he would put money in the jar for the Paine family and stuff. Because <laughs> he, he believed basic. in, yeah, intellectual property. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely wasn't libertarian. But look, he does have this thing in the back. He goes over this thing. This is a lot of libertarians um, adopted some of his core concepts in regards to how he does definition and stuff. But yeah, you're, you're right. About that. Yeah, he's the scientific method plus Occam's razor is what he recommends. But you got to be careful not to shave too closely with Occam's razor. That's true. sometimes the simplest explanation when the world is run by criminals is that they were doing some criminal shit. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> you can call a spade a spade, huh?
Yeah. So I want to get that on the record, give people a sense of the importance of how we use oh, our minds way. to understand and explain. Oh, hell yeah. Look at that. See, I got to fix my camera because when I clicked that wrong button over there, it messed up my webcam. So let's do it live. Properties, configure video, bring down the gain. Bring down the gain. There we go. There we go. Boom. Thank you. Thank you. Anyways, yeah, so it's, it's good to make people aware of some of the, at least the intellectual side of the ideas of definition, freedom, consciousness, volition, um, the elements of what make us human and to have a better understanding of that and how we can use that to form universal definitions so we can interact more peacefully with one another in this playground we call life. So anyways, um, all right. So now that we're back to show card land, there's a bunch of clips we got to cover this week. We're going to choose the best of the best of the best, hopefully. Um, and then we're also going to work in a couple surprises throughout. Let's work through this. Let's do this Ukraine and Russia section first. Putin drops two minutes of truth about America and Ukraine. I have not seen this clip yet, but I've seen a lot of people talking about it. So I would like to know what's going on. What did he say? Because he's Klaus's boy. He's been friends with the World Economic Forum and Xi Jinping of China and the whole UN Agenda 2030. Like he's on board and China's on board with that whole agenda. Oh, yeah. So Americans need to, you know, and other people who live in freedom-based countries need to look at what they're doing over in those non-freedom-based countries. Adopting the Great Reset is not a new idea. It's just a way to take away your ability to be free and take away your will to continue to exist in this place. They're trying to make the world a prison planet or something. Let's check out this Jimmy Dore clip. <laughs> Dot TV. Sorry. Sorry. I won't do that. <laughs> Band on video. That's the other one. So Vladimir Putin gave a speech, and uh, this is the kind of speech you wish that Joe Biden could give. But here we go. Let's just listen to it. So he's talking about how the United States and the West is blaming Russia for every problem that they've created. The United States has created this inflation problem. The United States has created an energy problem in Europe. And it's, the United States has created gas uh, inflation prices. In the, the United States has done that, not Putin. And so that's why he <laughs> says, so do not shift the blame on us and do not accuse our country of everything that goes wrong in your countries. <laughs> Wait, Jimmy. What? Um, besides that, there's jokes, but also I remember when Russia became like when they were like rebooting it as like my main villain, you know, yes. for, and they, and I would have in my head, remember the Marsha, Marsha, Marsha from Brady, but it always sounded like that to me. And then watching clips of your show, they literally went Russia, Russia, Russia. Yes. I actually saw them say it. Yes. Yes. All right. Here we go. Yeah. Не надо здесь. Не надо, что называется, перекладывать с больной головы на здоровую. I want ordinary Western people to hear me too. You are being persistently told that your current difficulties are the result of Russians' hostile actions and that you have to pay for the efforts to counter the alleged Russian threat from your own pockets. All of this is a lie. I hope Putin knows what he's doing right now is spewing Putin propaganda. <laughs> he's a dupe of Putin. <laughs> Don't tell us who not to blame. 
By the way, Putin, you'll never be my archenemy. I already had an archenemy. His name was Saddam Hussein, and he's dead now. <laughs> okay. The truth is that the problems faced by millions of people in the West are the result of many years of actions by the ruling elite. The ruling elite of your respective countries. Their mistakes and short-sighted policies, this elite is not thinking about how to improve the lives of their citizens in Western countries. They are not. They are obsessed with their own self-serving interests and super profits. This can be seen in the data provided by international organizations, which clearly show that social problems, even in the leading Western countries, have exacerbated in recent years. The inequality and the gap between the rich and the poor is widening, and racial and ethnic conflicts are making themselves felt. He's 100% about it. The myth of the Western welfare society, the so-called golden billion, is crumbling. To reiterate, the whole planet is now paying for the West's ambitions and the West's attempts to maintain its elusive dominance by any means possible. Boy! Hundred, uh, and remember when, remember when, half of Hollywood used to go and give a salute to to Vladimir Putin on his birthday and watch him sing Blueberry Hill. You remember that peace sign? Sharon Stone gave the peace sign. Yes, and now all of a sudden he's hiking your gas prices. Uh, and he and 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 he did not. He did not. He went on to say he did not knock Joe Biden off his bicycle. <laughs> and then he ended by saying, I don't have this video part, but he ended by saying, please stop punching your own dicks. <laughs> it is very weird. And we are all confused here in Russia. The, ru <laughs> the ruble is stronger than ever. So if you are, if you are coming on to me, so if you <laughs> I don't know if you're coming on to me or what. So that's what he that's how he ended. And so let's just, signals. let's just remember, here's the from the same uh, publication. The Economist said Putin's botched job war or not. He has miscalculated. Oh, oh really? Now, look up oh, Europe's coming winter peril. <laughs> you call yourselves an economist. <laughs> the, the ruble stronger than it's ever been before the war. And now uh, the United States is at 9% inflation. Gas prices are uh, up around six, seven, eight, nine dollars in California in some places. And uh, Europe's having an energy crisis. <laughs> Boy, we're you really know, sticking it to Putin. <laughs> I used to buy that magazine on planes and it, it like got worse and worse. Like it was amazing. Like I remember getting it, it was like kind of good. And then I would, it, it's unbelievable if you read these the actual articles and not the headlines how much they degraded yes i know so there it is so keep uh keep watching cnn and msnbc and fox news you fucking morons and and keep blaming putin for all your problems that are being created by the people you're voting for you voted for joe biden and the democrats and they're doing this to you and you're and and every single one of the Democrats did this. You know why I say that? Because every single one of them, including every Justice Democrat, Ro Khanna, AOC, all of those fake phonies voted to give fifty four billion dollars to Ukraine. So 
Uh, this is all being caused by you, the people you voted for, you stupid suckers. <laughs> You're chumps. The Democratic Party is making chumps out of all of you. They just voted for the largest military budget in, in the world. <laughs> and you know who you know who stood up against it? Republicans stood up against it, not Democrats. Go ahead, pause it. Uh, that's, that's how bad. All right, so he's saying it's the Democrats, the Democrats, like the you know the Democratic Party, right? And first off, I think when Putin says the West, we call that the Anglo-American establishment because it ain't France driving this thing, right? Sure, guess, yeah, yeah. All right, so yep. he says West, I think Anglo-American establishment. Now let's go forward to the Economist. He was showing the Economist, and it's like they're lying to people, and he's bringing people's attention to that, right? So to break this open, I'm going to show you the economist group. I'm going to show you where their philosophy comes from. It's Fabian socialism. It's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. But to take you there, I got to tell you a story. <clears throat> Back in the early part of the 21st century, there was a thing called WikiLeaks. And there was a publisher called Julian Assange, who's held currently in prison by the Anglo-American establishment. He published something called the Hillary Clinton email leaks. In there, there's an email titled miss you and it's from hillary clinton to lynn for it's lynn forrester to rothschild sending to hillary clinton her good friend xoxo miss you is the title of the email now lynn forrester to rothschild's an interesting lady she married into the rothschild family and she is one of the owners of the economist group along with her her husband and we'll get to that in a second but the point about the democratic party is back in the 1800s the the guy who ran the Democratic National Party was a guy called August Belmont. And then his son was also called August Belmont, not even junior. They both have the same name. The, the elder August Belmont ran the Democratic Party for like 40 years during the time of slavery and civil war all the way up to the early 1900s. And what you see today from the WikiLeaks was proof that the Rothschilds also have influence in the Democratic Party still over 100 years later. There's the email on screen. We can see there it is. WikiLeaks still exists. Look at that. We still have a little freedom, freedom to read and become knowledgeable about those things. So her pen pal, Lynn Forrester yeah. to Rothschild, in the history blueprint, here's the history, there's the economist group. They own CFO magazine. They own the United States Congress's magazine called Congressional Quarterly. They own the Economist Intelligence Unit. They own Reuters. They own Roll Call, another one for the United States uh, Senate, and The Economist. Now, The Economist is an interesting place. It's been around since the 1800s, and it's a London School of Economics based, and it's written in a collective voice, which is interesting. Every article in The Economist is not written by an individual. It's written in a collective voice. So this has long been a Rothschild International Banking Dynasty operation, also leveraged by Brendan Bracken, who worked MI6. He was a chief MI6 in 1984. George Orwell, Arthur, Eric Arthur Blair referred to Big Brother. Big Brother in his real day was Brendan Bracken, BB. And let's check out who this guy was. So this has been used for Cywar for a long time. These people are Fabian socialists. He was in charge of the political warfare executive. He then uh, trained Sir Bro Robert H. Bruce Lockhart. There's a big MI6 history. It goes down to Sir William Stevenson, who helped to uh, anglicize American intelligence later. So it's a joint operation between a, a banking family and the intelligence unit that watches out for the banking families. It's it's not, you know, and uh, Lynn Forster de Rothschild's husband is Sir Evelyn de Rothschild. And uh, yeah, you can learn a lot. 
by just saying, who owns The Economist and how does that all work over there where they're telling us how the world should work? You know, back in the day when uh, that 2016 election was going on, The Economist wrote an article that said, we don't have a vote in your election, but if we did, we'd vote for Hillary Clinton. And just before that, they had said that Hillary Clinton was going to win 96% and Trump was going to get 4%. So if these people were not trying to shape the future of our thinking, why are they writing a magazine and circulating the ideas about American politics when they're clearly an agent of the British Empire, of the Oxford and London School of Economics system of governance, and uh, backed by one of the most notorious banking families? What a coincidence. What a coincidence there. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe we should just believe things without asking those questions <laughs> and just be, I guess it would be easier to be dumb to that, right? Yeah. Just to be you know, ignorant. ignorance is bliss, right? Ignorance, I guess it is bliss. <laughs> Ask that to the sheep when they reach the slaughterhouse. Is it bliss? Yeah. Sheep, you didn't know you were being ranched? Hmm. Yep. Here comes the calling. On the other hand, outside the fence, there's wolves. So <laughs> don't be a sheep, I guess is the lesson there. All right. So uh, I want to go to this Kim Iverson sanctions didn't work because this is also mm-hmm. about the Russia thing, how that the whole scenario of the Anglo-American establishment has backlashed on its own people. And it really hasn't done the effects they were hoping to have on Putin over there in Russia. And uh, I want to check out her perspective and see what news uh, is availed in the past week on the situation. Kim, what is on your radar? All right, listen, sanctions, like the ones we have on Russia and Iran and Cuba, they don't work. Not only do they not work, they often achieve the opposite effect. They harm our economy, and most importantly, they put our national security at risk. Now, I get it. Maybe you want to punish bad leaders of foreign countries without having to wage actual war, and cutting them off from the global economy seems like a better alternative. It's potentially far more damaging to the U.S., and we should stop. So in order to understand this, let me first tell you what sanctions are exactly. Sanctions can be against entire countries, government leaders and representatives, random individuals, wealthy business people, companies, or even industries. For example, I'm sure you're aware we've been sanctioning Cuba over Fidel Castro, North Korea since the Korean War, Iran since the fall of the Shah. Most recently, we've been sanctioning Russia because of the war in Ukraine, but we also sanctioned government leaders. For example, there are several Chinese officials who are sanctioned over Hong Kong and the Uyghurs. The U.S. government also chooses to sanction wealthy people, such as Russian oligarchs, companies accused of engaging in fraudulent or corrupt practices, and even specific industries can be sanctioned. As it stands right now, one in 10 countries are under some form of U.S. sanctions. Now, the sanctions can be in the form of banning trade, freezing assets, heavier taxation, or prohibiting financial dealings. This part's important to understand. The way we go about doing this is we actually ban American companies and American people from trading or financially dealing with anyone on the list of countries, companies, and individuals. The government can't control them, but the government can control us. So the government also uses secondary sanctions by threatening allies. For example, we tell Europeans to join in on our sanctions or face sanctions themselves. We sound like really charming friends. So if you operated a company that did a lot of business with these countries or individuals and suddenly there are sanctions on them, your company will obviously suffer financially. So if you're a manufacturer of some goods, for example, and you typically ship a fair amount over to Russia, now that we have sanctions on Russia, it's your responsibility as the American to stop shipping to them, not their responsibility to stop receiving them. So if you offer financial services, 
it's your responsibility to make sure none of your clients are on one of these lists. So just on the surface, sanctions are a burden to American companies and people who are constantly having to figure out who is on or off these lists. On top of this, sanctioning hurts American businesses who are now banned from doing any business with them. So do you think any, uh, any of this really hurts Russians when it comes to banning things like iPhones, Gucci bags, BMWs, and Chanel perfume? Do you think that hurts them when it's banned from entering their country? I'm sure many Russians were upset that they couldn't get these luxury items, but it's not like they needed these things. But do you know who does need these luxury items? The, the people who manufacture them, market them, and distribute them. All of the workers who are behind the operation of those companies are now at risk of losing their jobs because of lack of sales and business. If you were a shipping company and your primary client was Russia, you're probably out of business right now and all of your workers are laid off. Now, trade, of course, isn't only just luxury items. Lots of trade involves essentials like medicine, food, and energy. Sanctions that involves these types of items not only hurt those who are manufacturing and distributing them, but they significantly hurt the poor people inside of the targeted nation. Wealthy people in those countries will always have access to the things they need. It's the poor who suffer. But that's actually the point. One idea is to cause so much suffering amongst the population that the government eventually feels enough compassion to stop the pain. And in order to stop the pain, they have to stop whatever it is that caused them to be sanctioned in the first place. The other idea is to cause so much pain in the population that the population rises up and topples the government under the hope that if the new government, that if a new government were installed, the sanctions would stop. But they don't work. We've been implementing these sanctions on several nations for decades now. And what are the results? In many instances, when it's essential medicine or food that's involved, we end up being perceived by the world as heartless bullies. On top of this, did Cuba ever topple the Castro government? Is the Ayatollah of Iran no longer in power? Is Assad no longer the president of Syria? What about North Korea? What good has it done there? These sanctions have not worked as intended. In all of the cases I just mentioned, the people of those countries have not turned on their own leaders. They know the US is causing the sanctions. They're not stupid. So rather than blaming their own governments, they instead blame, get this, the US. You could insist that it's not true, that instead their governments are brutal dictators that don't care about the suffering of their own people. But then I would have to ask, if that's the case, why are we punishing the people on top of them being punished by their own government? Isn't the point of sanctions to get their government to stop abusing them? So why add to it? But honestly, we could debate back and forth all day how these people feel or what their governments are like. The bottom line is their governments are intact even after decades of US imposed sanctions. They haven't worked. So why are we continuing to use a tool that doesn't work? But here's where sanctions become an issue of national security. The only reason the US can use sanctions as a weapon and compel allies to go along with them or else is because the US dollar is the world reserve currency. Most global trade is conducted in dollars, so it's harder to ignore sanctions or get around them. Everyone wants dollars because everyone can spend dollars, particularly on oil, which has, much, which has pretty much been nearly exclusively exchanged in dollars after a deal was struck between the US and Saudi Arabia. We agreed to give them security, they agreed to sell us oil, they agreed to sell oil in US currency. And because of this, over the past 80 years, the dollar has remained extremely stable, valuable, and it gives the US a lot of power. But sentiments towards the United States have shifted. Look at Saudi Arabia. They've been feeling pretty snubbed by the Biden administration, resulting in speculation over whether or not Biden would shake or fist bump the Saudi crown prince's hand while visiting the country. Why is Biden there? Well, quite frankly, he's there to beg for relief from high oil prices, caused in part, by the way, by our sanctions on Venezuela, Iran, and Russia, 
and to repair relations now that Saudi Arabia is in accelerated talks with China to begin accepting yuan as payment for oil. The United States being so trigger happy to use our economic power against those we disagree with has caused many countries to begin moving away from the dollar out of fear they could be next on the naughty list. No one wants to get hit with sanctions and no one wants to and no one wants and no one knows what's going to cause them to be hit with sanctions next. Now countries won't be able to move away from the dollar overnight. Old habits die hard, but they're trying. The sanctions on Russia since in, it, since its invasion of Ukraine have actually accelerated de-dollarization. Countries trying to circumvent U.S. imposed sanctions with Russia are now trading in their own national currencies for the oil and wheat Russia provides. But de-dollarization efforts have been going on long before this war with Russia. China has struck deals with Australia, Japan, Brazil, Iran, and others to trade in national currencies. Russia, China, and other countries have been rapidly setting up alternative monetary systems since 2014, knowing that at any minute they could be hit with more U.S. sanctions. The world is looking for an alternative. The U.S. dollar won't be ditched as a major global currency, but soon it won't be the only one. Once it's no longer needed to conduct global trade, it will drastically lose its value. Right now, we rely on countries, China being one of the biggest, to support our deficit spending with massive loans. They'll only continue doing this if the dollar remains valuable because it's needed to conduct global trade. We also need the dollar to remain strong so that the things we buy from other countries, which is just about everything, will remain affordable. Essentially, if the dollar is no longer in highest demand, we, the American people, feel the effects the strongest. We're talking extremely high inflation. And quite frankly, some of the inflation we're feeling right now could be because this process has already begun. So we need to stop using the power of being the world's reserve currency as a weapon and start earning the goodwill in the community of nations. The goodwill we've been squandering since World War II. We need to earn respect in the world by insisting our government reflect the will of the good and fair American people. And we also need to insist that our politicians stop firing off their weapons of all kinds, be they monetary or physical, and start thinking about what ramifications their decisions have on not only the innocent people in these foreign countries, but on us, the American people. So I'm curious, Bacha and Robbie, how do, what do you guys think about U.S. sanctions? I mean, in my mind, obviously, they're not working and they're harmful and damaging. Should we continue doing them? It was them with the open mic. I looked at my mic. I looked at Tony's. I'm like, yep. Yeah. They always open the mic before she's done talking. You could hear it clanging around in the background. Uh, every time. Every time. Every time. Every All right. Time. So I was thinking about what she's saying. This deal with the Saudis and Biden going over to beg for oil. That's an interesting news story, right? And does it match up with like the history? And that was a question I had in my head. And then I thought, do I have a book on that? And I was like, yeah, I do. I have a book. I have a book right here. It's called the, and this is, a, I have not shown this book before. So this is going to be like new, new Anglo-American type stuff that we're getting into. The Georgians, the eminent Georgians, the lives of King George V, Elizabeth Bowen, Sinjin Philby, and Nancy Astor. Now, ironically enough, all throughout this book is something called uh, the Cliveden set is talked about. And the Cliveden set was identified by Carol Quigley as this Fabian socialist Nazi supporting sect of the Anglo-American establishment, specifically the Anglo side, because there was the Georgetown set on the American side. And uh, they're kind of mapped out. So I got a little little passage here with Sinjin Philby. Let's see where that was at. I think it was right here. All right. So. Philby was an MI6 agent that they had embedded in, in Saudi Arabia and helped to set up the, the Saudi royal family. Because America 
supply security to the Saudis and they do exchange of oil for the for the world and in the the petrodollar. Right. So it's important to understand what is the nature of the relationship between America, Britain and Saudi Arabia. And how did this stuff come to come to pass in the first place? We're going to learn a little bit about the history. Um, so Philby, he had infiltrated in the 20s. He gets into uh, 1936 and 37 toward the, the late end. And he goes to Mecca. And now down here, Philby was asked by the British papers to write not only about Arab affairs, but also about the proposed partition of Palestine into Arab and Jewish sectors, a plan that he favored through, though, Ibn Saud did not. Philby worked in Jidda throughout the rest of 1938, returning to London early the next year for a secret conference on Palestine in the course of which he hosted a luncheon for Kaim Weizmann and David Ben-Gurion. David Ben-Gurion was the first prime minister of Israel That's many years unreal. later, over 10 years later, right? So, <clears throat> and there's Nancy Astor. So when Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia, like Nancy Astor, an ardent appeaser, she likes Hitler. There's a whole bunch. In fact, I'm pretty sure this king had to step down because he also supported Hitler. So when you get into like... Uh, they also around that time stopped, um, if I remember correctly, the British crown stopped associating themselves with Saxe, Coburg, Gotha. So in other words, German provinces, they stopped, right. you know, that was part of their official title. They took out aspects of it to make it seem like, no, this is British, you know, marketing PR sort of stunt. Anyway, so... Going back to the, the point from before the last clip, the London School of Economics supports the economist. That's the economic philosophy underneath that, right? Uh, that whole milieu of Fabian socialism was like George Bernard Shaw and the Cliveton set. Here, here's the Astor aspect of this book, right? The Cliveton set. So that's uh, Jeffrey Dawson who ran the Times of London. He's discussed in here. See, it's all about Lord Northcliffe and Cliveton, guests at Clive. Cliveden was a group where these people were planning out and they didn't lose the war, everybody, right? Also, before she had concluded her long investigation in the question whether there was a Jewish plot against civilization, but all of that was not yet. The seeds were planted, only time was wanting. The period of uh, this period also saw the death of Waldorf's cousin, John Jacob Astor III, who went down on the Titanic. I wonder if he agreed with the Federal Reserve. Anyway, such such pieces of history and like for people Lloyd, who get confused real quick just to give yeah. some exactly what you're saying what the cliveden says when you give a little bit of um, i have a definition right here okay not bad, not bad. Yeah, go for it so on page 215 this is under lady of the house nancy astor's section so the phrase cliveden set was coined to describe those in in and out of the government who were plotting the victory not of britain but of appeasement and who formulated the pro-German policies followed by the British government until the outbreak of war, when Churchill's recall to power became inevitable. As it is well known for years, his had been a voice in the wilderness. He understood the maniacal uh, 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 ambition, the maniacal ambition of Hitler, and he understood that only strength, not words, could thwart So the Cliveden set appeared to be pro-Nazi and actually was pro-Nazi and it goes on. I mean, it's a very So we, we should juxtapose, so I'm real quick, actually, yeah. if I can juxtapose that to what then Quigley says in the beginning of Anglo-American establishment, he sure. claims, and it is correct, but like here we might be able to provide some distinction for the audience. He goes on to claim here, this society has been known at various times as Milner's kindergarten, as the round table group, 
as the roads crowd, as the times crowd, which is there's a whole chapter, by the way, in Anglo-American establishment. I right. went into it because C.D. Jackson a couple of weeks ago, we were doing I was doing a deep dive. Anyways, the times crowd in the all souls group. It's probably out of Oxford. And as the and as the Cliveden set, all of these terms are unsatisfactory for one reason or another. And I've chosen to call it the Milner group. Those persons who have used the other terms or heard them used have not generally been aware that all these various terms referred to the same group. Now, the flaw, so the Cliveden set, in other words, is like a, a, it's still the same group, it's still the same philosophy. It's just applying it under the zeitgeist milieu of the culture around them. So, like, and there's going to be subtle differences. So and good. Lord Milner's second war was World mm-hmm. War One. Yes. His first war was Cecil Rhodes's Boer War in South Africa, yeah. where they tested out concentration camps and developed yeah. them and did it to Dutch citizens, Dutch uh, women and children in concentration camps. The British defined that. And then Hitler just copied what the British did. They did the same thing with eugenics. The Germans mm-hmm. yeah, didn't 100%. discover racial purity. Those were Darwinian ideas coming out of the Fabian socialists and George mm-hmm. Bernard Shaw and his crew. It's much who, of the intellectual Hitler, by the way. So the people doing this Anglo-American establishment running Saudi Arabia's oil, putting them on the petrodollar. They're the people who funded the Nazis, but didn't lose World War II. They're still in control. They created the UN. They have this plan to depopulate the planet. They had to go it's, back. It's called with history, t- kids. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the place that does it, their school system is not going to tell you about it. That would be the opposite of its purpose. No, it's the opposite. The school system is there to make you so dumb that you can't believe it's going on and you don't do anything about it. It's quite simple. It's to turn off your immune system to tyranny. It yeah. takes 15,000 hours for them to do good it. Good metaphor. But it only takes me 12 weeks to undo it. So, you know. That's true. <laughs> Nice thing is, it isn't actually too hard to give people back uh, the ability to use their minds, have confidence, and the ability to use their own uh, ability and techniques uh, to better their yeah, own position mind, in life. So. Your mind atrophies, but it recovers quicker than any other muscle in your body. I'm using yeah. a euphemism. I'm using my brain to make a metaphor to call it a muscle when it's not. But <laughs> you get what I'm saying? You're picking up what I'm laying down right there. Yeah, so oh, they yeah. teach us. It takes a long time to convince us not to let our curiosity teach us and let learning take the. the no, they don't want that. They want you controlled, so they have to give you this box of prescribed ideas and keep you busy from finding things out. Yeah, and then use social reinforcements. Like, what are you retarded? You talking about that thing? That's a conspiracy. A theory. box of prescribed ideas that are one hundred percent contrived. They're not based on observations of nature. They're based on what one or a group of people want to believe about how nature should work or how nature works, whether they're talking about global warming, your eugenics, and they're fitting all the data into their model that's already sort of preconceived and comes with an enormous amount of biases associated with it, meaning they're going to leave out a lot of data that runs contradictory to the model they're trying to support. And that's called when they leave that data out. Prescriptive called, versus uh, descriptive. Sorry. It's called occulting or hiding that data. And which which data do they occult? The useless data or the useful data, Tony? Useful only. Useful. So the only thing they hide is the useful data. And the only thing they give out is the useless data. Now take it how much time. Think about how much time you listen to network news over the years and how much useless data you fed yourself. Because that's not. Really or school for that matter. 15,000 hours of state sponsored education. You can read these people in their own words and you can find out what's going on. And then you it's can amazing. They're actually that can be like, oh, they lie to us in mainstream media. Oh, geez. Oh, I had to do a amazing hooks and start li- start listening to what they're saying. It's like, wait, <laughs> Zabinia Brzezinski's daughter is like the head of a news channel, and her husband's a guy who found his congressional aide dead in the office. And there's a, what, what, what? 
These aren't legit journalists. Small world. Small world. Yeah. (laughs) Small world. Hashtag what makes you qualified to marry Mika? (laughs) Right. Yeah. These are political power for a reason. That guy's got the eyes of a killer. He's qualified. He can handle my daughter because, uh, you know, in uh, the, the war against us all screening we did Friday night, there's Mika Brzezinski and her dad that day had called her mousy. So she was being a little aggressive and like uh, bombastic. She was doing her impression of Alex Jones on screen, like being a little more upset than she had to be over the Paris Hilton story. But that was a thing. That was a thing 15 years ago. Yeah, that was I really forgot cool. about that. Oh, yeah, my God. That. That was, that's the stuff we were. We saw that. So we did that screening Friday night. There was a lot of people watching on Odyssey and Rockfin, and it was up on YouTube for a while before that channel got permanently deleted and terminated with prejudice. And uh, yeah, it was it was a good time. I think we're going to screen more of uh, past productions that people haven't seen like that. It was fun. Awesome. Good. Uh, The clip I want to go to next Mm -hmm. is uh, the the pre-taped part that I did with Corbett earlier this week. Yeah. And uh, because I feel like. I just got heated a little bit about the problem. Like they're dumbing us down. Maybe we should just listen to a little bit about the solution and then we can balance it all out. And then we'll go through the, uh, the rest of the episodes. Where is with. that clip actually to be on the post? In the it's actually, uh, I think Joshua said it's now posted on my YouTube page. Cause I was okay. getting delays on Odyssey and rumble yep. played it pretty good though. Let me bring up your YouTube real quick. Oh, it's on rumble as well. Okay. Yeah. On Rumble, it's on Corbett's though, still. Okay. On my YouTube page, it's Tragedy and Hope Mag is the handle. Because back when I got that YouTube channel, we were a magazine back in 2009 when I started with that. Ah, that's why I guess uh, between. Yeah. Your YouTube channel is called Tragedy and Hope was already taken back then. So I had to do Tragedy and Hope. Just dropped it in production. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Josh was on the scene dropping links. Thank you. There we go. I'm ready. Not a mic drop, it's a clip drop. Let's do it. Let's go to see James Corbett. It's like seeing Mr. Rogers. Load. The gears are turning. The gears are turning. Does that want to work? Is YouTube discriminating against James Corbett? Well. You know what? Some people said I was brave for putting that on my page. I said, hey, if, if, if I get a strike because I aired James Corbett on my page, that's a, that's a strike that's, that's worth earning right there. So we're going to do it live. Yeah, give me two seconds. Let me try Rumble. Some reason YouTube is being finicky all of a sudden for no reason. Let's give it all the Rumble try. Gremlins. Also, for but, those of you who are diligently on time for this stream, and you know we weren't because we got started an hour late, we had some tech hiccups and issues, but we persevered. We persisted despite the resistance, and uh, we got it together. And uh, you know, sometimes it takes a reboot or a refresh or back for- to- toggle some settings, click a box, these sort of things. We had to work through some checklists, but we got it all going. And it sounds yeah. like now, apologize. Be about a half hour late. Apologize for that. I was away for the weekend. Got back late. We had some technical you hiccups. You don't need and, to. Uh, yeah, th- we don't need excuses. We're we're good. Like everyone's yeah. everyone knows we start a half hour late anyway. So we were just a half hour later than our half hour late. Half hour late. <laughs> right. It was, Keep them on their toes. You know, it's technical. It's technical. All right. So now we got the James Corbett tidbit yep. from uh, we're playing it from Rumble. Yep. You can also see it on CorbettReport.com forward slash autodidacticism. But you might not be able to spell that. So we'll drop the link in the chat and uh, we'll post it in the show notes for this episode as well. 
thank you guys for watching. Let's see what uh, see how it plays. Friends, welcome back to another edition of Solutions Watch. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you in July of 2022 on a topic that is near and dear to my heart. The topic of autodidacticism or self-learning or whatever you want to call it. Uh, the, the idea behind it is both remarkably simple but remarkably powerful. And that is that the best... I'm not sure necessarily the best in all situations, but a good way to learn things is to do them and try them and to teach yourself through the process of trial and error and experience and also study uh, how to do various things. And this is something that uh, resonates with myself very strongly because this is essentially how the Corbett Report came to be. Uh, I, as I've said many, many times, I never in a million years thought I was going to be involved in media production of any kind, and yet here I am at the pinnacle of media production. <laughs> How did I end up here? It wasn't by going to college for four years and learned taking a media degree or anything of that sort. It was essentially trial and error and teaching myself and learning through experience, learning through looking things up. Um, there's a lot of different aspects of this this process by which we can improve ourselves and move forward into the future learning new skills picking new things up not by turning to the education system but by through self-learning and i could think of no better guest to have on to talk about this topic than old friend of the corbett report richard grove who has of course been involved in many podcasts and media productions, documentaries, projects over the years, and like myself, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, but uh, like myself, someone who has not, was not trained in this, was, was not uh, someone who went into this as a media person, but has obviously taught himself the tricks of the trade when it comes to media production and many other things besides, and that is the topic of today's Solutions Watch. So, Richard Grove, thank you very much for coming on. Howdy, James. Thank you for the invite. And yeah, I never intended to be in front of, I don't, I'm an introvert. I don't like to be in front of cameras or lights or microphones or audiences or any of that stuff. I've learned everything out of necessity in this space for the past 16 years or so. After I was done internalizing through reading, I was like, I got a, I got a, something to say and there's something to share. And uh, I learned along the way. I learned uh, first audio editing and then video editing and then videography and then cinematography Right. Cinematography involves more motion of the camera instead of just tripods and uh, how to do interviews, of course, over the years and a number of other things. Just uh, that it was obstacles in a way of where I wanted to go. And I would learn step by step, just like you do. Absolutely. And I think the results of that are self-evident to anyone who has seen any of your media productions, certainly in the past decade or in the past several years. Uh, they have consistently stepped up, ramped up in quality. Um, but as I say, it's not simply audio or video production in which you have uh, practiced autodidacticism. Uh, you have taught yourself many things, I believe, over the years, and you have shared some of them with your audience. One thing that I would like to draw my audience's attention to, in particular, because I enjoy it so much, is the Slow Your Scroll series of videos that uh, I will link up in the show notes for today's Solutions Watch so people can go and watch them yourse the themselves. I don't know what it is about that, 
particular production, but I really enjoy watching you and often with your son out there in the woods going out to, oh, here we're going to use, uh, uh, we're going to make our own fire or, or something along those lines. And just watching someone do that as they introduce clips, there's something about that that's calming, but also inspiring in a way, because again, survival tips, basic things about how to do things outdoors. Again, I, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is a process, something that you've taught yourself about over the last several years, and you were teaching the audience simply by showing it, by doing it, and inspiring others to get out there and start doing it themselves. Tell us a little bit about the Slow Your Scroll idea. Well, I have uh, a lot of my productions are, are for clients and students during the week. And I wasn't getting a lot of clips out to my YouTube page. And I said, can somebody take samples of those productions and I'll do like a, a vlog, you know, once a week type thing. And then I, the mix of that was uh, my son was like four or five when we started that. And we'd go out in the woods and I wanted to show him stuff because you need to know how to survive in nature. And I grew up in the woods of Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. And uh, so I, I found that there's a whole YouTube audience that's interested in how to tie knots and how to pitch a tarp and how to stay dry, how, you know, all these things that I kind of grew up knowing. And then um, the practicality of once a week, it's good for me and him to get out on a hike and let's do some things. And he knows now like what the format is, like we need an intro, a middle and an end. And uh, so he's learning production on the fly. And um, my autodidacticism started before schooling even started. Like I was around a lot of adults, a lot of older adults, like uh, my grandfather on my dad's side had a bunch of kids in his family. And there's a, you know, uh, a work ethic. You see people farming. You see people getting their food or repairing their house or doing whatever. Practical things. They weren't like potato, uh, couch potato type people. So I had learned to read before I went to kindergarten. I was an advanced learner and I got bored with the curriculum like in early elementary school. So I read more advanced content, right? Um, and then I lost my way during schooling because I started just following what they were laying down. Like, oh, I go through this process, I graduate, then I get in this place, then I get a piece of paper, I go get a good job. And somewhere along the college route, I started not taking it so seriously and being more social, hanging out with friends, not going to class, right? Because college was not challenging. It wasn't giving me what I thought I needed for the future. And um, it was like, you know, I, I moved away from home when I was 18. So it was... It was very liberating. So at one point during college, I was reading a newspaper, the school newspaper, because I was looking for bar specials. I was not the person to read the paper every day, but I was looking for a bar special. And in there, James, I saw an ad that said, make $10,000 this summer. And I thought to myself, wow, I only make $3,000 a summer working as a fry cook. You know, what do I have to do with $10,000? What's that all about? So I went through a series of interviews and what it was, was a franchise. And so... My sophomore year of college, I invested $5,000 into myself to buy that franchise to learn entrepreneurism, to learn hiring, firing, sales, marketing, all the things you need to do to, to have your own business. And then that was a lot of fun. I employed a, a ton of friends of mine and people we met. Like we worked together over summer. It was a good time. It, like good college summer job, right? Very uh, lucrative. Um, and then at the end of college, I didn't want to run that company. I wanted like a, a real job that paid a lot of money, not just, you know, 60 grand or something during the summer. I wanted six figures. I wanted to earn a million dollars. I had ideas in my head that were probably from watching movies and television that I should go off to New York City and make my fortune at some point. Right. So with that in mind, I graduated college and I didn't ever have to use my degree to get a job. 
So the jobs I got, the, the jobs where I built my success had nothing to do with my college education, it had everything to do with the entrepreneur skills that no one else I worked with seemed to have. So it was a very rare skill set. It's very lucrative and like high valued skill set. And then it was that level of success. I was at a good cruising altitude in corporate world when I then became a whistleblower. And I didn't really, I mean, I would have still done the same thing. But if you would have said, Rich, you're going to scuttle your multi-million dollar career forever. You're not, you don't, you know, what are you going to do the rest of your life? I really thought since I had the evidence and learned how to represent myself in court and taught myself the rules of the court and all those things I had to do that I was probably going to be successful in that endeavor. Well, I miscalculated. I didn't know how the world worked. I had a lot of blind spots on my map. I hadn't yet internalized the messages of John Taylor Gatto or Charlotte Iserby to find my blind spots, right? I thought I knew. And because I was, because my sense of knowledge was being validated by the paycheck and the commission checks, especially, I didn't feel the need to continue learning. So the, at my turning point in a career where I go into research and media production from being a corporate sales executive, um, I didn't have a bookshelf that had books I read recently. I had, you know, they're random books, man. If I went to the bookstore, I bought like Theodore Rex about Te Teddy Roosevelt, a BS history book, right? I had no thirst for knowledge because I, I thought, I assumed I knew how things worked. And then slowly as that naivete got pulled back off me, I was like, I need to start finding what is the actual and factual? What are the books that help to map out what's going on economically, politically, sociologically, education-wise, these sort of things, and start reading them. And then all that kind of autodidacticism uh, led into outputs. So there was an input processing and output stage to the, to the whole thing. And then, uh, you know, right around the same time you started, I started uh, putting out the podcast. You know, what you say resonates so strongly with me and my experience and all of the things that I've learned along the way, including things that I've learned from yourself. You, of course, raise the specter of John Taylor Gatto. And so we've got to point to the ultimate history lesson, which if people haven't seen that yet, why not? It's as relevant today as the time it was recorded, if not more so. And I think hits on a lot of those points, the difference between education and schooling. And it's unfortunate that we tend to think of schooling as learning. Uh, when, in fact, as you say, it often inculcates the exact opposite tendency. We, we start to train for the test and we start to think in those terms instead of actually learning how to do things and how they apply to our real experience. And that is to our detriment because history and learning and knowledge is empowering, thrilling, fascinating, interesting. Uh, all of the things that schooling is not. And uh, I will just parenthetically note, not as way of blowing my own horn, but of demonstrating the point. Um, one of the recent comments on my Gutenberg conspiracy that I just released, fascinating, simply fascinating. I do not remember anything like this being taught in the schools I went to growing up. LOL, don't say it, James. Uh, this is something we seriously take for granted every time we open our mouths to spit out a word. Um, that, that, that type of feedback I am often I often receive is that wow you know I never knew this existed this is fascinating this is interesting they never taught this in schools yes that's the point when you really start learning genuinely learning it is a thrilling and and motivational thing in and of itself so once people have experienced that broken through that conditioning that schooling is learning and it's boring and who cares and you know, just to just go along, date along. Once people have that thirst, that knowledge for, uh, that passion for knowledge, where do they start? Let's say there's somebody out there in the audience today 
that wants to start teaching themselves how to fill in the blank, whatever that thing is, what are some general ideas, steps, or principles that we could um, uh, offer to these people to get them started along that path that we can talk about from our own experience? Yeah, so if you've discerned the difference between the indoctrination for 15,000 hours for other people's agendas versus you learning how to reach goals and accomplish things that you want in your life and making your dreams into reality, you notice there's a difference, right? One is declarative sentences and they're told to you and you're tested. And the other one is you ask questions and you go out into the world and you find answers. You might interview people. You might look up stuff in encyclopedia. You might do search engine. You might ask a, a relative, all these sorts of things you might do to become educated, to become skilled. I might look over someone's shoulder. I might say, show me how to do it. Watch me do it. These sort of things, get some practice and repetitions in. So there's general things we need to be able to do for ourselves to learn anything. And then you can just figure out what your goals are, what actions you need to take, and then the learning takes place along those those routes. So it's really something we could have learned, should have learned, at a very young age, and we'd all have a lot more autonomous direction in the world. But instead, they want us not knowing that we're lost until we're 30 or 40. And they're like, wait a minute, there's not the options they told us we're gonna be at the end of this hallway. And then people find themselves in, in divorce or losing their job or all these other things, and it creates great turmoil. And I think that's all avoidable with seeing the situation for what it is and saying, there's some things I need to do. I need to be able to learn things for myself. Yes. I need to be able to get things done. So I should have a method for that. I need to be accountable to other people and to myself. Right. And I need to conduct myself with a culture of excellence so that I work and play nicely with others and people want to give me business and they want to take the business that I'm offering. So there's like this uh, set of ingredients for the recipe, none of which that are provided in schooling. So, to start, I would say you want to make a commitment to yourself that you can be better than you are today. And that's just an easy thing. We all learn. I keep myself humble because I know, like, I think of what I learned today. And then I think, well, I couldn't have been that smart yesterday then, right? <laughs> and I just keep it real like that. So you're going to be doing a lot of learning and it's going to go on for the rest of your life. Or you can do a lot of assuming and snickering and like, haha, make fun of stuff, make fun of people who are improving themselves and like stay in a static position, right? In this environment, there's a lot of other pressures coming in with uh, fertilizer and food prices and gas prices, right? Well, savings not going to get you ahead. You have to increase your intellectual buoyancy, increase your valuable service offered to the world to be able to help others because that's how you circulate in the economy and, and trade and barter and these sort of things, right? So these critical elements of survival they're denied to us. And if, if they trickle down, it's because of who we hung out with in our family, friends, things like that, right? It's not coming through the institutions that produce kind of broken-ism, if you will. So to start on the autodidactic journey, you need to know, uh, we'll talk about getting things done in a second, but you just need to know this. You're going to fall down. You're going to fail. You're going to feel awkward. You're going to feel fear. You're going to feel confusion. You're going to feel embarrassment. And so what? good. All the things you want are on the other side of those things. And if you let those things keep you static and making fun of people making progress, it's not going to help. So once you get through that, oh, if I learn to ride a bike, it's going to be awkward. There's some fear. I might fall down and skin my knee. But ultimately, I get to direct myself autonomously with that device faster than I could ever walk. So there's an upside to it, right? And so once people think of that, they're like, oh, what's on the other side of all this learning? What can I do? What problems can I solve? What problems can I avoid? What other pitfalls can I foresee by having a good, strong network of people who have been there and done that, right? So 
once you get past like the intellectual or psychological part of I'm going to make a commitment not to quit on myself. And as a coach or a teacher, I know you'll be successful when you won't quit on yourself. So that's the simple metric. Have we gotten there yet? Or do you still come back and offer excuses to your accounting coach or what have you, right? So everyone's got work to do. We're all in different phases. And then I take students uh, um, uh, through the unindoctrination phase where they kind of unlearn ideas and beliefs that they have that are not useful to their endeavors. So learned helplessness, the belief that they can't learn new things, not useful. Let's get rid of that. Scarcity mindset, that you don't have up here what you need to survive and thrive. Because reality does have real scarcity, which is why we don't need scarcity in our brains. We need the, the infinite thinking to be able to cognize and invent and be ingenuitive to solve problems, right? This is an element of human experience that is denied by the school system, but we very much need it, right? So we replace that part. And then um, learning from there, you're easy to work with. You can show up on time. You're not making excuses. You get things done. You're accountable. You have integrity, which is simply doing what you said you'd do when you said you'd do it. And trust is created with the people you work with because it's integrity de demonstrated over time that develops that trust. Now we just slap some high value skills on there. So if you want to be an executive salesperson, because that's where the money's at, there's no degree necessary, there's jobs all over the place. It's how everyone else in every company gets paid. Salespeople, there's no universities training people how to do this, especially the right way, which is service-based. You're solving problems, you're not doing things to people, you're doing things for people. It's not about pushing, persuading, convincing, conniving. It's more about asking questions, listening, finding the common needs, making a better plan, and agreeing to do something about it. Something we do in our, in our households, it's something we do with our friends, and it's something that we learn to do in business. But most employees don't know how to interview or get a job or negotiate or be upwardly mobile and get a promotion or go make an opportunity for another company that's not hiring, and they'll hire you and give you 10% of the $2 million you're bringing in for them with that business idea. So there's all these paths to be mobile in our society, but they're like, they're behind these doors and they're locked. So I try to offer people a, a skeleton key for that success and the Swiss army knife for life. So you have the skills and you have the connectivity. The skeleton keys like the connectivity and the Swiss army knives like the skills. You don't need the best of all these skills. You don't need to be the best salesperson. You need to be the least cringeworthy salesperson they've encountered, right? You need to be genuinely curious. Otherwise, you can't ask a question and actually listen to people. That's another skill we help uh, students develop very quickly in the first couple of weeks. Get over introversion, be on camera, ask questions, be heard, but also listen. Also cognize what other people are trying to do so you can help them find solutions because that's valuable currency between people. So, yeah, there's a lot to get started, but all you really need to do is to make a commitment to yourself that you want some result that you have uh, that you don't want but you have right because at the end of the day let me take a sip at the end of the day people transact for two reasons they transact to get results they want and don't have and they transact to get rid of problems they have and don't want so they could also teach us that by like sixth grade right you, no one's going to want you to mow the grass if the grass is short, but if it's a foot high, you can make them a deal. Why isn't it cut? Is the lawnmower broken? Is someone out of the house? What's going on? There's a problem to be solved. Entrepreneurs figure out how to solve that problem. Entrepreneurs are people who take educated, calculated risks for substantial benefit. 
and more of us, uh, and that, the, that's only possible because of freedom. So there's a convection current between freedom and entrepreneurism, and it, it's a two-sided coin. You can't have one without the other. You put a lot on the table there, and so much of it resonates with my own personal experience, especially the part about the trial and error, and you will make mistakes, and you will be, you will fail, it will be awkward, uh, but it is part of the growing and learning process. To this day, I cannot go back and listen to basically the first hundred episodes of the Corbett Report podcast. I just cringe. It sounds terrible. I sound terrible. Why am I speaking like that? Like, do I not know how to speak like a regular human being? But those are just things you have to learn. And I learned it the hard way in front of everybody. And now they're there for everyone to hear for all time. Oh, well, <laughs> at least I can present the, uh, the, well, this is what it looks like as you start to improve and as you uh, start to take your failures and make them into success. And that's the only way to really do this. And the, you know, the overnight successes that get presented to people are almost invariably people who have spent a long time doing things behind the scenes and then they get noticed. So uh, unfortunately there aren't a lot, that's one of the things that the sort of the media culture that we're steeped in does is kind of obscure the hard work that goes in to things like this and the development. And I think it is important to actually show people that process to show them that, yes, if you care, if you are diligent, if you put yourself to it, you can develop whatever skill you want. It will take time, there will be failures, but you can do it with persistence, which is an important thing, I think, to model to others. So <laughs> that's why I those first hundred episodes or so of the Corbett Report are still up there and always will be. So you can see some of my own uh, failures and shortcomings. Um, not that, I'm doing anything perfectly right now. I could improve in so many different ways and hopefully continue to do so all the time. Let's give people a specific example. Uh, audio production or video production or cinematography or uh, survival skills or something specific you've learned. What were some of the th questions you had? How did you go about answering those questions? What setbacks or failures did you have and how did you overcome that? All right, so I'm going to touch also on what you said about the early work because uh, I have one of my I have my first film in 2007. It's it, the anniversary is coming up. It's the 15th anniversary, and uh, <clears throat> someone on the media team cut trailers for it, and they said we're going to live stream this on the 15th anniversary. So I watched the trailers for the first editing I've ever done, video wise, and it's rough, dude. It was hard, and I was like, okay, but we're going to let this fly because people need to see. You know, this is what 15 years of, you know, I don't produce every day, but uh, yeah, it has improved over time for sure. Now, interesting places where I built up my chops of learning hard things, learning things that are difficult, learning things that make you want to quit. Um, I, the, the seed story for this, it's, it's not business. It was, it was social. It was I wanted to play a sport, ice hockey, that I didn't know how to skate. And I was 14. And my younger brother had played hockey his whole life. And it got to the point where the high school team didn't have kids my age on the team and they offered a, a learn escape program. So they like taught us like on a Tuesday night for two weeks. It wasn't a whole lot. So what I did was at age 14, at this height, at 6'2", 130 pounds back then, spindly, you know, lanky dude on three inch ice skates out there trying to pick up girls. No, I'm hugging the wall. I'm praying that I don't fall again. I'm making a fool of myself in front of pe girls I would want to impress, but right now I have to learn this hard skill and I'm sorry it's a public skate and you're trying to enjoy yourself, but I don't know how to skate and I'm learning. So I went through, that was a, a tough learning curve for me. 
the benefit was I did learn to skate. I made the varsity team. We won a state championship. I learned a lot about teamwork and uh, camaraderie and work ethic right during that process. So fast forward 20 years, I'm out of my corporate world environment. The map has been wiped clean. What do you, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? I had a deep thirst and interest and curiosity of finding out who knows why the school system's broken. Who knows why no matter what regime is in power in this country, the wars and the foreign policy pretty much stay the same, right? And, uh, you know, it's it seemed like a rigged game. Has anyone checked this out? And sure enough, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other authors have written stories about this over the past 200 years. And I started to encounter some of those stories. So along that way, audio editing, I would say it's something easy. I could teach someone how to do that in a couple hours, right? Here's the, the, the gist of what most producers need. Cut the beginning, cut the end, cut the F word, whatever, you know, bleep some stuff out or video editing. I could teach that in a weekend. Here's what most producers need. And because it's not about making your own film yet, go help some other people be more excellent at what they're doing. And along the way, you're going to meet the people that open those other doors for you. So it's really about learning how to be self-reliant enough that you can take care of yourself and then offer service to others on top of that. Right. So video editing, audio editing, a lot of need, easy skills to pick up. Cinematography, videography, well, videographer, 300 bucks a day. Cinematographer, 800 bucks a day. How, how many days do you want to work? That's a marketing problem, right? You have a skill set that is, you know, you can bring in chunks of money. Or if you create a, a digital asset or a digital product or you have some live offering, conferences, these sort of things. There's all sorts of things that people know about and they go to a permaculture conference to learn from somebody whose passion is bringing food into this world on people's property. Right. So there's all these areas <clears throat> that are of interest. And then if you empower yourself with a three step method to learn anything, it gets really crazy because then you get overwhelmed. Oh, I could learn this. I could learn that. I could learn this. But then you have to pull back from that overwhelm. And I teach how to get out of overwhelm because it's a thing. And you just have to cycle back to like, what is the direct goal? And then what stands between me and that goal? And then tune everything else out and just focus on those things to make progress. But you almost have to be diligent, consistent, ruthless about that process. Otherwise, you're going to get distracted by life. You're not going to achieve your goals. And you're always going to think, woe is me. Success isn't for me. But it's really about self-discipline, diligence, work ethic, other things, right? So not everyone has that capacity or, or wants to reach that capacity. So we have to, like, filter out people to see if it's, like, you know, someone with a victim mentality who thinks everything's somebody else's fault. I can't teach you. I don't know what to do with that. But I would also say by giving other people the blame, you take away responsibility from yourself and you deny yourself being able to solve the problem. Because when it's Bill Gates' fault, Bill Gates ain't going to come fix it for you. But when you take responsibility for it, I don't like what he's doing. I'm going to change. I'm going to have a greenhouse. I'm going to have a garden. Then you can do something about it. Then you can take action. Then you feel better. Two things that I would like to touch on on what you said there. One is that you are sending, giving me flashbacks. I've forgotten that this happened, but I, when I was 12 or 13 years old, I read Vladislav Tretiak's autobiography. <laughs> Why not? And I remember, you know, the big idea, the big sort of unifying idea of his book was that life is about falling down and getting up because that was how he learned to skate and that is what life is about and it's a pretty simple point but now i'm realizing you know that point has stuck with me for decades now that's interesting and obviously it's reflected in your experience thing, there i know the you're from canada and you guys are all born with skates up there but it's not a normal thing to to put those blades on your foot to go on ice 
and to stop. That was, you know, it was like mentally, like, how's the blade going to turn without flipping me over? <laughs> you know, Rich, my parents are English, so okay. they didn't skate. So they didn't teach us to skate. So I know what it's like to be all wobbly on skates while everyone else is skating, <laughs> skating laps around you. I've we had play that each other in hockey for charity sometime. Mm. People would pay to see that. <laughs> Oh, that would be awesome. All right. Um, but the other point that you bring up that's important is that this has to come self-learning, truly achieving something through self-learning has to come from self-motivation. If you are not truly motivated and truly desire that end goal of whatever it is without a clear end goal in mind to as the first thing I think to reach for, you're not going to achieve anything. Well, you can achieve a, a something, but probably not anything spectacular. And again, that comes, I, I know this to be true. I know that what I have achieved with the corporate report and uh, with the, the, the production quality that I can achieve today has come through years and years and years and years of being truly motivated and really sticking with it. And I also know on the flip side of that, uh, I'm, I've been taking guitar lessons for the last few years now with Vinnie Caggiano, one of the best guitar teachers in the world. And my very slow progress is reflective of the fact that I don't, I don't practice enough. It's, it's me. It's, it's either I put in the time and effort and energy and I have the passion and it's my goal and I reach for it and I achieve it or, eh, you know, eh, I'll, I'll practice tomorrow and it just doesn't go anywhere. And so that's, I think that's really the dividing line here. Another thought that is coming up in just in the course of this conversation. So it's fresh off of the, uh, off of the grill here. So but I'd like to get your take on this. It seems to me that one of the key in, uh, uh, things about autodidacticism is that it is mostly, usually, always about how to do something. Not, not knowledge in some sort of general dry, dusty book sense. It's generally about learning a skill, learning how to apply knowledge to the real world. Is, am I off base with that? That's usually the practical application because most of these things like you need to figure out the goal once, but the actions, there could be a hundred thousand between you and the goal. So you're going to need those iterations in there. But you also you would zoom out to what I would say, like in David Allen speak in the, the language of getting things done, you zoom up to 50,000 feet and you look at the life situations and strategic moves and then your runway daily actions down here. That's where you're also iterating the autodidacticism, but it's also how to meet other people that you need to meet to help solve those problems. So part of it's learning, you know, self-learning, like I need to learn how to change the oil in this truck or something like that. Part of it is learning who's the right person I need to get distribution at every 7-Eleven in the South, right? There's a different type of, but it's the same methodology that you would use in any of these situations. So it's like, it seems complex, but it's simplified, right? The general is easy. The specifics are endless, but it's always, for me, it's the same three-step method input processing and output what are the individual parts how do they fit together how do i remove any contradictions or resolve those and then how do you use and or troubleshoot the device or the subject matter that you're engaging in right you know you you hit on another incredibly important point of this is that it's autodidacticism or self-learning but really it isn't about yourself it's about yourself being motivated to do something but then you go out into the world and you ask questions and you find the answers usually from other people who already know how to do this that's the that's usually the best resource so to find someone who knows what they're doing here and learn from them right but you have to be motivated so I, to go out there and 
and get that information. I think that's an important point of this. And you've alluded to it several times during this conversation. You have students. So I guess the next question is, if people want to achieve this autonomy that comes through autodidacticism, where do they go to learn how to do that? They can find out. So I'll explain what they would find out about. I Twice a year, I do a 12-week training course. It's called Autonomy. It fills in the blanks of what public schooling had to remove from education to make it into indoctrination. It puts back free will. It puts back self-motivation, self-management, puts back how to make friends and influence people, you know, make the connections you need. And it gives you a strong curriculum of um, the unlearning aspect of learned helplessness, scarcity mentality, these sort of things, uh, into the general frameworks of how to be an exemplary, indispensable employee or an executive or an entrepreneur. It's all the same interacting with people skill set and interacting with learning skill set. So to break down the learning, I would break it down to meta learning and hyper learning. Meta learning would be how to learn anything, simple three-step method. Hyper learning is applying that meta learning to the internet and your network to find these other answers you need to overcome the next obstacle so you can get to the action that leads to you getting to your goal. Um, so it goes on twice a year. I've been teaching it four years. We've graduated 500 students. It's a small class. I usually keep it between 50 and 100 people each season. Everyone gets to know each other as a classmate. Uh, they bond through the integration exercises where they actually practice these skills and get them under their belts. So they can take them into the real world and transact, whether getting a job, getting a raise, starting a business, growing a family, all these different things. It's the same modalities and the same methods, strategies, principles, and tactics that you need to do it. Um, there's a process to get into it, and it starts at the page called getautonomy.info forward slash ignite. And that's where it's all transparent. There's an obstacle course, and those who can rapidly finish the obstacle course are usually fit for the course, and then they have options. And those who don't make it through the obstacle course, you wouldn't make it through the first week. There's other offerings that we have at our University of Reason that would probably fit you better. And uh, Benny Wills' Parhesia class is a great starter class for people because it just gets you through the introversion and public speaking aspect before we get to the heavier skills. Now, as you say, you've been doing this for several years, and I've talked to some of your students before. Chris McMillan has interviewed me on a number of occasions. So I know I, I've seen the progress uh, that you've made with a lot of these students. But tell us about some of the feedback that you've had about the course. Well, you mentioned Chris. Uh, I, he was a season one graduate, so he's back uh, 2019. You were his first interview, and then soon thereafter, because I taught him how to do interviews. That's week three. Everyone learns that. And he said, I know how to do an interview. I'm going to go interview James Corbett. Right. And that's how that happened. Well, he interviewed John McAfee shortly thereafter. And I was like, dude, you booked McAfee. I'm like, how'd you get him? He's like, I asked. And I was like, that's such a simple. Yep. Yeah, of course. Of course. Right. You know, and um, I've had um, students from age 18 all the way up through the oldest uh, graduates, 85. The oldest graduates, a guy named Bob Podolsky, and he's the son of Boris Podolsky, who was Einstein's partner. So he's an interesting older guy who's still learning, still practicing, still sharing the wisdom that he's gained. Um, and then, you know, I designed the course so uh, a, a single mom with three kids and two jobs could still have time and the money to go through this course, get those skills, make the course pay for itself, and live happily ever after. It's not promising miracles or you're going to have a yacht or a plane. It's much more realistic. Like you're going to have a stronger offer to the market and you're going to have upward mobility to go wherever you want as long as it's not based on your physical dexterity. As long as it's based on between your ears, you're going to be good. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful every season because I get to meet all these cool people from around the world. Like we have 
students from Saudi Arabia and Germany and, you know, Asia and South America and Africa and Australia, all the major places except Antarctica, pretty much. Uh, you know, again, this is this is the important point of it. If people have a goal, if they have a purpose, a mission, and uh, then and they want to learn a specific skill or or skills that will serve them in a number of different situations, I think again the dividing line is whether people have that actual driving passion. Do you really want it or not? And if not, then that's that's fine. It just means you're not going to progress in whatever it is that you're you're dreaming about. So turning dreams into reality, I think, is what this process is about. And it has been Mapping done. It can dreams. be done. It I call is... it, yeah. <laughs> it's more like having an intentional map. Like you're intentionally plotting it, though, James. It's not just like a thing that happens. There's work involved, but it's not magical. And at the end of the day, my, my curriculum is great. The, inter the integration exercises where people learn, they're very sturdy. It's, it's all nerfed up. No one gets hurt. It's, it all works great. But what people really get out of it is the personal connections. They meet people online. Then they go meet in, in real life. And uh, like we go to festivals and there will be three dozen of my graduates there. And that's the priceless part of it, right? We get, on, we get together online to exchange information and do some learning. But we do that to bring it back into our households, our communities, and our neighborhoods to make, a, make the world a better place. Because without our conscious participation in this game, it's going to go unfreedom real quick. Exactly right. All right. Well, we've covered a lot of bases, a lot of ground today. Uh, anything else you'd like to say about self-learning before we wrap it up? Yeah. Part of self-learning is, uh, you know, learning how to take these offers. Do I want to learn about that? Do I want to learn about that? And being able to say yes, no, maybe later. Where would that fit into my goals? These sort of things, right? There's a lot of people who have probably listened to this whole thing and they think this might not be for them. So I brought something free for those people, James. Can I, can I give out that URL? Please do, yeah. Getautonomy.info forward slash Freedom Vault, all one word, Freedom Vault. And uh, you have a presentation, I think, in there called The Underground History of America. And uh, I think your audience would find it enlightening because it ties in the Opium East India Company, Anglo-American establishment, uh, to those who destroyed education to bring in schooling to make a one world, one world government. Fascinating. I'm going to be going there to check it out myself as soon as we hang up here <laughs> and i'm sure many people will as well all right uh give out the address one more time get autonomy.info forward slash freedom vault and that's the uh the archive and if you want the landing page for the course it's forward slash ignite and uh sunday nights live i do grand theft world at grandtheftworld.com it's a podcast summarizing I the news of the week I forgot to mention that. And of course, I've been on there before, so hopefully my audience will be familiar with it. But if not, I hope you check it out. Okay, I think we're going to leave the conversation there for today. But uh, Richard, always, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, James, for the invite. And thank you to everyone who listened and considered and weighed what I had to say. I would like, I would like to thank James Corbett and especially Brock West. <clears throat> Brock West is... Uh, Corbett's editor for probably the past maybe 10 years. Uh, you know, Corbett writes a script. He sends it over to Brock. Brock makes it beautiful, puts it on screen. And what Brock had to work there, uh, well, let me just, I'll, I'll give you the candid insight. James is afflicted by, he still uses Skype, which works oh, for man. him. It no worked way. for him, which is fine. I mean, that's, yeah. It's fine. It works for him. Corbett Report rocks. On my end, 
it wasn't working right. And first off, when you when you log into Skype, it shows everything in reverse. So then I went into my broadcast system, reversed everything. I got on with James. He said everything's backwards. So I had to undo those changes. <laughs> but then it started sending my video just a green. It was just green. And he's like, you know, and I said, OK, so turn off the video and I'll screen capture it in the broadcast system. And then I'll send you and Brock the raw footage and Brock took the raw footage and then matched that with Corbett's footage. And there's time difference, like his uh, sure. Skype handles sound differently. So he has to match up the audio. So I told James, I won't step on your words and make it easy for Brock. But I did at the end when I said uh, mapping dreams, the reality, he got me and I, I stepped on it. So thank you to Brock for doing the, uh, the uh, extreme editing of uh, putting those two pieces together. It wasn't just like a screen capture. It was like, there's got to be editing behind there to make it look. That's a lot of work too. When you have like small little problems, especially with like words being off and the timing and the the distortion, the video angles on man. Yeah. Yeah, Kudos to him. He's been with him. They've been together for, I don't know how long, but he's done fantastic work for many, many years. Sir James. I've also hired Brock in the past. Um, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, I hired him for uh, the USS Liberty uh, interview with the the only Marine to survive oh, okay. USS Liberty. Uh, yeah, so it's so on my YouTube page. But I'll tell you what, kids, YouTube has shadow banned me so hard. I try not to like give them the credit for doing it, but they do it so well that I can't find stuff I've produced in my own YouTube dashboard by typing in the search. It won't show me but I can go out and find it online. You know what else I can't? I can't YouTube search my own productions and find them on my page, but I'll find them. They'll list it on everyone else's page. Yeah. The ultimate history lesson or uh, the future of freedom with Bill Benny. Like I cannot find the, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to even find the stuff that I have on my own YouTube page in the back end of YouTube. So they're trying to frustrate. So my point is I have a, uh, the video uh, of the USS Liberty it's about it's a couple hour interview and uh brock did the editing and he did uh, a really good job he also cut some trailers for that too but you know as soon as i released it youtube didn't want that being circulated too much done so it's out there lurking and where things go to get shadow banned it's still available but it's hard to find that's the point maybe i can find it during the next clip we'll see yeah i'll take a look for it but that's the work of brock west we'll show it off We'll get it in the show notes. I found it. Oh, Josh was. Oh, good. Nice. Thank you. He's busy fingers oh, yeah. over there on that keyboard, finding that good stuff. Uh, let's see. What that was a great conversation, to... by the way. That, that especially was... the, the part where he was talking about applying. Yeah, such oh, yeah. It's easy to talk to James. Like, <laughs> oh, no. Law. Well, you know, we're both it's such almost like men. we have too much that's unsaid. Like we we come together with knowledge and history and it's like, are we saying enough that the audience is also making the connections? Cause I get what you're saying and you get what I'm saying, but that the point is so the audience figures it out too for themselves. Right. So uh, I'm really glad that uh, his solution, his solutions watch is an excellent series and I'm glad to have something to contribute to that series. And uh, yeah, it's a three-step method to learn how to learn anything. You should treat yourself to that. At the very least you can get that in the free course at the uh, autonomy Agora marketplace.autonomyagora.com i think is the website and there's like a free trivium course there's a free logic course you can get yourself started with the basics you know and then go from there but learn how to learn anything make a goal learn what you need to do to meet the goal meet the goal feel good about that and realize school didn't give that to you you gave it to yourself you deserve it right yeah all right 
And That's like James essentially talking about like the will, like people will set goals, but then not change habits. Oh, that was really powerful. That's something you address very specifically in your course. I didn't turn my camera. You, oh, we you deal with saying. it gently over a series of weeks instead of trying to like shock people's systems. It's like, you know, just start noticing when you're making excuses to yourself in week one. And then maybe sure. by, by week two, yeah. you turn yourself down on some of those offers to make excuses. And you say, I'm actually, it's easier to do the thing than make the excuse. Yeah. Cause you're already and, in the behavior. So it's hard to like get out of the, even though you, it causes all this, the behavior causes all this pain. You're already in that sort of like as a okay. metaphor for the energy loop, right? No, but it's, it's OODA loop. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a, there's loops and you're tied up and not. So the first one of the first things I teach is like the, the importance of triaging yourself early in the like autonomy education process is because you can't learn when you're in pain and panic and fear and all these states of mind that they try to keep us in all the time, by the way. So if you can't set some of that stuff down, you're not going to be able to enjoy the fruits of learning. You're not going to be Correct. able to be present because you're going to be worried about like if the house is on fire, you're not reading, you know, Dante's Inferno. You need to get outside and, you know fight the fire for real. Otherwise you're not going to have a structure. And if you don't have a structure, you're going to be dead from the elements in sure. a series of hours. Maslow's hierarchy of needs sort of idea. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah. So go back mm. to make yourself comfortable enough that you can put yourself in a learning situation. Some people can do it at work. I mean, most of my podcast audience in the past 20 years has been people who are like driving or on a road, on a tractor, they're doing something that where they want long form content. They don't want to touch the buttons and just learn all day. And, um, that's I how think, I was early on when I first yeah. met you and got into tragedy hope. It was just like, learn nonstop. Uh, you know, it was just, that was the goal. Long form, long form content is like a magnet to attract smart people who have the mm -hmm. ability to hold attention on a subject so they can learn. I'm looking for those people since it's like a real classroom, like what a real classroom should have been. You can, can you can consume it in chunks, but the way you were able to edit and produce, especially things like Peace Revolution, were you able to like create a narrative effectively over like a long span of time. So it's like if you cut that up, you sort of lose like the larger context from you know experience and over as much as you can listen to in like one setting. If that makes sense, because it was, it was so many different clips you would play back to back that were like cut out of these other long form things that you were uh listening to productions and you know strange different clips and whatnot but um well we say things like that tony but then people think where do i jump into a podcast like that and i would say you know i start with episode one and follow the evolution but some people want to say what's the juice where do we get it i say uh hmm. episode 23 sure. how to free your mind where i teach you how to learn anything in a simple three-step method that you can learn for free at peacerevolution.org which takes you to tragedyandhope.com probably. The other episode that I think is fun for people to listen to and gives them a sense of like what the whole podcast is designed to do is the episode uh, Peace Revolution. And that title is Diamonds, the Jewel of Denial. Mm. And it's all about how diamonds are artificially created and who they created by the Anglo-American establishment, aka the West, to harness its population with illusions. <laughs> they take a worthless clear stone and make you represent love with it make you think they're equivalent it's it's a whole mind fuck of a system you're shattering my whole worldview right now you can hear edward j epstein's uh, oppenheimer you know he was embedded with the oppenheimer family in south africa as they're producing the diamonds he saw behind the scenes he wrote a book about it there's also clips in there from uh 
who's the guy who ruins everything. I think he's got a clip in there because he, he tells you in like five minutes about the Cecil Rhodes diamond story and how they, they made it all up. It wasn't a thing. They had to pay royalty to wear diamonds and put it in Hollywood and they, they juiced it all up. And it's not the only thing they've done, but it's an interesting facet. If you pardon the pun of our society. And you can learn a lot in those two piece revolution episodes. And then once you get that, you'd get the gist and you'd know why you want to listen to almost all the other episodes in that series. Yeah, I've actually a number here. Um, 23, how to free your mind, the occulted keys to wisdom. Number 24, logic works because it's rational. Mm. How to teach each other. Um, history of media and America education, and then diamonds, the jewel of denial. Those are all in the twenties, which is yeah, around the time the- we were getting into the trivium at the same time. We were really doing deep dives in the historical understanding of, yeah. Yeah. And logic works because it's rational. Logic works. It's a fantastic sort of my second job was at rational software. So there was a <laughs> built in thing with that. But mm-hmm, I didn't say link it. there. I don't think I sent it back then. Maybe I'm saying it now. Fair All right, enough. so uh, clips going forward because we got mm-hmm. a lot to cover before we get to intermission. Uh, and sure. I'm looking for diversity here, so it's not just Kim Iverson and <laughs> Jimmy Dore. <laughs> um, the clips that I had in the YouTube playlist, Tony, because mm-hmm. that might cut this list short. I want to get to the story about the, the Paul Joseph Watts one is definitely maybe worth checking out. All right, let's go PJW That's, and let's def, let's and then, then I'll go. queue up a couple of videos in the background. Yeah, I want to go to Jimmy Dore with monkeypox. Didn't come. From yeah, I got that as Wuhan well. Because the that 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 I was watching his show live when he did that, and when he's like, "Here's the headline," and then he reads the body of the article, and it does not substantiate <laughs> the headline at all. It's actually opposite. And then he's another one that, you know, torn apart. And then he reads the article and it's like, where did they tear it apart? I thought that was a really good critical analysis because your brain should be able to recognize those contradictions. A lot of people aren't recognizing those. Jimmy's brain is recognizing those. And I thought he did a good job of articulating those to the audience. So I definitely want to share that. But let's go to Paul Joseph Watson, the original owner of prisonplanet.com and .tv back in the day. I think he still owns those URLs that Alex uses uh, in his broadcast network. Let's go to... <laughs> Seriously, uh, you're right. Smart. That's, that's true. Smart it investment in real smart. estate, my friend. Let's go to PJW over there across the pond in our uh, UK office and see what he's saying over there. Summit.news. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Yeah. This continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Joe Biden, double masked, quadruple vaxxed, COVID positive. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. But don't worry, he's taking Paxlovid, the same drug that Anthony Fauci took after he caught COVID, after being quadruple vaxxed, and then caught COVID again two weeks later. 100% safe and effective. They're safe and they're highly effective. Meanwhile, here in the UK, we're subjected to the same old broken record. COVID cases rise a bit. Experts call for the reintroduction of COVID restrictions. COVID cases fall without any of those restrictions being reintroduced. Then they go quiet again. COVID cases rise a bit again. 
Experts call for the reintroduction of COVID restrictions again. Same old shite again and again and again. Rinse, wash, repeat. Are they ever just gonna let it go? No. They've created a generation of hypochondriac cult members. Look at this idiot. He posts a 13 tweet thread about his experience with this dangerous illness. Someone asks him how he caught it. His response? Pretty certain gas station restroom while my Tesla was charging and I adjusted my mask while in there. Likely forgot to hold my breath as I usually do. What? What? We laughed at people who replaced their mask after every bite to eat. You've still got weirdos out there holding their breath while they adjust it. Literally frightened of breathing without their face nappy. Pathetic. I still see people wearing masks outside in boiling hot summer temperatures. When all mask rules in the UK were dropped six months ago. They're like Japanese holdouts still fighting the war years later. London GP calls for return of face masks and says new variant is making people sicker. Really? Here's the graph of COVID deaths since the start of the pandemic. The current variant caused a brief spike in deaths which is already declining and one that is significantly lower than Omicron deaths and orders of magnitude lower than 2020 and early 2021 deaths. Why are you lying? Something definitely is making people feel sicker. Our media just hyperventilated for days over a deadly heat wave that killed a handful of people while completely ignoring 9,500 non-COVID excess deaths in the last 11 weeks alone. What's causing those deaths and why does the media refuse to even discuss it? Undoubtedly one of the primary causes is untreated illnesses caused by lockdown. Other causes? Surely not the 100% safe and effective. Lockdown has largely been discredited as having been an immensely damaging mistake. And even the establishment has largely abandoned trying to counter-signal that narrative. But the masks? They just won't let it go. With new cases and hospitalizations, forcing some cities to reconsider mask mandates. Indoor mask mandates could be making a comeback. Los Angeles preparing to reimpose mask mandates next week. Despite the fact that after December 2021, when 95% of people were found to be wearing them, COVID cases exploded. Doesn't matter. Masks are returning in California schools. The WHO wants the return of masks. Germany says they're going to bring back masks in September. Despite their government minister admitting that the COVID summer wave is, quote, already losing momentum. Doesn't matter. Bring them back anyway. But we don't even know what the rate of infection will be in September. Doesn't matter. Bring them back anyway. I mean, we all know masks work, right? Despite the UK government's own study finding otherwise, despite the Danish study finding otherwise, Despite a new study by the University of Southern California finding otherwise, there's a new study out of Japan published by Nature's Scientific Report Journal. It found that every mask bar one 99% of the face masks examined contain bacterial colonies on the inside and 94% on the outside. Ugh, disgusting. Several of the germs found on the masks can cause serious harm, including vomiting and diarrhea, bladder infections, respiratory issues. Doesn't matter, bring them back anyway. If only we had two examples of neighboring countries with similar pandemic policies, with one crucial difference, that being one country dropped virtually all its mask mandates, while the 
other country kept them strictly enforced. Then we could look at comparative COVID cases in the country that dropped mask mandates, and then contrast them with the other country that kept them in place. Then we could look at the comparative COVID deaths in the country that dropped mask mandates, and then compare them with the other country that kept them in place. What a shame that we don't have that direct comparison when judging the efficacy of face masks, even though we do. Doesn't matter. Bring them back anyway. Because it's not like it's doing any kind of damage, is it? Jacqueline Teague says during this pandemic, her speech therapy clinic has seen an enormous shift in the ages of their patients. Before the pandemic, only 5% of patients were babies and toddlers. Today, it has soared to 20%. Many parents calling it COVID delayed. We've seen a 364% increase in patient referrals of babies and toddlers from pediatricians and parents. And they are children that are having a difficult time speaking. Speech delayed. Babies start learning how to speak by reading lips as young as eight months. So what happens when lips and faces are covered up by masks? We're seeing a lot of things that look just like autism. They're not making any word attempts and not communicating at all with their family. And what's it all about? Well, Fauci himself admitted it maintaining the monopoly on authority. It's less about mandates on the plane than it is about who has the right and the authority and the capability of making public health decisions. And I believe that the Department of Justice is operating on the principle that decisions that are public health decisions belong with the public health agency, in this case, the CDC. So it's more of a matter of principle of where the authority lies. And for the enthusiastic, zealous, hypochondriac wearer, high status symboling your wannabe membership of the predator class elite. Yes, they're going to try and bring back face masks and they're already doing it. But they are going to meet far stiffer resistance. Poll out of Canada shows support for face coverings has dropped significantly. How do you feel about it? And what experience have you had on mask Karens trying to impose their hysteria on you? Let me know in the comments below. Tony, I've been scrubbing through this DARPA diffuse document because I could have sworn that they had in their experiments, aside from vampire bats and raccoon pox, I thought they were talking about also doing something with monkey pox. Unfortunately, the proposal, volume one of Project Diffuse, diffusing the threat of bat-borne coronaviruses from DARPA, uh, yep. is not text searchable. So even though I have a PDF, control F does not avail me. So I've been scrolling through this 75 page document. Uh, and I found yeah, I was just going to try to, yeah, the reference for raccoon pox is on page four and, uh, the vampire bats are on like page six. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Actually, technically it's page five to, at the top. Right. So anyway, uh, these people who experiment at the Wuhan lab vis-a-vis EcoHealth and the National Institutes of Health and uh, Infectious Allergy and Infectious Diseases and National Institutes of Health subsidiary. Um, they've been running these experiments. And when I first heard an, a claim that said, hey, you know, this, uh, this monkeypox thing is interesting because they were also experimenting on monkeypox over at the Wuhan lab built by that French company that also has the Moderna guy. And like, there were some connections there and I, I was incredulous. And I said, no, no, they weren't working on monkeypox. I'm sure that's not true. Let me start looking it up. And sure enough, it seems like they were. And now I was just thinking during that last video, I should look for that DARPA document because I'll bet in that experiment before they did it at the lab, they put it in the 
the grant proposal and the grant, you know, paperwork about that, that aspect of uh, ongoing experiments. So it's not just raccoon pox and vac vac uh, vaccinating vampire bats and these sort of things they're doing over there in that project. Um, but I wanted to check out this uh, monkey pox angle. Was there anything to it? So let's go to that Jimmy Dore clip with Dr. John Campbell, not Coleman, Campbell. And uh, I believe there's a, an abbreviated version, a clip from his live show that, that shows uh, a bunch of headlines saying, no, stupid, there's nothing to see there. Don't look at it. And yet the articles are going to tell you something very much like what I just said, actually. So let's let's check it out. Guess what's going on? Monkeypox is happening. Now, I don't know if I should do a spoiler alert, but I have Dr. John Campbell's going to come on after this. And you're not going to believe what he has to say about monkeypox. But first, I saw so I came across this TikTok, and this is a young lady who claims she has monkeypox. And it certainly looks like she has it. And she's complaining that the doctors and the CDC aren't informing the doctors on how to take care of people like her. Let's listen. It's absolutely crazy to me. And I'm going to try and do this in three minutes. Sunday morning, I woke up with an insane rash on my forehead and chest. I thought, okay, if this doesn't go away by tomorrow, I'm going to go to urgent care. I go to urgent care the very next day. They say, oh, that's MRSA. I said, okay, well, can we test it to make sure? They said, oh, yeah, if you want. They take a culture. They say it'll take three days to come back. Give me an antibiotic. But tell me to see my PCP immediately. So I see my PCP. What's a PCP? Personal. I don't know. I'll look it up. Okay, look it up. Personal care. Immediately. She yeah, says, right. oh, it's a rash. Gives me an antibiotic. So in my mind, I know that it's not just a rash. I can tell that something's wrong. So I call urgent care, and I'm just like, hey. Is there any way you can test that for monkeypox? They said, monkeypox? They said, yeah, that disease that's going around? They said, yeah, we don't do that. So I get a third opinion, see another PCP. I go in, she says, let me go get my colleague. So now I have two doctors staring at me. They both say, I have no idea what this is. You can go back to work. So I'm driving home, tell my boss I can come back to work. They call me 45 minutes later said do not go anywhere we think this is monkeypox please go see this dermatologist tomorrow so i make an appointment with that dermatologist let me also just mention at the appointment i mentioned hey do you think this is monkeypox and they said what's monkeypox so thursday comes around the day of my dermatology appointment the doctor calls me and says we're canceling your appointment we're not dealing with that and i quote call what? the cdc is what they told me I call the CDC. The CDC says, call your PCP. The lady I talked to at the CDC had no idea what she was talking about. Couldn't answer any of my questions. I have not been able to get tested anywhere. Doctors have refused to see me. And I have this mysterious and painful rash all over my face, chest, arms, back. And meanwhile, three doctors had no idea what I was talking about when I said, is this monkeypox? So if you're wondering how COVID got spread around so easily for two years, we were locked down and millions of people died. It's because the CDC has no idea what they're doing. Nobody's educated, not even doctors. And doctors will refuse to see. And doctors will refuse to see you if you have it. So I, I again, I can't vouch for the veracity of that TikTok, but it <laughs> sounds like she doesn't sound made up. Well, I mean, so, okay, 
let's say she doesn't have monkeypox. When they go, what's monkeypox? That's not a good answer. <laughs> right. So I, I, I've had a similar experience. I went to see a neurologist. I got vaccine injured. And I had wicked optic. It was called occipital neuralgia, which was the most it was super wicked. So let me just, you just touch my scalp. Ah, it was the wind blowing on my scalp would hurt. That's how bad. It sounds it like a shingles kind of pain. It, it was unbelievable. Well, you know, I and, mean, and and by me, the way, the vaccine. Oh, sorry. Go let ahead. me just finish. And so I go to, to go to this neurologist. What is it called? A neurologist. And by the way, it took me about two months just to get in a goddamn appointment. And so I finally get in with this neurologist. And he, I tell him I got injured by the vax and I got this thing in my neck, blah, 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 and it's on the side. And a lot of people are experiencing stiff necks on the side where they got the jab. And so I got the jab here, so I was getting it here. My producer was got the jab here. He was getting it here. Same thing with Steph. So I was explaining this to the doctor, and the whole time he's just sitting there shaking his head. He goes, you didn't get injured from the vax. That's what he says. He didn't know anything. I, he says, what's this Iver? Because I had listed the medicine I was taking. I go, it's Ivermectin. You never heard of Ivermectin? I go, it's on the WHO list of essential medicines. You never heard of that? He had never heard of it. He's according to him. And uh, he, he encouraged me to get my booster and that my pain was not from the vax. That was his. And he didn't know anything about anything. Oh, by the way, he, we took off our masks. He goes, are you vaccinated? I go, yes, that's why I'm here. And he said, OK, so am I. We can take our masks off. Thinking that the, va that the vaccine stopped transmission and contraction. Wait, the doctor you eventually went to. How, how, That's him. He, that that was oh. a, the, the neurologist. I went to a neurologist for this, and he didn't know how. And he didn't know how the vaccine worked. But you did go to somebody eventually that I thought helped you, or no? So I was already in a trial uh, uh, by what Doctor Yoganda was running. By the way, we're going to have him on. His paper just got published uh, for peer review, and. He was the one who had uh, had me on fluvoxamine, ivermectin, on all this all this other stuff to help treat it. They were trying to figure out what would work. And so anyway, I'm just letting you know that I had a very similar experience. I was lucky my primary care physician, that's my PCP, my primary care physician was up to date on people and the vaccines and COVID and what to do. She was on the front lines of prescribing steroids for people who were sick with COVID when they told her not to. And then a couple of months later, they all said, oh yeah, you should prescribe steroids for them. So they, so she, she didn't listen to the bullshit. She knew what to do. I was lucky to have a great primary care physician. And, uh, but I was unlucky to have such a shitty neurologist, which I'm going to guess most doctors are like that. Um, so go Jimmy, ahead. have you ever heard that, uh, and again, for context, like the vaccine is great, like nothing to take away from oh, it, but some people great. get more vulnerable to shingles right after getting the boosters and there's a monkey pox, a kind of shingles related virus. So smallpox, a lot yeah. of people have been trying to associate it with the, but of course there's no scientific studies to say so, but this is the interesting thing. This is the interesting thing. Here's Dr. John Campbell. Now, you know, we go to him for our info on COVID because he's going to give you the straight dope. He's not funded by big pharma. He's, he's just interested in medicine. And so here's what he, what, how, where, what, 
What? Hey, watch this. Well, you're most welcome to today's talk, Tuesday, the 31st of May. Now, the main thing we're looking at today is it turns out that the National Institutes of Health in the United States and the Wuhan Institute of Virology have both been working on monkeypox. Whoa! whoa! The NIH in the United States and the Wuhan Viral Institute were also working on monkeypox. And what now... Lies? And now there's a monk. Now there's a monkeypox outbreak. Kurt, what are the odds of that? I'm going to say fifty-fifty. <laughs> <laughs> you, whenever there's a new outbreak, now fifty-fifty chance it was started in a Wuhan lab funded by Dr. Fauci and the NIH. I mean, not even a different virology lab accident. The same one. The same one. I'm here. Let's here we go. Well, you're most welcome to today's talk, Tuesday, the 31st of May. Now, the main thing we're looking at today is it turns out that the National Institutes of Health in the United States and the Wuhan Institute of Virology have both been working on monkeypox, coincidentally, uh, before the outbreak that we are currently uh, experiencing. So rather strange. Now, we're not going to be talking about the involvement of the NIH in uh, SARS coronavirus 2. Uh, now, watch how he gets cheeky. So now he's going to get cheeky. Watch this. Uh, gain of possible gain of function research. We're not going to be talking about the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, and the fact that it coincidentally is only 14 miles from the wet market where the uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, allegedly started. We're not going to be talking about the World Health Organization's frankly embarrassing farcical. Uh, I don't like to use the term investigation into the origins of this virus. We're just going to stick to the facts about monkeypox, not COVID-19, not sars coronavirus 2 although you may draw some parallels. Now, let's start off by looking at so that was pretty cheeky of him. I mean, he did everything except draw a dick around it. <laughs> <laughs> and so then he goes into the how it's the severity of the outbreaks and what have you. And I didn't find any of the rest of the information that interesting. So I'm not going to talk about it. But he does do a very brief breakdown of monkeypox. So if you want to know what monkeypox is about, he does a quick breakdown of it. Do you want to see it? Here, well, I'll, put, I'll, I'll, okay. I'll do it in a speeded up speed. Go, what, you want to say something, Kurt? No, 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 I'm, I'm, I do want to see it. Okay, here it is. <laughs> the key facts relating to monkeypox. First, we're going to think about how this disease spreads, how it's transmitted. It comes from close contact with animals or humans. It originally comes from animals. The reservoir is in animals. It's a zoonotic disease. It's spread in respiratory droplets, so we breathe it out, so you can breathe it in through other people's exhaled air. It can be transmitted from the lesions, that means the spots. It can also be transmitted by close, direct skin-to-skin -skin contact, especially if there's some broken skin. It can also be transmitted in body fluids, and we know that some of the transmission at the moment occur is occurring in the male homosexual community, as uh, the mucous membranes uh, component uh, there indicates. It can also be spread through contaminated materials, bed linen, clothing, towels, anything else like that, and a fomite is a physical object, like a surface on which the virus can sit. Now, although the virus has been spreading in the homosexual, male homosexual community at the moment, it's perfectly capable of spreading anywhere. That's just where it started off. Let's now go on and look at the clinical features. Now, this information on clinical features comes from the NHS and the World Health Organization. The incubation period is six to 13 days. That's from when someone's first exposed to the virus up until the onset of clinical features. And there's a prodromal lymph adenopathy. Now, the prodrome is when someone starts feeling ill before they have any specific features, and lymph adenopathy is swelling in the lymph glands, such as may occur in the neck, uh, under the chin, in the armpits, or in the groin, the lymph adenopathy. That's prodromal, when the person just starts to feel ill. That comes on early. Then there's an acute illness with fever, more than 38.3 degrees centigrade, which is 101 degrees Fahrenheit. And of course, when you have these body temperatures. So you get fever, flu-like symptoms. You're going to get the inflamed glands and all that stuff. Okay. The person really feels quite ill. They have chills because when the body there temperature go. is going chills. up, the person feels cold. And they'll seek warmth. They'll try and put on blankets and keep warm. 
Usually there's quite a bad headache. There's muscle pain and uh, muscle aches, back pain, muscle aches. Myalgia and intenser, th this term here uh, means weakness. There is a general weakness and tiredness. Followed by one to three days later, the progressive development of a rash. Now let's look at the rash. Here we see an example of the pussy spots caused by monkeypox. They can occur on any part of the body. Here we see another picture of the characteristic rash in monkeypox in the Looks like smallpox. Where the virus is endemic in certain areas. Now this picture actually shows the progression of a single spot. So it starts with this raised area becoming more prominent here. Then it gets pussy, it fills with pus, and then after a while that will burst. Then it will dry out and then it will gradually flake off, leaving a scab and it can leave a bit of a scar. It can also be very itchy and sometimes painful, this rash. Now this is a picture of the pussy rash that you get in smallpox, which is thankfully now eradicated. But it does show how similar a presentation smallpox is to the disease we now have, which is monkeypox. And for comparison, we can see the similar pussy spots that develop in monkeypox in this picture from the World Health Organization Same website. Pussy. <laughs> now, this rash often... It sounds like he's saying pussy spots, but he's saying pussy. pussy. <laughs> he's saying pussy with a British accent. So he's not saying pussy spots. He's saying pussy spots. Thank you for the clarification. Begins on the face, but in some recent cases, the rashes began where the person was actually contaminated, where the disease was transmitted through. And this was through uh, sexual activity in some cases. But generally, it starts with the face where it's more dense, there's a lot of uh, pustular spots on the face. Spreads elsewhere in the body and to other parts of the body, and it includes the soles of the feet and the palms of the hand. And the, the person becomes symptomatic, and then the rash is one to five days after the first symptom. So they're infected, they become symptomatic, and then one to five days, typically two to three days after the rash develops, after, first start after the patient first starts feeling unwell. Uh, the rash changes and goes through different stages before finally forming a scab which later falls off, as we saw on those sequence of pictures from the NHS. It can look like chicken pox or syphilis or smallpox, as we noted. These are called pox because they are pussy spots. Thankfully, we don't have smallpox anymore, but we do sometimes get chicken pox, but this is a completely different virus from the one we're talking about now, as is syphilis, which is a bacterial infection. Thankfully, we see very little syphilis now because it's largely eradicated with effective antibiotic treatments. As we saw, it starts with raised spots forming into fluid-filled blisters, then scabs which fall off, and the lesions can be very itchy or painful. So have a high index of suspicion for these clinical features. Suspect monkeypox and contact medical advice or infectious diseases clinics as soon as you get that. The reason I'm particularly concerned about this is this disease can be passed on to children and cause severe disease in children. So know how it's transmitted, recognize it early, isolate, seek medical advice. Thank you for watching. And there you have it. Now you know everything you need to know about monkey pussypox. I don't want pussy spots. You don't want the pussy spot? Do you want the Gentlemen, it's pussy. It is a well, that's a bad pussy if it's pussy. He's British, so I go with the he's a doctor, and you're not a doctor, Steph. So he says pussy spots. <laughs> he says it. That's right. Are you a doctor? I'm not a doctor. Uh I'm a lame mistake. <laughs> so there you go. It seems like nobody knows anything about the monkeypox uh at the CDC or at your or your PCP, which is your primary care physician. Uh, good luck. Good luck out there. By the way, don't do your own research. So there are a lot of people who would tell you, don't do your own research on monkeypox. They would tell you, don't look into it. Literally. that you're, They say that to the doctors, apparently? <laughs> uh, apparently they said that to the doctors, too. <laughs> Sacramento, back here in Los Angeles. Make sure I'm fully off mute. I had not seen that clip yet, but very interesting clip by Jimmy Dore this week. I had not known or heard. I've heard some murmurings that it's possible. There could be some slight connection. I heard at least in regards to like the PCR test. I know there's a connection there. Wuhan Institute developed uh, essentially the unique genetic sequence for the PCR to be used for monkeypox, but uh, have maybe done actual work there. That's more fascinating. So, a pox be upon them.
All right. So why do we play that clip? Do we play that clip to try to scare you? Absolutely not. It seemed like the primary care physicians, the CDC, the WHO are scaring people about that thing and not even telling you what the symptoms are, or what to watch out for. I also have some information that said uh, in an earlier report today that the presentation of the, the, what they're calling monkeypox has a different presentation of symptoms than what's in the texts and what doctors are looking for as far as so uh we can get to that oh, interesting clip. okay I didn't know but that. my my point is this the world health organization tedros has declared a global health emergency over the monkeypox they're going to try to make it a thing so the more we can learn about they them those that are trying to do these things the better we can protect ourselves and our families right um it doesn't look like uh, a lethal you know, like Ebola type thing. It looks something uh, that's treatable and um, is inoculated by a smallpox vaccine. That's how they would fix it. So they're not going to come out with a monkeypox vaccine, though I wouldn't put it past them because uh, I've researched this for the past couple of weeks since we did the episode a couple months ago, monkeypox madness, when they started blipping this out on the screen, right? So you can go back to our May episode. Let's not forget about vaccine modernization. So sure. like, yeah. why not pump out a new MRNA? Barta, Rick from Barta, our, our friend Rick from Darpa's <laughs> Barta. Um, so the who's declaring this a, a medical emergency? Tedros came out, made that statement. We can play a clip on that later tonight. Mm -hmm. But also, um, I did find a couple references and it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be a tiny bit disturbing, but these are, this is the facts of the matter. So let's go to this first document. Because it's all about evidence and primary sources, right, kids? This is an unclassified document. It's brought to us by the folks at uh, Project Veritas. Uh, no, I'm going to have to restart that camera. Hold on. Hold on. Hold it. Hold it. There we go. All right. Unclassified. This is the title of the document. Is, uh, it's from Murphy Joseph P. Major, U.S. Marine Corps DARPA. And he had written this document that Project Veritas then released. And in uh, page, there's no page numbers on the document, but several pages in here. This is talking about EcoHealth and Project Preempt, which is the EcoHealth Alliance project uh, diffuse that they were submitting. And this is the DARPA whistleblower in his summary letter. And then I will take you to the source document for this claim because I didn't believe it. So I had to go read a 75 page document once upon a time. And anyway, preempt volume one. Uh, there's an ESS number, EcoHealth Alliance, Project Diffuse. Let me see if it's on screen. Another description used, quote, this is EcoHealth talking. We will develop recombinant chimera spike proteins from known SARS coves and those characterized by diffuse, that's a DARPA project, using details of SARS-S protein structure and host cell binding, we will sequence, reconstruct, and characterize spike trimmers and RBDs of SARS-CoV, incorporate them into nanoparticles or raccoon pox virus vectors for delivery to bats. And as I argue in these documents, replace bats with people and you have what the pandemic was because they were trying to give an aerosolized vaccine to bats. That's what their document wants to do. <laughs> Using chimeric recombinant processes okay, with, so that's, with uh, uh, ra raccoon pox or whatever. Right, so that's, that's this document. It's absurd. I mean, yeah. It's, it's this big. It's an interesting document. It's, a pro it's available at Project Veritas. Now, this is 
the proposal. This is volume one. Here's the DARPA preempt. Here's the lead organization, EcoHealth Alliance. And when you get in here, here's Peter Daszak. Here's EcoHealth. Here's Wuhan on the cover page. Wuhan, China. Chapel Hill, North Carolina. New York, New York, right? Uh, this is pre-pandemic. This is 2018. This is the proposal for what they were trying to do at the Wuhan lab that everyone has questions about. I'm just going to take you to the hot spots that involve the pox. Let's see. Not that page. That's just a smoking gun of the matter. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> page 28. I'm reading from page 28. This is Project Diffuse. This is the EcoHealth uh, submission. And it talks about uh, deliverables of task eight. Okay. Deliverables of task eight. Chimeric SARS-CoV immunogens and pox virus vectored immune boosting molecules available for use. I bet those molecules are nanoparticles, yep. you know, because that's what they said in the other document. Yeah. Vector um, immune, immune boosting. In this so, task eight, they're also going to do a proof of concept for targeted immune boosting approach in humanized mice and captive bats. So I, well, I, I which happened to be what was pox. housed at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So. It's all coincidence, Tony. So and, and notice they said pox generally too. They're not specifying a specific. So it seems like they have many different types of then pox they can work with. Here we are. Let me zoom back out. Hmm. Project diffuse. I'm trying page to bring 30, up the PDF. Page thirty six. If you're going through my notes, you see pox, pox. So we better zoom in there, right, Tony? Now, what is this? Zoom this is zoom. a list of this is a list of reference papers that you're they're using to bring forth their proposal to be like, hey, what we want to do is possible because of all these. So let's go into the nerdiness of it. Oh my goodness, what is a spike Raccoon protein pox. nanoparticles? Nanoparticles protect mice from MERS. Okay, nanoparticles, raccoon pox virus. What is nanoparticles being the raccoon nano delivery? rabies vaccine oh raccoon pox sorry raccoon pox vectored rabies mm -hmm. vaccine uh and there's a couple more in here too so let's not just stop at the pox right there let's back there using raccoon pox vectored rabies raccoon, so they're using monkeys, raccoon, the they're using like a, they're using raccoon pox which i guess isn't virulent supposedly here's number four as, page, as a sorry go ahead. page 42 we got some more pox uh, apparent field safety of a raccoon pox vectored plague vaccine in free ranging prairie dogs. Oh, they're doing that on prairie dogs, are they? They got the raccoon pox vaccine out there going nice on. Then. And then uh, this is a, an oldie but goodie. This is from 2016. This is the end of that document, by the way. Their submission included articles they wrote. So I read one of these articles at the end. This is like, you know, in the 75 page document, this is the end of the document. This guy, Ralph Barrick, who created the no -seum technique at University of North Carolina is being used as an example of how they can splice these things to do. Um, Wuhan Institute of Virology is referenced. SARS vaccine didn't work. They're talking ACE about that. Two, ACE2, two, yeah, oh, SARS-CoV, yeah, Wuhan Institute. Let's see. Chimeric viruses, vaccines don't work. ACE2, humanizing mice, monoclonal antibodies, ACE2. Oh, they can infect humans if they if they humanize the mice is what they found out right here. This is uh this is interesting, right? Because it's the WIV1. That's a Wuhan Institute of Virology one viruses had significant attenuation, even with the presence of human ACE2 in the mouse model. Together, the data suggests that despite using ACE2 and robust replication in primary human airway epithelial cultures, 
Wuhan Institute of Virus One Cove likely maintains deficits that impact pathogenesis in mice. Therefore, Wuhan Institute of Vi Virology One medicated infection may have diminished epidemic potential in humans relative to SARS-CoV-2. You know what that meant, Tony? They had to go to Wuhan Institute of Virology Two because this didn't do the thing they wanted to do, right? It didn't. It diminished epidemic potential. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking to create epidemic potential mm -hmm. in these documents. So it's a, it's an interesting, you know, trail that when you go to try to find, are they talking about pox? Yep, they're talking about pox. Are they talking about monkeypox? I haven't seen the paperwork yet that Wuhan yeah. Institute of Virology was working on the monkeypox, but there's lots of claims either. out there. I'm just saying they're working on raccoon pox all over these. Uh, the only the only thing you can attribute to the Wuhan Institute of Virology right now with monkeypox is just coming up with like part of the genetic sequence for production for the PCR for the testing for monkeypox. That's it that I'm aware of, but not like not researching monkeypox itself. Sorry, I didn't turn my camera on. But yeah. Anyway, I'm sure it's all just coincidences. Let's see. There's any pox over here. Just real quick. Pox, pox. Now, this is all how they did the other thing. Right. But yeah, documents are interesting when you read them like this. But on with this show, on with the show, we can't look at, you know, DARPA documents. Can't all look at, you can't know about reality, Rich. Can't look at, you know, know about the types yeah. of proposals that are out there. Don't look at DARPA whistleblowers from the U.S. Marine Corps. Definitely don't read those letters. You know, these are proposed to DARPA. I'm sure it's they not newsworthy. All that stuff it's it's the save bats. Bat no aerosolized vaccine. This is Chimeric not, processes. It wasn't an advertisement for William Dalrymple's The Company Quartet set of books. I just had this over here holding up the stack of documents that goes on top of this. That's how it works like that. All right. So mm -hmm. I would like to go to... Uh, Matt Walsh did a show a couple of days ago yep. and he talked about big pharma lying to people. And I thought that might be in line with uh, what we're talking about right now. Cause there's people out there. They're not wishing you well. Like we wished former vice president Biden. We wished him well. They're not wishing you well out there. And I thought he did a good, a good description. And I'm coming at this as try, you know, I'm a, not a believer in uh, the the whole thing that's being talked about in the first place. So I'm just trying to look at it as an objective observer. Is it making it out to general population? Are they figuring this out? Uh, this new news about the drug companies not being your best friend, not maybe helping you with your depression, trying to make you a lifelong customer of their anti-depression pills that cause suicide. Or as Alex Jones once called them, mass murder suicide pills. A lot of those, a lot of those shooters seem to be on that situation. So anyway, in fact, gave me uh, gave Tony enough time to find the Matt Walsh clip. No, oh, yeah, I think it's the first story no, he covers, yeah. and actually the second story he covers some Biden stuff too. That's that might not be bad to play too. So let's go for a couple minutes of Matt Walsh over there at the the Daily Wire. They're making content these days. If you've been uh, listening to the show for a while, you know that I have been a longtime skeptic of the pharmaceutical industry. Now, of course. Pretty much everyone claims to be a skeptic of the pharmaceutical industry. People on the left are predisposed, uh, you would think anyway, to hate big pharma because it's a multi-billion dollar industry, uh, which you can put the word big in front of, and that means that it's evil. Many people on the right have become even more critical of big pharma uh, in the last few years, especially because of how it has pushed the COVID vaccines. They pushed that now, by the way, as of a few weeks ago, 
officially includes children as young as six months old. So if you want to bring your baby in for a COVID vaccine, you can now do that, though I certainly wouldn't recommend it. And yet, a large preponderance of both groups, even while usually assuming a kind of skeptical posture towards this industry, will let Big Pharma entirely off the hook when it comes to psychiatric drugs. As of 2021, nearly 65 million Americans had been prescribed at least one psychiatric drug. Think about that for a second. 65 million Americans. Just five years before that, the number was 40 million. 40 million was already sky high. In five years, it's gone up over 20 million. 20% of the country is on medication for mental illness, and that number is climbing by multiple percentage points every year. Meanwhile, our, our health authorities, our so-called health authorities, tell us that, that the real crisis is untreated, read, non-drugged, unprescribed mental illness. So they see the 65 million Americans on psychotropic drugs for mental illness, and they insist that the number is far too low. We actually need to get it much higher. Should be 100 million, should be 150, it should be everybody. They, and I'm not joking about that either because the DSM expands, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders expands with each new edition until every single human emotion, personality trait, uh, proclivity, impulse has become a mental illness. And we're already at the point with the latest DSM where you can open it up and find probably at least five or 10 mental illnesses that would apply to you. So they the health establishment, the medical establishment, they demand that, uh, that more and more mentally ill, quote-unquote, people, most of them suffering from things like depression or anxiety or ADHD, be identified and drugged immediately. Never mind the significant and often dangerous side effects of these drugs. Never mind that we're altering people's brains en masse. Never mind that we're diagnosing conditions that we barely understand and drugging them based on poorly supported and sometimes demonstrably false medical theories. Never mind all that. Just keep the drugs, and most importantly, the money flowing. This is what Big Pharma, along with uh, doctors and psychiatrists, have been doing. And many people on both the left and right, who are normally quite eager to criticize the medical establishment, fall silent, as that same medical establishment declares millions upon millions of Americans mentally ill, so mentally ill that they need psychotropic drugs in order to function. On this point, many of uh, Big Pharma critics are willing to simply take Big Pharma's word for it. Well, they say we're all mentally ill, so I guess we are. They might lie about everything else, these uh, selective critics will say, but they would never lie about the best treatment for depression. Oh, they would never lie about that. Quite an odd claim when you think about it. And on the subject of depression, uh, the, quote, mental illness that accounts for a large portion of that 65 million figure, it's been taken as gospel for many years that drugs are necessary to treat it because the condition is caused by a, quote, unquote, chemical imbalance in the brain. This is an idea that people have absorbed from the culture and especially from propaganda from the drug companies. You know, it's not, it didn't, it, it, this didn't end up out there by accident. That's what the drug companies want you to believe. It's a chemical imbalance, so we'll give you a little chemical and a pill and we'll fix it right up for you. And it's a doctrine that is jealously guarded and defended. I know from experience that if you question it, if you dare suggest that maybe there's more to it than a chemical imbalance, you will be viciously attacked for your heresy. People like the chemical imbalance idea because it seems simple. 
and because it uh, totally absolves the individual from the responsibility to do anything to help solve their own mental troubles. It, it takes things like, you know, lifestyle, diet, et cetera, takes that out of the equation entirely. It gives a simple cause, promises a simple solution, and one that requires almost no work on the part of the individual. Just take the pill. That's it. Take the pill and everything will be better. That's Big Pharma's motto. Take the pill, take the shot, everything will be fine. You solve your depression with a magic pill. Big Pharma makes billions. Win-win for everybody, right? Well, wrong. The problem with the chemical imbalance idea, the one that has led to millions of people being put on psychiatric drugs, the one that has put billions and billions, hundreds of billions into the pockets of Big Pharma, the problem with that idea is that there was never any evidence to support it. It's a marketing slogan. It's not a medical diagnosis. And a study that was just released this week, this is a truly, I don't use this phrase very often in a non-ironic way, but it is a bombshell study. Reported by The Guardian, finally blows the lid off of the whole scam. Here's the headline. Little evidence that chemical imbalance causes depression, UCL scientists find. Reading now from the study, it says, scientists have called into question the widespread use of antidepressants after a major review found no clear evidence that low serotonin levels are responsible for depression. Prescriptions for antidepressants have risen dramatically since the 1990s, with one in six adults and 2% of teenagers in England now being prescribed them. Millions more people around the world regularly use antidepressants. Quote, many people take antidepressants because they've been led to believe their depression has a biochemical cause but this new research suggests that this belief is not grounded in evidence. This according to the study's lead author, Joanne Moncrief, a professor of psychiatry at University College London and consultant psychiatrist at Northeast London NHS Foundation Trust. Quote, it is always difficult to prove a negative, but I think we can safely say that after a vast amount of research conducted over several decades, there is no convincing evidence that depression is caused by serotonin abnormalities, particularly by lower levels or reduced activity of serotonin. Thousands of people suffer from side effects of antidepressants, including the severe withdrawal effects that can occur when people try to stop them, stop, stop taking them, yet prescription rates continue to rise. We believe this situation has been driven partly by the false belief that depression is due to a chemical imbalance. It is high time to inform the public that this belief is not grounded in science. So it would seem that Big Pharma has made billions of dollars fixing a problem that does not exist. Depression certainly exists, don't get me wrong, but depression caused by a chemical imbalance is a myth. And it is a mythical creation that the antidepressants are meant to fix. It's something the pharmaceutical companies have made up, a problem they made up, and then gave us the cure for. Reading more from this report, which is uh, just more and more damning for the pharmaceutical industry as you go along, it says, in the new analysis, researchers said 85 to 90% of the public believes Depression is caused by low serotonin or a chemical imbalance. Most anti antidepressants are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, originally said to work by correct correcting abnormally low serotonin levels. The review published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry looked at studies examining serotonin and depression involving tens of thousands of people. One of the findings was that research comparing levels of serotonin and its breakdown products in the blood or brain fluids did not discover any difference between people diagnosed with depression and healthy people. The authors also looked at studies where serotonin levels were artificially lowered in hundreds of people and concluded that lowering serotonin in this way did not produce depression in hundreds of healthy volunteers. Other studies looked at the effects of stressful life events and found that the more stressful life events a person has experienced, the more likely they were to be depressed, showing the importance of external events. Who would have thought?
Apparently, external events, you know, the things that happen to us in our lives, the events that we're a part of, the things that we suffer from, the things that we encounter, like all of that, your everyday life, these have a deep and lasting effect on our moods and our emotions and our mental states. Now, of course, even with this study, or rather without this study, debunking the chemical imbalance theory, which was never really a theory, actually, but more of an unproven and arbitrary guess. But before the study was, was even published, it was already obvious that the chemical imbalance idea made no sense. For one thing, in order to diagnose an imbalance, we must first have some idea of what the correct balance is supposed to be. And yet none, I would wager to say, none of the 90% of the public who believes in the chemical imbalance can articulately explain what sort of balance we're supposed to have in our brains. Oh, there's a chemical imbalance. Oh, really? Well, what, so what's the, what's, what, what is our balance supposed to be exactly? What's like the ideal balance? Well, I don't know. It's just, I just know that it's imbalanced. And even if we did know what sort of balance we're supposed to have, how exactly do they diagnose the imbalance? I mean, do they diagnose it at all? Out of all the millions of people prescribed antidepressants, were any of them given a brain scan or a blood test or any other sort of physical medical test to confirm that this imbalance existed before it was treated? Like these are drugs that are supposed to treat a physical problem. Did they ever do anything to confirm the existence of the physical problem inside the individual before giving them the drugs for it? No, never. Well, that's odd. If depression is simply biochemical in origin, then why isn't it diagnosed on a biochemical basis? If it's a simple physical ailment, why isn't it confirmed physically before being treated as if it's simply physical? These are the kinds of questions we could have been asking all along, but hardly anyone ever did. I want to read one last part of this report because it's important. It says, according to the research, uh, there is also evidence from other studies that antidepressants may actually induce, induce low serotonin in the long term. It may actually create the problem it's supposed to fix. Quote, our view is that patients should not be told that depression is caused by low serotonin or by a chemical imbalance, and they should not be led to believe that antidepressants work by targeting these unproven abnormalities. Quote, we do not understand, uh, we do not understand what antidepressants are doing to the brain exactly, and giving people this sort of misinformation prevents them from making an informed decision about whether to take antidepressants or not. They don't understand exactly what these drugs are doing to the body but they prescribe them anyway. That's another thing that I've been saying for years. People giving these drugs out don't actually know exactly what they do because the brain, the human brain is a complicated place. You know, putting people on drugs, putting things into people's bodies without really knowing what's, what it's going to do. There seems to be a lot of that sort of thing going around these days. A lot of it. And this sort of half blind approach is particularly terrifying as it relates to the brain. Because the, the brain, again, is still a mystery to us in many ways. And yet drug companies are tinkering with it, messing with our minds without really knowing whether what they're doing will work or, or how it's working, if it does work, or what the long-term or even short-term effects will be. One of the side effects of, of many psychiatric drugs is suicidal thoughts, which is morbidly ironic because, again, that's the problem that they're supposed to help treat. And yet they can cause that problem, apparently. So... These are drugs which, according to the companies that produce them, may cause you to think certain thoughts. They may put thoughts into your head. Self-destructive, dangerous thoughts. That fact alone should give us pause. Now, does this mean that there is no physical aspect to depression? Of course not. I mean, we're physical beings. Our brains are physical. 
there's going to be a significant physical element to the problem. I mean, to any problem that we suffer from, including mental problems by definition, but it's also multifaceted and complicated. Depression is a feeling of emptiness, despair, hopelessness, meaninglessness. If a person is feeling that way, it's almost always impossible to discern, to discern one simple cause. That's what the drug companies sell. One simple cause, but it's never that simple. There are internal and external factors, all tracing back to the universal human condition. The fact that we are mortal beings living in a world of constant pain and suffering and death and misery with lots of aimlessness and boredom in between. You know, the depressed person is, is not crazy or sick because they recognize this fact about life. In fact, here's, here's, the, here's the, uh, the, the point that we always miss in this discussion. There are a lot, actually, of very good reasons to feel pretty bad living as just a human being in the world. The world could be a really tough place. Doesn't mean that we should feel bad. Doesn't mean that if someone does feel bad, we should just leave them to their misery. But the point is that these feelings are not crazy. They're not delusional. There's, there's, there, there are reasons for them. And person who's, person who's overcome with these feelings, their problem is, is, um, is that they are not able to sufficiently cope with our condition as human beings in this world. They're not able to find meaning and hope and joy in spite of all the terrible things that come with being a human being in the world. The way to treat the depression is to help them cope, which will involve everything from better lifestyle choices to diet and exercise, getting outside on a sunny day and taking a walk, like things like that, even really, really simple things. It's not the be all and end all, but things like that. In some cases, there may still be need for, for drugs temporarily, but they're going to be a band-aid, not a cure. You can't cure despair with a pill, despite what the drug companies have told us. And the drug companies have told us a lot of lies. They have, especially recently. And it's quite a statement, but this might be the biggest one yet. Well, if you enjoyed that video, be sure to hit the subscribe. Be sure to hit subscribe, and I think it's what he was about to say. All right, so um, what I thought about... Video. Oh, what's that? I was going to say, I appreciate it. That was a good video. Am oh, yeah, too for low sure. Now? So um, okay. the pharmaceutical companies feeding people these pellets and telling them, hey, this is going to make you better, but it just makes them a subscriber of those pellets, right? We've seen it before in history. Um, I was just looking at clips from our... 2013 documentary that I co-wrote with Kevin Cole called State of Mind, The Psychology of Control. I have a clip. I can show mm -hmm. it to you in a second, but my point was going to be there's, for those of you who are trying to talk to the normies in your life, right? Just make a film recommendation, a Hollywood film with uh, Christian Bale. It's called Equilibrium. It's about oh, it's yeah. early 2000s. I saw that movie. a long time ago. Yep. Yeah, like 2004 flick. Yep. It's a sci-fi dystopian movie that most people would find palatable. There's a future society. It's like Brave New World-ish. And instead of Soma, uh, everyone's taken uh, the it's Brave New World with like um, a Matrix style sort of like yeah. backdrop. It's, if you will. They have mind Setting. control through having the public on pellets is the mm -hmm. gist. Yeah. And then Christian Bale stops taking his pellets. Well, it stops. What's it? What does it do? What 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 do those what pellets, the pellets do? do? What do the pellets do? So you have to watch the movie to find out. But then once people have that historical kind of cinema Hollywood context of they've put this idea out there a long time ago, 
and then you juxtapose it to what's going on today, it's a little easier for them to see, but it's also easier if I pass Tony this link. So I went to uh, tragedyandhope.com and uh, I searched and I found, but the embed is missing because we had just transferred over the website like a couple months ago. So I'm going to give it to Tony right here in Grand Theft World chat right here in a production. Boom, boom. Oh, there you go. And those then pellets, I, find, I mean, I want to, man, I want to give that away. Those pellets, that is man, a good question it. because the, what the pellets do is really fascinating. It says a it lot is. about what's happening with, the with what's things. going on in the world today, right? What you treat it as thought? an analogy. Yeah. Sorry, you, you regain your humanness. In other words, the pellets are taking away a key element of humanness that people very much need to conquer and survive, conquer their challenges. And it creates a perfect society, Rich. It's not a perfect society. I get your sarcasm there. All right. So I was looking for the part in this film that was on uh, the drug companies. There's so many good parts here. Here's. Yeah, let me go through it. Is there a specific one you can. Well, I'm looking right here at like one hour 23 in that presentation talks about the psi war aspect and the mm-hmm. pharmaceuticals. Cause it's the guy from the American psychological association who's in here. Uh, it'd be one of the best guys. These other parts, Colin Ross, he's talking about. Oh, you have Colin Ross in here? For, yeah, okay. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm scrolling across the screen. As it looks like I'm looking at the camera, I'm actually, there's a, a browser up and I can scrub through the I'm footage. I'm scrolling here. as well. I just don't know. Yeah, so what? if you go to one hour, was it one hour, yep, 19 123, Go to Colonel Schaefer. He's got something smart yeah. to say on this aspect and we'll go into the pharma companies and the psychological uh, pharma aspect of uh, drugging people and making them comply. 30. See if I can get John D. Rockefeller to represent. Let me know if I need to skip around. And was one of the earliest members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Moreover, in the 1930s, Ivy Lee was a consultant to Adolf Hitler. All right, that's about the marketing aspect. So go ahead and skip ahead. To improve Germany's image in the United States and abroad. How does one defend themselves against strategic information, propaganda? It's a very simple answer. Ask questions. Always check your source. Uh, I, as a public figure, uh, am often having to speak publicly about issues and information. I look at everything. Uh, I've been criticized by my friends. Oh my God, you look at Fox News, you look at CNN. Absolutely because the false information being provided to the main, mainstream outlets means something. So why are they saying things a certain way? How are the habits of individuals changed and then reinforced to create new behaviors preferable to the collective? In the 21st century, the method has evolved little from millennia ago. Only the technology has changed. Today's television provides those who leverage public airwaves with an opportunity to control individuals far beyond the simple linguistic programming of radio. The major point of television is is the commercial. The programming right, fast is forward to the guy in the restaurant. Keep people hanging in there long enough to watch a uh, commercial so and that they're in a more right, yeah, he's the next guy up. Yeah, it looks like he's the next guy up. Buy into yeah, the goofy right. silly um that takes place. This guy? To make yeah, it really tell. simple, it yeah. comes down to this. Research shows us that the average person, when placed in front of a television set in less than three minutes, will go into alpha. Hypnosis is, for all intent and purposes, objectified by brainwave activity. 
If I'm looking at your brain waves and EEG, in normal consciousness, you're operating at what we think of as beta. So you're going to be 15 to 30 cycles per second. 30 is on the stress side, but that's typically where you're going to fall. In alpha, you're going to be 7 to 14 cycles per second, 8 to 14 cycles, depending on the scale. Now, alpha consciousness, for all intent and purposes, is, is a state of hyper-suggestibility. And it keeps people sedated. You know, they use them in prison. Televisions are used in prisons. They're cheaper than hiring more guards. Um, of course, people are going to be then told that it's okay not to just have one television, but to have three, four televisions in a house and to be not watching it just on a normal television set, but on their phone and on their laptop. And you want to normalize this kind of crazy thing of people spending five, six, seven hours a day watching television. Television has been the ultimate tool of mind control. And for more than 60 years, children are set in front of it as a babysitter while they are bombarded with images of violence and decadence and corruption. And what it does is it just acclimates the child that when they see a real person dying on the street, they don't go over and aid them. We see this happening because, oh, that's entertainment. In fact, people now have been recorded laughing at someone hurt because it's just more entertainment. They've had their basic empathy disconnected, cut off. The role of advertising has certainly evolved away from one of utilitarian necessity in communicating the form, function, and value of a product. The application of the behavioral and psychological sciences has played a seminal role in the way corporations now sell products to consumers in American society and internationally. In 1921, after leaving Johns Hopkins University, John B. Watson, the founder of behaviorism, took a job with the J. Walter Thompson Company, and by 1928, he was vice president of the entire firm. Watson introduced new market research techniques into advertising and discovered that sales could be influenced by manipulating images associated with brand names. Bad For instance, bullet. blindfolded smokers could not tell the difference All right, so my issue as uh, a co-writer and editor uh, of the, the raw footage of that film, I'm remembering how many pieces of interview footage there were talking about the pharmacological drugging of America and the guy from the APA, the American Psychological or Psychiatric Association, talking about these things. But I also have to remember that that 40 hours was cut down into a 90-minute documentary and a lot of that didn't make the final cut. So I do have a five or six hour writer's cut that Kevin and I put together when we made the film. And uh, it's probably in there so I can hunt that out. But the, the points that were being made there are very similar to what the pharma companies were doing with uh, peddling those SSRIs. It was just using the television and other forms of advanced marketing that don't have to do with form and function. Right. They have to do more with hypnosis and getting people to subconsciously Freudian kind of manipulation of your subconscious types of things. Right. Shenanigans is what they were doing. So whether it's internal to your biology or it's, you know, internal to your psychology, they've been messing with the public for a long time. Bernays oh, and Ivy Lee time. and, you know, J. You know, Walter Thompson and company, they've been, they've been at it since your grandparents were born. This is not new. It's just news to you. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I had a bunch of references that I remember I had gotten ready 
when I was doing uh, interviewing Maddie, and I think I'd bred on that night as well. In regards to Watson, so you just mentioned Watson, Watson and behaviorism. The baby and, Albert experiment. Yeah, baby Albert. Yeah, yeah. How messed yeah. up that is. It also like the the mother of baby Albert. There's a couple like follow up experiments that were done as well, um, but much of it was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. I'm just looking like I don't have a book camp, but I'm looking at Rebecca Lemon. Yeah, I got that book right here. Yeah. World is laboratory. And so I was trying to look up all the references because I was drawing parallels to. Can you look up monkeypox in that book since you got it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm I mean, just saying, world as <laughs> laboratory. What's that? But the the whole book's about governments experimenting. It does a good job of documenting the money on the population on, on, on the unwitting population. All right, the money, and then the like the gruesomeness of the experiments. First, you get the money, then you get the power. Monkeypox. No, that's law. I'm joking. Yeah. No. Yeah, it was. There's uh, like ten references. There, by the reference. way, yeah, it's just it was getting too deep right there with the references. We should go Carlito's way and go over here. And uh, <laughs> Not, well, yeah. he, there was also mention of the scientific method about that chemical imbalance <sighs> type thing. Oh sure, yeah. So I picked a little been... seesaw. And on one side is your chemical imbalance. And over here, they put some pills, some little pellets, and it like balances you out. But Matt had some good questions and good answers uh, that are not good for like the, the pharma industry. But it's like, if you ask the question, are they using the scientific method? Remember, we had the V50 lectures from Galambos at the beginning of this podcast. And there was a scientific method plus Occam's razor. And you could use that to find some truth. Are they using science in that claim? They're chemical imbalance. That sounds like something Seems that can like be measured. Seems like the science is contrived. Wait, there was Seems no like problem. Seems like the science didn't need the to problem. be there because they were dealing with people who didn't need science to make conclusions or judgments or <gasps> reasoning in the first place. So they use like science to create problems. Just take like, kind of don't exist. It sounds like just, you know, descriptively contrived idealisms well, of people who either believe in it and support that science or those who found it that want to believe maybe well i believe in, in placebos i i understand how you know placebo effect right and if mm -hmm. you're an adult and you're an informed adult and you want to take a pellet that makes you feel better go go for it my understanding it's not is much better than placebo even from their they've been pushing these studies, pellets which is on hilarious. the kids just like they're yeah. pushing these jabs on the kids the people Correct. who aren't having informed consent parents who don't understand have never adulted and got past their extended adolescence in the first place to learn something for themselves that the tony fauci didn't tell them 10 times there's a problem out there and you're you know 20 percent of people being on the psychotropic psychotic anti-psychotic inducing drugs right? The anti-suicide pills that make you commit suicide, those types of things, right? Mm -hmm. People have depression, they get on the, pills, the black box warning, whoop, 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 whoop. No, you know, not yeah. much better than placebo by their own studies. Right. So that's why they got the I'm, black box. So that's I'm a, for that's also alongside the having suicide. teachers say the kids unruly and now they're, you know, schools have policies of putting kids on these and pharma companies have deals. That's with been going schools. on for it's decades been going on now. for a long time. Yeah, you know, I've interviewed uh, people. That's who have Brett's been whole on the journey. That's the start from that. Kids out of those situations too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a that's thing. True. That's a good point. So if you're an adult, do what you want to do. Just don't hurt anybody else. That's also with Galambos's uh, volitional fifty. What's the definition of freedom? It's what you can do without taking away anyone else's rights. That's pretty much it. It's pretty much just these people. They are taking away our rights. The World Economic Forum, the Club of Rome, 
all these proponents of build back better, which was not a Biden saying he's that much of a puppet. But Rich, the Those model words says of internationality flow through his mouth so freely. But Rich, they have a model. Didn't you see Jay Forrester earlier? Didn't you see all those neat little diagrams like with the Jay Forrester circles, little future. bubbles and like there's the, yeah. the lines going back and forth to show like where the energy's gone. I mean, that must mean something, right? Like if someone writes something in a book, they saw like, I don't know, aliens on the side of the road and mm. provided no evidence for it. Mm. Or they provided evidence, but all the evidence is a little bit shady. You can be a little shady. You look at it and it's like, mm, looks a little bit like tinfoil to me. You know Empty what I'm saying? Uh, can become uh, religions mm-hmm. next on Grand Theft World. All right. So, uh, what are the other clips? Uh, did we let's play Tedros in the Who uh, announcing what they like to do? Try to scare me. Tedros in the Who. But I think this time they might have stepped in the poo. We'll see. There's a lot to do. Paul Tony. Uh, is this in the playlist? Right? No. Possibly. Uh, there's several people who covered Tedros okay. turning on that. the who the world health organization, which is who, who funds the who it's Bill Gates and tax dollars from me and you hmm. rhyming at one 17 in the morning is all I can do. I don't, if I rhyme anymore, I don't see that I'm on your playlist blue. either. So I'm going to see if I can find it. Can we That's please, not something can I we saw please this play Tedros and the Who. <laughs> Here's what I have to say about Tedros and this monkeypox clip that we're looking for. If they can make you believe absurdities, they could probably make you commit atrocities. And that's what people in fear who don't have a plan of action and don't have goals. That's what they do. They they commit atrocities. Cambodia, Pol Pot, Pol Pot. The elimination of people with glasses that happened in that genocide happened in my lifetime. These are not ancient ideas we're talking about. You know, there's a lot of political actions that have been used around the world to subjugate people. And now those techniques are being turned on the very people who helped to fund it in the first place. America's wealth has been used by the uh, Anglo-American establishment to conquer the world in their name while giving us the bad rap and the bill for it. So let's see. Do we find a Tedros clip? Yep, we got it. Sweet. Thank you, by the way, Joshua. I cannot. Thanks, Joshua. You can also play that uh, Brock West clip example of his editing extraordinaire. If we have time after this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tedros got hired by Bill Gates after he killed his own people in cholera outbreak. Covered it up. He covered it up. Yep. That's how he was That's qualified. Right. You got to cover up like a subsection yeah. of a, what of a, it was a political party that yeah. was not affiliated with his specific. He covered that up, and Bill said, Democrat. "You need to be in charge of the who." Let's let's see what Tedros says. I reconvened the committee on Thursday of this week to review the latest data and advise me accordingly. I thank the committee for its careful consideration of the evidence and issues. On this occasion, the committee was unable to reach a consensus on whether the outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. WHO's assessment is that the risk of monkeypox is moderate globally 
and in all regions except in the European region where we assess the risk is high. There is also a clear risk of further international spread, although the risk of interference with international traffic remains low for the moment. So in short, we have an outbreak that has spread around the world rapidly through new modes of transmission about which we understand too little and which meets the criteria in the international health regulations. For all of these reasons, I have decided that the global monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. I know this has not been an easy or straightforward process and that there are divergent views among the members. The international health regulations remains a vital tool for responding to the international spread of disease. But this process demonstrates once again that this vital tool needs to be sharpened to meet it, to meet it more, to make it more effective. Although I'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern, for the moment, this is an outbreak that's concentrated among men who have sex with men, especially those with multiple sexual partners. That means that this is an outbreak that can be stopped with the right strategies in the right groups. It's therefore essential that all countries work closely with communities of men who have sex with men to design and deliver effective information and services and to adapt measures that protect the health, human rights, and dignity of affected communities. Go ahead, pause them. Stigma and discrimination can be as dangerous as... I can see why Tedros held off on making that announcement last month. Wasn't that Pride Month? That probably wouldn't have gone over well with his audience. Anyway... Uh, MPX is the uh, abbreviation for monkeypox. So if you're looking for actual data, they use the abbreviation now. They don't want monkeypox. It's bad branding kind of that this is going on out there. Also, Tedros was saying it's it's spreading rapidly around the world and they don't know how as if it's transmitted now, not by just sexual activity, which is mm -hmm. the traditional it's almost like it's an aerosolized vaccine that's just spreading around. <laughs> yeah, how it become like what the possibly... documents said that they were going to make in their little proposal to DARPA. I'm just making yeah. observations. And then I'm waiting for 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 Bill Gates and his germ team to get on the scene because he wrote a book about the next pandemic. Next pandemic's here, bro. Where's your germ team? Right. And what are they going to have to do to screen people? It's not going to be like, did you travel out of the country? They're going to be asking a little more risque questions and looking in more risque areas for rashes in, in order to prevent the spread of this thing. So that's also on the, the spectrum because that that conflicts with one of their other public agendas right now that they're pushing at everybody. And Tedros there when he's like, hey, here's how to stop it. He almost sounded like somebody who works at the Daily Wire. That was interesting, too. So a lot to unpack in any of these stories. Tedros making his stand. All right. So uh, it's now back to for, so it went from I'm just trying to keep track here. It went from covid to climate change. Now we're on monkeypox. Mm -hmm. And then I think it probably goes back to COVID and climate change. And it can't skip all the cultural the nonsense pox. that's going on in between. Yeah. Summer of love. Well, nonsense. The George Floyd protests. The uh, 
Well, I mean, they, they at some point they're probably going to bring back the peaceful but fiery protester. So it means power, the summer of love. Whatever their branding is, man. All right. So other clips we got to hit in these areas. Uh, let's go ahead. Do we have a uh, Joshua gave you that clip for the Brock mm-hmm. West edited trailer for the USS Liberty, right? I don't want to play the whole thing, but we can play the trailer that he did. And it shows off his sure. fine editing skills. If you need to hire a video out of there for such. Oh, this is the whole thing. You're looking for the. Um, yeah, there like should the be. If you search couple marketing type, clips for it. Yeah, yeah there was a. Uh, couple short ones that gave you the gist because we interviewed that gentleman for hours and hours and it's a emotional roller coaster ride of a story of the anglo-american establishment aiding israel and kind of bullying the united states not my words those are kind of like representation paraphrasing what he said over many hours still no investigation on uss liberty to this day 50 years later just saying Maybe there's something there that what do they hide, Tony? The useful information or the useless information? I'm just trying to remember. The useful and the very clever ones will put the useful a lot of the useful with some of the useless or twist. You probably know that you're onto some useful information if they start calling you names for trying to answer some questions, right? Yeah. Many such cases out there. All right. So attempting to because find this specific one. What's the name of the producer again? Brock. What's that? Or does he have like well, a moniker would, on YouTube? I don't think he, yeah. So it would. So that's. It's he's not listed on the video. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's just the USS Liberty whistleblower. So anyway, we can find that clip later. I thought we had the short version, but we can put the long version in the, good. In the notes. I'll uh, look for it when people will check it out. Uh, Pfizer to make fifty-four billion off treating COVID over and over, but they're doing it because they love you. They're, it's not about the money for them. We're not going to play that clip but I just want to let you know it exists out there. We'll put it in the notes episode. Uh, Dell's monologue. Did you catch that? Uh, it's pretty good. Mm, looks a little long though. All right. Uh, Jackson report. And then I want to get to this Kim Iverson clip about the MRNA adapting your DNA. Something they said it would not do. Apparently it does. And uh, I just highlighted that story. And then we can yeah. maybe go to Jackson report after that. We'll see. His report looks kind of long. 27 minutes to one hour, 19 minutes. That's a long report, dude. It's actually, I mean, this is a long show, but really, it's very good. I think it's a good report, but yeah, this one was particularly long. COVID relapse. What you just need to know is four shots ain't going to help you at this point because, oh, just get ready. Fauci just had it. Biden just had it. Maybe in the middle of summer, but, uh, middle of summer. Yeah. Well, it's convenient. All right, Slide so this is, slowly into, you know. So this is Kim Iverson answering the question answer. or partially answering the question, letting you know what the Oh, we're doing Kim first says. or Jeffrey yeah, Jack? I'm sorry. No, let's go Kim, Kim yeah. first. Yeah. Does yeah. mRNA change your DNA? Or as I like to say, does Dr. Mr. Na change your DNA? Does mRNA change your DNA? I know. See, that's where you would insert <laughs> the crickets right there. Um, yes. And that's why you're There's always crickets. a place for crickets in any of our episodes. Just not in my body. <laughs> you don't want some cricket protein, bro? Joke. They probably had crickets. I mean, Bill Gates in... has a whole marketing campaign. He's bought a bunch well, like, of farmland because he's trying to save the world, Rich. Look at what happened when Alex was on TimCast. He's like, damn, they've had fake meat since 2008. He's like, they have not, Alex. He's like, yeah, look, synthetic meat. You know, 
And he looked it up and he's like, oh, shit, they have. They approved. They faked me. Well, they faked meeted people a long time ago. It's yes. not just this impossible burger thing Bill Gates is doing. So, like, yeah, I mean, I probably have consumed something with crickets in the past. Uh, you know, what's in Doritos? Crickets and sawdust. Doritos a little bit of sawdust as well. You know, who knows? Um, yeah, but uh, as a main protein, like, I enjoy uh, a nice tenderloin from a cow. It's my, yeah, one of my favorite that, animals. Yeah. And Klaus and Bill oh, yeah. and other people who aren't going to stop eating that same meal are telling me I can't have that meal. That's not freedom. That's messing with my rights. It has nothing rich, to do with rich. They have what, models, what, what? bro. They got they models. models. It says cow farts are bad. The, the whole beginning of the episode is based off models and projections. I say we put them into the metaverse limits. We will maintain the electricity, keep it plugged in, keep it all updated. They need to go into the machine. We will handle nasty nature for you. We'll deal with the bugs and the worms and the fresh air and the sunshine and, and the crops. Because we're so empathetic, we will keep the machines going. Big oligarchs ruining everything and blaming us for it. Come on, man. Just get in there, Kurtzweil. Singularity is near. Get your VR goggles on, man. We'll show it to you. God, I remember watching a documentary on him like well over 10 years ago. And the stuff he's been doing, the biohacking stuff he has been attempting to do for probably over a decade at that point. Something to live long enough so we gain immortality. That's the goal. Missing out on life, trying to make your life endless. That's brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, you're spending all your energy missing out on the... Yeah, that's hilarious. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, AP and Reuters did an interesting fact check that trended on social media yesterday about whether or not COVID vaccines alter DNA. Now, before we get to the fact check, I want to give you a little background information. Since the announcement of mRNA technology being the method used to create COVID vaccines, there have been people in the scientific community who were skeptical that it was the best method of all the vaccine methods we have available. The concern being that it hadn't been tested enough, it hadn't been used before, and there were still some lingering questions. Now, one of those questions being whether or not the mRNA molecule can penetrate the nucleus and alter or combine with our DNA. Now, some experts said they believed it could. After all, prior to the pandemic, mRNA technology was being studied as a promising new way to alter genes. The idea being mRNAs could alter bad genes that make a person susceptible to various illnesses and diseases. And that sounds pretty amazing. If we could avoid the diseases that we're genetically prone to, I think most of us would definitely want to do that. But the problem is it was all still very experimental and mRNAs hadn't quite gotten to that point yet. So when the vaccines were being rolled out, some scientists who knew what mRNAs were designed to do warned that they could possibly change our DNA. Now, obviously, this set off a frenzy amongst people who were already vaccine hesitant, and anyone who cited this as a concern was then labeled a conspiracy theorist. So that is where this came. This claim came from, and apparently a study by some Swedish scientists, which we'll get into, was trending on social media to the point AP and Reuters decided to issue some fact checks. So here's AP's fact check. Social media users are citing months-old study from Sweden to push the unproven theory that mRNA COVID-19 vaccines permanently alter recipients' DNA. Experts and the study authors say the research is being misinterpreted. Here are the facts. I want to uh, just, just so you know, hone in on that word permanently. So they are kind of giving some, quanti- they're qualifying it a bit. But let's see what the AP's fact check article says. So in the article, it says, claim a Swedish study shows that Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine changes recipients' DNA. AP's assessment, false. 
The study tested whether the vaccine's mRNA could be converted to DNA and found that this was the case in certain lab-altered liver cell lines under experimental conditions. It did not assess whether the vaccine alters the human genome or what the effects of that would be, according to experts and the study authors. Experts say additional research is needed because the findings in the lab setting cannot be used to make inferences about what might happen in a human body. So I found this statement interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, I noticed AP didn't call this a conspiracy theory, but instead an unproven theory. So this gives me a little hope that maybe the trend of labeling anyone who questions something is a conspiracy theorist, maybe that's waning. Secondly, rather than just dismiss the claim outright, they did state that experts say more research is needed. So it's inconclusive. Now let's look at the Reuters fact check. A Swedish study conducted by Lund University does not show that mRNA COVID-19 vaccines permanently alter human DNA. The authors said their study could not be used to draw conclusions with human DNA as as they used cell lines in lab petri dish for their work. Now, Reuters actually links us to a Q&A with the study's authors on the Lund University website. And the authors say the reason why they even took up this study was because of a previous study published by MIT, which indicated that SARS-CoV-2 virus mRNA can be converted to DNA and integrated into the human genome. Now that study set off a frenzy and received an enormous amount of backlash for quote unquote, feeding the vaccine skeptics. But the Swedes wanted to further study this. And what they did was they took human liver cells to see if the mRNA would penetrate the nucleus and integrate with the DNA, and they found that it did. They said, quote, we show that the vaccine enters liver cells as early as six hours after the vaccine has been administered. We saw that there was DNA converted from the vaccine's mRNA in the host cells we studied. These findings were observed in petri dishes under experimental conditions, but we do not yet know if the converted DNA is integrated into the cell's DNA in the genome, and if so, if it has any consequences. So the reason they chose liver cells was because during testing, a Pfizer study injected the vaccine into mice and found that 18% of the vaccine accumulated in the liver after 30 minutes. So these researchers decided to try it on human liver cells. And they went on to say, quote, it's important to bear in mind that the liver cells in the study are more genetically unstable than our own liver cells. So they give you that Uh, you know, qualification of this whole entire study. So we don't really know what it would do in a living organism, a human being, and to our liver cells, but they saw what they saw in the Petri dish. And they said, quote, we understand that the study would attract attention, but we think it's self-evident that this type of research should be pursued. We have a new vaccine and it needs to be tested in cell and animal models and also in humans in various ways. The results might be surprising, But it's also a bit surprising that such studies do not seem to have been carried out before. So that was the whole fact check that was going on on social media with AP and Reuters. Um, I thought it was really interesting, the framing of it, how they didn't conclusively say it does not. Now, when people, when experts first came out and said, you know, there's a possibility that it does this. And then people are saying, oh, I don't want to take something that's going to change my DNA. There was an enormous amount of fact checking that came out from various media organizations, health organizations that said, no, it does not do this. And they stated that conclusively. And then MIT came out with a study in December of 2020 and said, "Eh, actually, you know, kind of looks like it might. And now this Swedish study from Lund University says, yeah, maybe. And more needs to be done to be studied on this. And now you've got AP and Reuters saying, Okay, inconclusive. I mean, that's what their fact check basically came back at. Rather than say, it doesn't, you conspiracy theorist, you. They actually said, 
inconclusive. More study right. is needed. And that's what these scientists are saying. So uh, I just wanted to point that out. It, this is just another example of people being labeled conspiracy theorists, told, no, you're wrong, without evidence. I mean, we just don't have the evidence yet. And it's okay to say. We don't know. But that seems right. to have it's been... It sounds like the label used in the fact check is actually very accurate. It is inconclusive. That's right. there are there's some theory. reason right. to think that description might be accurate, the changing of the DNA, but we that was only under certain conditions. We don't know that, that how well that would be replicated in in actual, you know, human beings. And, and it might right. be the case that infrequently it could happen that way or or not at all or frequently we just don't know it, it seems obvious we should do more testing because you know given that covid is not going away anytime soon you know there's going to be there are going to be new more people are going to be taking vaccines for this Robbie a break? and, and other diseases hard. are going to be interested in using i think these guys are overthinking it i think it might be simpler in other words, you don't have to go hard. And, That's pretty funny. That was, you don't have was, to go and like do these new things. The answers might already be there. Why don't you go back to 2013 when DARPA licenses mRNA technology to Moderna mode RNA mode RNA Moderna read their SEC filing type in right now. Go to your brave browser type in Moderna SEC no. filing. And you're going to see filings. And then in that filing, you could type in gene therapy and gene therapies because the multiple sometimes is, is used in the document. And uh, yeah, it's all there. You could type in DARPA and find out DARPA's relationship. There's a 2013 Moderna press release on their site. You could just read Moderna's site. They tell you these things. mRNA therapies are there to change your DNA in the first place. So don't ask, is this thing might maybe going to do it? That, that's what they designed this stuff for. They want control, command and control of the human being. That's your DNA. That's molecular biology. That's yeah, eugenics. That's, and I'm really glad that there's no Patrick eugenicists out there historically, wealthy people like Bill Gates and his population council that are trying to depopulate the planet, mess with your DNA, take command and control. Maybe your next generation can't procreate. Oh, sorry about that. These are the types of things that they've been working on behind the scenes and that's been kept from you with a simple phrase called conspiracy theory. That phrase stands between more people and freedom than any other single phrase I can think of in history. Well done, CIA. And that's dark magic right there. Control of language is control of the mind. Document 1035-960 concerning criticism of the Warren Commission report is where they came out and mm -hmm. said, let's use this term conspiracy theorist, this phrase as a pejorative to keep people from questioning the assassinations that were being sponsored by the security state of the Anglo-American establishment. And I lay at your feet for your consideration. All right. Other clips we got to get to let's uh, before we get to Dell's gig, let, there's another Jimmy door clip. It's about debunking the monkeypox leak theory. And I think that's really important because if we can just debunk that and it, it didn't come out of the Wuhan lab, then we can stop looking at eco health and DARPA documents and grant proposals and FOIA requests and all these other pieces of evidence because there's some articles here that Jimmy's going to show us and it just dispels the whole thing. Nothing to see here. And then that means we don't have to think anymore unless the headlines don't match with the contents of the article. And then we would probably have to look at more documents. So let's see. Are we going to get the uh, easy button and we can just go back to watching NFL don't football? Don't think about it, bro. Or are we going to have to read some documents? We'll see. And we might not even have to think about it, as Ethan Klein is fond of saying. Mm. 
So we'll see. Let's see. Let's Why learn. Words. Don't even have to think about it, bro. Four years ago, in Carpenter versus United States, the Supreme Court ruled that the government needs a warrant to access a person's cell phone location history from cellular service providers because of the privacies of life those records can reveal. New records detail Department of Homeland Security purchased and used a vast quantities of cell phone location data. Now, I don't know if you remember, I just told you, the Supreme Court said that's illegal. What's his Department of Home? What is your government doing anyway? It's been purchasing your information that is illegal for them to get under the Fourth Amendment and... I was just questioning, is that the right... Taking myself off mute. Yeah, I might have... That's, I mean, it's labeled corporate media lot. They might have uploaded it. And let me try his YouTube page real quick. Yeah. So this Sometimes the people over at Jimmy Dore, they got it. So here's how it, here's how it goes. Like every day, four o'clock, four thirty Eastern time, the Jimmy Dore show goes live, but they're not live yet. So don't click on that YouTube that shows up, you know, but around six 30, a couple 10,000 people are over there and it's like, you know, let's see what Jimmy does in his garage today. So he covers a lot of news and then the whole show is live. So if you get there late, you can't rewind. And if you pass pause, it doesn't pause. And so then the result of that live stream becomes like three or four clips that get circulated out like the next day. And so sometimes there's things I've seen live that the clip doesn't actually represent the whole thing because they, yeah. they clip it and then they post it everywhere. So I try to represent yeah. Rumble and Odyssey and other places just not to favor YouTube. Oh, and sure. uh, sometimes I think also just the product of them, like putting it on so many different platforms, you get these sort of accents. Yeah, but I found it, get, so we're good. You can get I a mean, video that doesn't represent the title, just like they have articles that don't represent the headline. See how we brought that together? Now we'll find a way, but it'll all work. It'll work in the edit. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So you remember when we showed you this about monkeypox? Watch, watch this. This is kind of funny. Now, the main thing we're looking at today is it turns out that the National Institutes of Health in the United States and the Wuhan Institute of Virology have both been working on monkeypox, coincidentally, uh, before the outbreak that we are currently uh, experiencing. So rather strange. Now, we're not going to be talking about the involvement of the NIH in uh, SARS coronavirus 2 and uh, gain of possible gain of function research. We're not going to be talking about the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, and the fact that it coincidentally is only uh, 14 miles from the wet market where the uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, allegedly started. We're not going to be talking about the World Health Organization's frankly embarrassing, farcical, uh, I don't like to use the term, investigation into the origins of this virus. We're just going to stick to the facts about monkeypox, not COVID-19, not SARS coronavirus 2 although you may draw some parallels. <laughs> so that's him being cheeky because we, we now know that the gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Lab, Viral Institute Lab of Coronavirus Viral Labbing Things <laughs> uh, was most likely the cause of this coronavirus, COVID-19. Very possible. Very highly likely. And... Uh, and now we're having monkeypox, and he says, we found out you're not going to believe this, but they were doing the same kind of research on monkeypox. And then what happens? And then all the big pharma-funded people who've been bullshitting you since the beginning of COVID are still doing it. 
So the people who bullshitted you about ivermectin and told you it was poison, the people who bullshitted you about uh, masks, the people who bullshitted you about Fauci, the people who bullshit, bullshitted you about targeted uh, Barrington Declaration idea, the people who bullshitted you about herd immunity, they're back at it. Now they're, they want to tell you you're crazy if you think this virus came from a lab. Now, again, I don't know. They don't know where the virus came from. But what I do know is that this is ridiculous to start calling other people after they've been wrong consistently. The Daily Beast has been wrong about COVID. Consist they were wrong about the lab leak theory. They were wrong about masks. They're wrong about Fauci. They're wrong about everything. And now and because they're funded by Big Pharma. And now if you have a question about this virus that goes against the establishment, they're going to say monkeypox is here and the covid truthers. <laughs> covid truthers. Ooh, what do you well, what are you guys at the Daily Beast except covid liars? <laughs> so, yeah, look at the hat. Look at and they put a tinfoil hat on this guy. Because he's so paranoid and afraid, he thinks it protects him somehow. You know, like a cloth mask. <laughs> <laughs> the subhead is hundreds of cases of chatter about vaccines has sent conspiracy theorists into full-on meltdown. No, I think it sent you into full-on meltdown. Mark Hay is his name over at the Daily at the Clinton Daily Beast, and he, of course, if you want, if you read that article it's all full of misinformation and so here's a bunch of people saying conspiracy theories that let that the u.s let loose monkeypox that's a conspiracy theory conspiracy theories on u.s spreading monkeypox are all over monkeypox wasn't created in a lab and other claims debunk they're doing it again it's such a bizarre theory yeah the last one Monkeypox outbreak, bizarre theory. <laughs> God, what a bizarre theory to suspect that maybe the Wuhan virus lab, which was also working on monkeypox. But here's the science. It's not really, didn't really happen. That's crazy. How could you even think that that could pop just because it's probable that the Wuhan lab did the gain of function that led to the COVID-19 virus? It is crazy to think that even though they were doing the same kind of research on the monkeypox vaccine, that that could pop. It's crazy. It's a bizarre Where's this coming from. Where's this coming from? Man? Where does this come from? <laughs> you, you act like you act like the same thing was said about the COVID-19 virus and that that you all lied about it. And then people got kicked off social media for saying that the same thing happened to the COVID virus. And then it turns out it did happen. Do you hear yourself right now? <laughs> they can't wait to call someone else a conspiracy theorist. Pre-bunking. Here, look at this. BBC monkeypox wasn't created in a lab and other claims debunked. And then they put, it says literally, it says, uh, Satirical memes sharing jokes about monkeypox have been widely shared online. Oh, oh my God. We got to stop talking crazy and fight the real virus. Satirical memes being widely spread online. Wear a mask over your eyes so you don't get infected with memes. And down here, you can't read what that says. I'll read it to you. 
It says, since cases of monkeypox began to emerge in Europe, beliefs about the virus have been shared widely on social media that appear to be recycled from the COVID-19 pandemic. Boy, isn't that a good defense? Hey, just because we killed people before in this exact way, now you're accusing us of doing it again? What are you, crazy? That what? You're recycling the arguments about us killing people when we were killing people to say we're killing people now. That's the, that's what that's the defense from the BBC. They can't wait to make everyone else see what is going on in this modern era of journalism where anybody who has a different idea than the establishment is immediately a conspiracy crazy kook. Well, Jimmy, the thing is, I didn't have an idea until they said something. I mean, <laughs> I, I feel the same way. Here's another headline. No monkey, no, comma, monkeypox didn't leak from Wuhan. Uh-huh. And then look at the subheadlining. The initial evidence suggests. <laughs> it's like, no, it didn't come from the Wuhan dummy. <laughs> that's what the, the initial evidence. That's what the initial evidence says. <laughs> it's right it there. At any moment. It, it, yeah, it could change. Of course, it, may, it might have. <laughs> no, dummy. It didn't leak from the Wuhan lab. Of course, it might have. <laughs> it's just an issue of this. <laughs> Can't the government. Anyway, uh, so, so now we're going to take a look at this article. This is from Newsweek. Another, again, ridiculous, big pharma-funded publication. Theories linking monkeypox to Wuhan and Ukraine labs. What? First of all, I never even heard anybody saying it was coming from a Ukraine lab. <laughs> what? what, the, what the now you guys, are, you guys are denying something nobody even said. <laughs> what is happening? It's like you come home, hey, did you have fun tonight, honey? I wasn't fucking your sister! Ah, I didn't say that. Well, I wasn't. No, I wasn't fucking your sister. Okay. Oh no. Although maybe we haven't got the lab back on the semen from the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Who said? Nobody said Ukraine. So suspicious. Experts have dismissed dubious theories suggesting. So this is not this is this literally Newsweek is going to do this. Which experts? Experts. <laughs> Which experts? Or John experts? You know him? Was it, the, was it the experts over at Snopes who had to step down from Snopes after getting caught launching 50 par- plagiarized articles at Snopes? Snopesperts? Which Snopesperts? Which experts? The experts funded by Bill Gates and the Melinda Fuckface Foundation? <laughs> Bill and Melinda Fuckface Foundation. <laughs> experts have dismissed Kurt. They've dismissed dubious, dubious theories suggesting that monkeypox may have leaked from a laboratory in Ukraine or China, saying such claims are nonsense. I know that's why I didn't make them initially, and I don't know why you're saying it. <laughs> didn't We never did. We never said this. In a tweet on Monday, Chuck Calesto, 
that's a right wing media activist with 300,000 Twitter followers wrote Wuhan lab was experimenting with monkeypox last year, published research report in International Journal in February 2022. Is that a right wing publication? So here I don't, I don't know. So, but here. So here he is. Bombshell report. Wuhan lab was experimenting with monkeypox last year, published in. Re- so he just tweets that out that without comment. About someone else's report. About someone else's report. It's not his report. But was he right wing while he did it? But this guy's right wing who tweets out a fact. So you have to dismiss the fact because you don't like his politics. How much you want to bet, Jimmy, that if you I don't, never heard of him. But if you looked into it, you'd find out he probably wasn't that right wing. <laughs> that's what they first they say about everybody. <laughs> well, if he's right wing, I don't care what solid evidence he has. Fair enough. So this is keeps going on in this Newsweek article. It says the Wuhan Institute of Virology is the same Chinese lab implicated in COVID lab leak theories that have circulated throughout the pandemic. You're not calling them conspiracy theories anymore because that's what you did call them. Now they're just theories. Huh. Hmm. What makes them what makes them not be a conspiracy theory? Because a conspiracy is just one two or more people deciding to do planning to do something. Oh, I know. It's so, when John Stewart says it on Colbert. So oh that's it. So that's when it goes from being a conspiracy mm-hmm. theory to just a theory. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe it's when the head of the Lancet study group on the COVID nineteen virus or uh said it originated in a lab, US biolabs. Oh, okay. So while theories have been seriously considered by scientists, so these theories of the monkeypox being originated in a Wuhan lab, those theories, they have been seriously considered by scientists. But now you're some kind of crazy if you also consider them. Why is it okay for scientists to seriously consider them? But if you do it, you're a conspiracy crazy. I like the next sentence the most. There, uh, there is yet to be a total consensus on how the pandemic started. What? But you're going to write an article saying you're debunking it? What's the title of this article? Theories linking monkeypox to Wuhan and Ukraine labs torn apart. <laughs> they tore like wild monkeys. They tore the <laughs> theories apart. They they bit that theory in its face and ripped it off. <laughs> they bit that theory's face off. <laughs> and here, this doesn't seem like they're ripping it apart. Well. There is yet to be a total consensus on how the pandemic started. What? That's that's so far from tearing it apart. Since when do things come to total consensus in any area of science? Right. With natural transmission from animals initially deemed most likely. So they don't know. But I thought it's going to get torn apart. Where does that happen in this story? Who wrote this goddamn story? <laughs> Ed Brown. Ed Brown. Ed, when does this happen? <laughs> Ed, it, does it, when does the tearing apart happen in your article? Because we can't find it. Ed, ask your editor who made that awful title. Yeah, oh, that's maybe, you know what? Maybe it's not Ed's fault. 
So let's cut Ed a little slack because he didn't write. That's right. I have to remind myself. He doesn't write the headlines. The guy who gets even more money from Big Pharma writes the headlines. Right. Okay. And they're designed to be for you to just see it in the Google search and never read the article. Uh, That's why you're crazy, Jimmy, for reading the articles. Scientists are seriously considering it, and there isn't a total consensus on where the virus came from. But it's going to get torn apart somewhere. (laughs) Somewhere it's going to get torn apart. The February research article discusses the creation of a fragment of a monkeypox virus in order to demonstrate a way of assembling large DNA constructs without errors and enable detection by PCR tests. Blah, 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 blah. That's what that is. That's Working what that with is. monkeypox. They're, they're, they are... This assembly product is fail-safe by virtually eliminating any risk of recovering into an infectious virus. Who said that? The people doing the research said it. Virtually? The people doing this the people doing this thing that is we're talking about there they said it they they quote no one else in the is that the actual researchers or is that the Chinese lab that you, has no transparency what those are this one and the same no I thought they outsourced it NIH outsourced it to Wuhan lab yeah and so that's that who they're, they're not, well who are, who are, who are, that's who these researchers are you mean the people doesn't matter hmm. In a statement to Newsweek, News Punch co-founder Sean Altadatabi said, the lab leak theory for COVID-19 is being taken very seriously by both U.S. government and the World Health Organization. Likewise, multiple scientists are currently asking legitimate questions about the possibility of the monkeypox virus also leaking from a lab. That's Does that sound like they're tearing this apart yet? It sounds Whoa. like they're saying it makes complete sense to question this. Whoa, take it easy on that theory, man. It's already down. Don't <laughs> stop hitting it. <laughs> I think it would be irresponsible not to report on this possibility, given the fact that outlets such as yours ignored the COVID lab leak in the early days of the pandemic. And they printed that under in a story with that headline saying it got torn apart. Can I see the headline again? Yes. Theories linking monkeypox to Wuhan and Ukraine labs torn apart. No, Newsweek was torn apart. I think I just tore Newsweek that apart. Newsweek just got torn apart by that guy. <laughs> I thought I misread the title for a second. It's so different. Places like Science Magazine say monkeypox outbreak questions intensify as cases soar. So they don't have a bullshit title to this. They have a hey, let's. There's lots of questions. They don't they go, just, and if you have, and if you have the wrong question, you're a crazy <laughs> conspiracy theorist, and I bet you're a white supremacist. They don't say that, do they? But Newsweek does. Just blame it on the gays and shut your mouth. And watch the and and oh, by the way, oh. So oh yeah, so when the guy says, uh. That it's the assembly product is fail safe. 
That the guy who's saying that, you know, who's, that's the researcher. I think he went on to say, I mean, we think it's fail safe. It's not like we're the ones doing it. We are so, we outsourced it to China. So that's what you're talking about, Kurt. Okay. But anyway, I'm going to show you this. And I, it's probably too long of a segment already. But The Spectator, their own, this is again, their own article doesn't match up with their fucking headline. So this guy, Michael Simmons, writes this article, and the headline is, no, monkeypox didn't leak from Wuhan. And knowing 80% of people only read headlines, the big pharma-funded spectator says this. And then, but listen to the article. None of the, in the article backs up that headline. The lab, which is considered by a growing number of scientists to be the origin of the original COVID pandemic, specializes in so-called gain-of-function experiments. These experiments aim to genetically enhance viruses like COVID, so they are more likely to jump species to humans. Reports emerged last year that researchers at the lab fell ill before the first cases of COVID-19 were recorded. That's in this article. And then the article says, now a February study has come to light suggesting similar experiments may have been carried out in Wuhan on a monkeypox virus. Similar fail-safe experiments. <laughs> yeah, so far, these are the fail-safe, no problem. It, it looked to create a monkeypox virus. It looked to create a monkeypox virus that could be identified on PCR tests. The researchers successfully produced a genomic <laughs> fragment of monkeypox they did it and in that paper it warned that it was dangerous to do this that paper said the dna assembly tool applied in virolo viral virological research could also rate pot raise potential security concerns especially when assembled product contains a full set of genetic material that can be recovered into a contagious pathogen. So there are even warning of the potential risks of this research in the paper. And then in this article, it says, so could it have leaked? The researchers say that this would be impossible. Yeah, I know they say. And they say it was fail safe. Uh you coordinate with the people that wrote your paper that said it's not fail safe maybe <laughs> so it's very unlikely that any experiment on monkeypox in the wuhan lab would have leaked so now he's saying it's very unlikely the headline is remember no it didn't that was the headline no comma it fucking didn't i'm embellishing but that was the headline well i'll show you what the goddamn headline was no, monkeypox didn't leak from a Wuhan lab. And now they're saying it's very unlikely. Could have. That headline does everything but flat out call you an asshole. And no asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the discovery of these experiments raises alarm. Given the experience of COVID. And then he goes on to explain in that article about how Fauci got caught lying about the original COVID being made in a virus. And he says that's why it raises alarm, because these fuckers lie all the time. Do you think so the article, so Kurt, the article actually did the opposite 
of what this headline said. The article gave credence to people questioning if it came from the Wuhan lab. And the art and the headline says the exact opposite, much like this headline. Much like th- it never got torn apart. Isn't that weird that the headlines say the exact opposite of what's happening inside their article? Could it be that they don't want to piss off their big pharma funders? Not just that. This is for algorithm. So you make sure the editors are experts on what algorithm, you know, like it used to be stuff like Ben Shapiro destroys with facts and logic and that would get, and now they're, they're setting this up like, so that way if you just go to do a quick search and I wonder if there's anything to this, oh, it's all been debunked. That's what they're, that, this is remarkable. So look at these two stories and look at these stupid fucking headlines. They're still doing it. They won't stop. Anybody who goes outside the big pharma funded establishment narrative is immediately called a crazy. Immediately. Wow. Sacramento. Anyone who goes outside the public narrative is immediately called conspiracy theorists. That was CIA document 1035-960 aforementioned in this episode. All right, so there's a lot of problems with that because they're saying it could have come from the lab. There's these claims that they're experimenting with monkeypox at the Wuhan lab. I have not set forth that evidence in this episode. I've showed you. But he did say something here. Raccoon uh, raccoon pox. Mm -hmm. And uh, they got vampire bat stuff working, but we haven't gotten to the monkeypox stuff. So I just dropped some links during that video into the chat. Mm-hmm. And I just typed in yeah, Wuhan monkeypox lab, you know, and got like the first link I found. And that that first story, I don't know who published it, but it, they were linking back to the source story. And then I clicked on that yep. to go into the document. I'm trying to make the connection because I did find the monkeypox document, but I don't see how it connects to Wuhan directly yet. Well, it, it seems like the smoking gun evidence for that. Well, we'll have to find it. She's point. on the board of but, the place. Xi Jingli, the bat lady, the, that last page you had up, she's on the board of the place that published the magazine. It might be her magazine. And in there, so she, there is a connection. She works at Wuhan. She's the bat lady. She's on the board of the place that published yeah, the monkeypox. But I looked in that article to see if I recognize any of the scientists' names. And usually if Xi Jingli is part of it, they, they list her. Because she's the bat lady over mm-hmm. there working with Peter Dazak in the bat. He's cave. like one of the few probably individuals in the entire world that specializes in gain of function style technology. That's why she's working with many different scientists across the world, including Ralph Barrick from UNC. So, yeah, they got an international team to do this. This was not one nation state that cooked this thing up. And it's according- not one nation state that benefited either. It's a multitude now, of people. It's almost like a conspiracy of silence that's going on out there. It's conspiracy of science. That's fucked, that's that's true. Conspiracy on. of science. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. All right. Um, so um how do I want to say something? Oh, okay. So the to your point, the evidence that can be gleaned from let me put well oh, actually I just said yeah, it's perfect. Okay. So the evidence that can be gleaned from the report from the Wuhan Institute of Virology stating that they've recom- they've done this uh, process whereby which they can drive the genetic sequence they need to develop the PCR test for monkeypox. But I didn't, 
what a brilliant straw man. When I first heard that, I'm thinking I looked up some different arguments about it and they said, no, it's just a, you know, just for the PCR technology. Like they're just so, but I didn't think like, well, are they just running models from older monkeypox um, outbreaks or something like that, that they're just, you know, deriving this sort of thing, or are they, I didn't think they actually cultured the virus itself. So that if there's any smoking gun, it would be they cultured the virus in order to, they, of course, they say it's not, um, it's not potent. It's not uh, able to cause any sort of disease inept. But at the same time, they're saying now that it's possible for it to recombine with enough of its sequence available to become infectious again. That's really disconcerting. And so like that would be to me the smoking gun. It's like, well, then that means they had to culture the virus literally. Now, it doesn't mean it leaked. This means that they were working with some sort of tangible specimen in some regard. And that's where the potential for a leak could emerge. So now we have sort of like a chain of causality, potentially as one theory, as more evidence comes in that we can build out as we fit in pieces, fit in different pieces of evidence into this legitimate, potentially legitimate theory. So go ahead and click that first link I sent you in Discord to the story because it's just somebody's mm -hmm. repost, right? So teaching yeah. how to do research, you read the repost, then you click for the source material, which uh, was in the bombshell, so right? So that's the headline. Everyone, there's millions of websites or thousands of Wuhan websites. Wuhan Biolab carried out gain of function research on monkey monkeypox virus. So let's this call that the claim. And mm -hmm. now the the. The question is, is the claim delivered through the evidence in the article? Just like Jimmy was doing with those other ones, left wing. Let's look at this right wing one and see if there's actually a connection. So in that first paragraph, it gives a link to Virologica Sinica, which is a virology magazine, right? Yeah, that's that's these other things. Wuhan Lab publishes... Uh, oh, we got pop up. Publishes so study. Wuhan lab publishes study manipulating H7N9 virus to be more lethal. A scientific journal published by top Wuhan Institute of Virology researchers shared studies appearing to engage in gain of function type research, a controversial method of studying pathogens. Okay, the Wuhan Institute of Virology is believed to have engaged. Yes, there it is. Okay, now the latest edition of the lab's journal, Virologica Sinica, appears. Oh, that's to the lab's journal. Virologica yes. Seneca is the bat lady's journal, journal. for the Wuhan lab. And she works with it Peter Dazak here, and the bat lady. Okay, now yep. we're coming up to speed. Go ahead. Appears to contain a similar style of research with the H7N9 virus in chickens and mice. The publication's editor-in-chief is Wuhan's infamous quote-unquote bat lady, Shi Zingli, who is the lab's premier bat coronavirus researcher and a recipient of funds from Anthony Fauci through Peter Dazak's EcoHealth Alliance. Mm -hmm. Urologica Sinica published a study, quote, combined insertion of basic and non-basic amino acids and hemagglutinin cleavage site of highly pathogenic H7N9 virus promotes replication and pathogenicity in chickens and mice. Since most recent edition published February 22nd, um, they go into details about how they were able to do this, but you sort of get the, get the idea now going back to so the claims here they looks like they juxtapose a couple of different claims have been made the national pulse reports quote the, the going back to this earlier article bombshell wuhan lab carried out gain of function research on monkey pirates uh monkey bucks uh let's see here national pulse reports quote the wuhan institute of virology assembled a monkey pox virus genome and that's where i 
was led astray was because I thought they were doing it based on models, based on the sequencing having been done from earlier outbreaks. And they're mm. just, but instead they are actually having to culture the virus itself. This is interesting. Anyways, monkey virus, virus genome, allowing the virus to be identified through PCR tests using a method researchers flag for potentially creating a path contagious pathogen, end quote. And the report continues, the study, okay, so it's part of one continuous report, it's not juxtaposition, but anyways, the report continues. The study, uh, quote, the study was first published in February, 2022, just months before the latest international outbreak of monkeypox cases, which appear to have now reached the United States. Researchers appeared to identify a portion of the monkeypox virus genome, enabling PCR tests to identify the virus in the paper, efficient assembly of a large fragment of monkeypox virus genome as a qPCR template using dual selection based transformation association recombination associated recombination so it goes into and that's that's the methodology they're using so apparently this tar process applied quote applied in virological research could also raise potential security concerns especially when the assembled product contains a full set of genetic material that can be recovered into a contagious pathogen that's what i was unaware of that right. was sort of the neglected aspect they built a straw man over it very at least the more sophisticated back chunk, uh, back checkers up. Okay. So now so that's clever of them. All right. So now, Oops, sorry, I didn't mean to do that's it. all right. Given that click the last link I sent you in the chat where it goes to Virologica Sinica, the official journal of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Mm-hmm. And it reads, let me see if I can pull it up here on my official browser. Assembly. Look, yeah. Efficient yeah. assembly of a large fragment of monkeypox virus genome as qPCR template using dual selection based transformation associated recombination. That's as official as it gets there, right? You can view the PDF. That's a real thing. It exists in reality. And what's it's interesting is the tar had, assembly system. Yeah. And we had talked MPXV, about this. right here. Look, MPXV. MPXV yep. is monkeypox virus. Genomic, genomic fragment, fragment cont- containing yeah. multiple qPCR detection targets so they can detect it. it is made in the lab. That's kid. how PCR works. It identifies a unique aspect of your genetic code and it uses a primer sort of to wash that out and juxtapose it to the strain they're trying to find that may be contagious or may, you may have in you. If, in regards to a virus or a bacteria, it could be really anything actually. Now, for any folks type of genetic with, material. The, with an Sorry. attention span 20 minutes or longer, you just heard Jimmy Dore read all those articles telling you this doesn't exist, but this is the Wuhan Labs actual. This is their article out of Virologica Sinica, published on Science Direct. This is where shit gets published. So mm-hmm. this is a real thing about a real thing that they're messing with in a lab and is now like they're saying on TV circulating out there. I'm not saying that what's out there is what's made in this lab. I'm just saying we now have evidence presented in this artifact that that lab in Wuhan with those people that we've been talking about for two years, were yeah. also up to some monkey pox in it. And then we have, let's not forget about the obnoxious preponderance of evidence associated with SARS-CoV-2 and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Yeah. So, I mean, where there's smoke, maybe there's tracing fire. The funding of that lab also goes back to the key players of the people who brought you the solution, including the, uh, the antidote, if you will, to their poison. Yes, the solution and include they had the cover up. Well, they didn't do a good job of it, but they had that figured out. They had the and they, they created a problem that didn't exist in order to sell you a solution. So instead of trying to spend the energy to find actual problems that really exist and try to say, like, try to resolve those problems, 
They instead create problems and then invent solutions for them that they curiously are the only ones that have. How convenient. I'm just, I'm just reading through to the interesting end of the business document. model. That's all I'm saying. I'm pedantic like that. You gotta scroll all the way to the bottom. <laughs> no, it's good. It's what it takes. Understanding right. honey. So it's that tar process. That's what now that you know that you for sure have been lied to by the media about this because they don't know enough to tell you the truth in the first fucking place. Let's maybe take a look at why you don't know what's going on because you've been watching media. The most influential book by the most debated man of the decade, the most important thinker since Newton, Darwin, Freud, Einstein, and Pavlov said the New York Herald Tribune about Marshall McLuhan's new book, Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man, 1964, also the same year that Defense Department was working on a project called Oracle. This book is the Oracle of the Electric Age, the Oracle of the New Communications, says Life in Newsweek, bringing that word out to the public before it was a publicly traded corporation anyway uh in this chapter back here called automation i mean there's a lot of fantastic parts of this book first off i would attract you to uh this is the second edition paperback i think 1964 oh, i froze my hand oh, there must be a loose connection on that camera let's do this boom let's just take out uh, tech out of the picture uh let's see weapons page 299 uh he uses this phrase called between two ages it was before Zabinu wrote his book called Between Two Ages. Uh, we are between the the two ages that are being described, but that's not the reference. We're, we're 2 a.m. in this show. We can't go into all the references in here. I want to show you the section on automation, learning a living, going from the, the one-room schoolhouse all the way over here to the deriv division of the curriculum into subjects already outdated as the medieval trivium and the quadrivium after the Renaissance to uh learning and knowledge of these discharges of electricity that flow and we're like batteries and then you get into automation automation and cybernization cybernation cybernation i think that's the word there yep mm -hmm. um it is the same speed that constitutes organic unity and ends the mechanical age that had gone through high gear with gutenberg automation brings real mass production right but at the end of the book he says the organic unity is not possible Let's see. Automation certainly assumes the servo mechanism, assumes the servo mechanism in the computer, and that basically, you know, everything's going to be autom automated and people are going to be out of the picture. And that makes the attempt to create the effect of organic unity quite pointless. This is the goal, by the way, of the Anglo American establishment. They want organic unity. And, uh, yeah, there's yeah. a lot like me said on the concept of organic unity going back in history. So from the cover, what is Oracle? The electronic means of storing and moving information with the speed and precision to make largest units is quite manageable as small ones, right? The, the relational database. And then it talks down here. Uh, and in the same way, the social and educational patterns latent in automation are those of self-employment and artistic autonomy. So... Even though this is not going to be part of the future, this is what created it. And then by by them, that's, removing, that's the paradox. That's right. Right. That's yeah. the the between two ages mm -hmm. between the things that created it and those who will just it's one of the it in a great minds theorists of the latter part of the 20th century. Um, hyper brilliant. I know Terrence McKenna, for example, is a big. He's at the Macy has. conferences. Marshall He's at McCoy. the Macy. Oh yeah, yeah, big time. Marshall he was McClellan. a big time like he's a very sort of honest type of critic. 
if you will. Someone allowed to like peer a little bit on the inside, but himself yeah, I gotta, being I gotta, of a strong religious nature and so well read. And I have a rare sort of McLe- Western McLuhan canon. book that I will pull out if I don't spill all these other books. This is a rare, rare book. But I remember I read part of uh, his essay, The Medium is the, the Message. Classical Trivium. The place of Thomas Nash and the learning of his time, Marshall McLuhan. And it's an odd shaped book. Let's zoom out. See, it's like a big, long book like this. It's a very tall book, tall and thin. It's probably uh, some golden mean proportion type thing going on in here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, McLuhan, he's, uh, he's a verbose. That's dude. very interesting. Of the, right. the next time I come up, I'll have to check that out. I've not yeah, gone yeah. through that. It's got notes printed at the bottom. That's why the format's a weird shape because there's a page and then there's. But he was really a visionary for what is manifested in regards to what machine mediated interfaces have done, what could potentially manifest as future scenarios yeah, or worlds from this. And so he's been quite a visionary. So it's worth checking out. I read parts of it a couple of weeks ago when I was hosting. Um, and showed some clips around it. So it's really, that's just his essay. He wrote voluminously, by the way. That's like part of a larger book. I always forget. Oh, yeah. All right. So um, let's do Extensions 20 minutes. That's the book you just had. Anyways. Of the Jackson report. And then we'll kick it to intermission. We got okay. something real, very nice for you guys tonight. Cooked up for the intermission. Anyone who stayed this long in a game, you're going to get uh you're going to get your value in the intermission. I promise you, you're going to see some stuff you probably haven't seen before. And uh, it'll pertain to some big news event that we haven't talked about. So it'll be cool. Uh, <clears throat> Jackson report, part of the high wire Thursday afternoons. Del Baytree gets, gets it on with uh, Jeffrey Jackson. We don't have time for the whole thing, but we can play 20 minutes of it. And uh, let's check it out. Not do what masks do and do not do. And are we sort of sliding right back in to that same dark hole we have finally recovered from? We're going to talk about all that with Jeffrey Jackson coming up right now. All right, Jeffrey, did you get some sleep after (laughs) Vegas? I mean, that was such an amazing time, wasn't it? Just catching up right now. Just catching up. (laughs) (laughs) What do you have for us this week? Well, if Dell, if you people watching are living in LA, they probably already know what I'm about to say. But for everybody else, take this as a warning. This headline: It's July 2022, and masks are likely coming back indoors in Los Angeles. It says here, Los Angeles County officials have mandated indoor masking, requiring face coverings at indoor restaurants, bars, cafes, and businesses as a measure. A measure that will return as soon as July 29 if community transmission and hospitalizations do not improve. So it's not, it's kind of a, a headline that's a little deceiving. It's not happening. They're announcing it's going to happen on July 29th if these hospitalizations do not come down. Now, going a little bit south down to San Diego, they're already putting masks back on kids in San Diego Unified School mm. District. And this is the headline here. Masks are now required indoors at San Diego Unified School District schools and offices. Now, this is already affecting kids because kids are in summer school and they're obviously keep they're going to try to keep this on for the push going back into school for fall. Um, now, one of their board presidents, the board trustee, uh, Sharon Whitehurst Payne, she was on a local San Diego interview, a news station there. And she was asked by the interviewer if kids 
who don't feel comfortable putting masks on, what should they do? Take a listen to what she had to say. Parents who, who don't want to wear a mask indoors in school, are there any other options for them? For the fall, there are some options. They can go to our uh, school that's online. Um, they can opt not to return to the regular school, but to go to the school where they don't have to go to school at all other than via Zoom. Yeah. And um, that's the easiest way for folks. What who about don't the want summer school? What if they were already enrolled in the summer school and now they get this mask mandate and they're not comfortable with wearing a mask? They really should wear the mask. Uh, but if they're not, not comfortable, um, uh, what should they do? They should just let make it known that they don't feel comfortable and at that point just not return. I, I can't. Not I'm sure I'm not the only one whose blood is boiling right now when you listen to that. And I just want to say, can you imagine? I mean, it, some of this has got to be on purpose. Can you imagine a generation of children that, whether they liked it or not, had to cover their smiling faces, had to suck in, you know, their own excrement that they're exhaling out? They're no matter under whatever protest. In fact, we hear about how they're sent out in the hall or the denied recess if they're caught pulling their mask down too many times. The level of compliance and drones that are being created by our school systems through this type of effort. And I know you're going to get into how it's just not even scientifically based, but the human spirit, what they're doing to these children, that generation will be so malleable and pliable to whatever political system wants to run their lives. It's incredible. It's so terrifying. I can see this in China fine, but here in the United States of America, anybody pushing this with the science we now know should be arrested as far as I'm concerned. This is an abomination. I want to say, I just want to give a shout out right now because here in Texas, we've been really good on this, but my wife, you know, we worked, as soon as this started happening in schools, my wife went and built a homeschool co-op with several parents where we brought in teachers. We kept the education going, but our kids never saw a mask on their face. There are ways through this. We stood against it even when that was here in Texas and we all have to stand. We've got to start creating these environments that allow our children to be children and allow them to have, you know, uh, 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 an inner instinct and intuition and the ability to say, no, I don't like this uh, and I'm not doing it. Uh, I can't imagine the generations, but those of us that are protecting our kids right now, you're looking at the future leaders of the world, no doubt, because I can't imagine these kids that have just learned to comply what they're going to turn into. And that statement by her that we just listened to was shockingly ignorant and yeah. reckless. It's one thing about the masks, and we're going to cover this in just a moment about the science, the, the, the growing body of science that masks are really inefficient. But to keep kids out of school, this is not debatable at this point, the damage that has caused. So when she says, don't come back, absolutely reckless and yeah. shockingly ignorant. That's It keeps running through my mind. So. Keep in mind, uh, Los Angeles County, San Diego Unified School District, they're looking at hospitalizations and they're looking at cases. And there was an internal briefing by LAC plus uh, USCS, LA County and uh, University of Southern California's medical system, gigantic medical system in California, internal briefing by some of their leaders about what they're seeing on the COVID side. This was on July 14th, right before these announcements of masking came in. Listen to this. I was talking about the weather continued blankety blankiness. It's just the same. It's not changed. It's been the same. It's like two months of the same. You can see countywide numbers with the top graph. It's just, you know, it's like plateaued and it's not going down. It's sort of eh, trickle up a little, but really not much. It's just been like that. And we're getting thousands of cases per week across the county. 
The numbers at LAC COVID positive tests have continued to go up, but this isn't because we're seeing a ton of people with symptomatic disease getting admitted. If you go to the bottom graph, it's the same thing. We're seeing a lot of people with mild disease in urgent care or ED who go home and do not get admitted. And of those who are admitted, they're 90% of the time not admitted due to COVID. Only 10% of our COVID positive admissions are admitted due to COVID. Virtually none of them go to the ICU. And when they do go to the ICU, it is not for pneumonia. They are not intubated. They are not these horrible 100% FIO. We haven't seen one of those since, since February. I mean, that is really such critical information. It just shows you, you know, why aren't these people in the same room? Why is the information not penetrating this agenda-driven administration in San Diego and in, in Los Angeles and, of course, Sacramento? I want to make a statement here because there is, you know, on this show, we present a lot of different science and a lot of different perspectives. And this kind of came up. This is the sort of discussion about the BA4, BA5 variant that seems to be more infectious mm -hmm. than Omicron. I keep seeing the little ticker from the CDC showing that more and more the country is in a high level of infection. But let's be clear, they've already stated we're going to have to learn to live with this. We're going to talk about why the vaccine is the cause for this continued rise in infection rates. But there was something that happened last week in a video Robert Malone had stated before uh, the, at the state capitol here in Texas in a video we played. He said, look, I was wrong about this and so was Geert van den Bosch talking about the BA4, BA5 variant. Um, and a lot of people wrote into our show. And in fact, Geert van den Bosch, I think, is a little bit frustrated saying we're undermining what he thinks is really important. He still believes that this virus is driving uh, a, a, a mutant there, an escape mutant that could ultimately be very, very problematic for the world. So let me just clarify, because we have a lot more conversations off screen. What Robert Malone is saying is that he is not down with fear porn. He wrote a whole article about it. We talked about it, that we shouldn't be running around alarmist and in fear because that just puts the government back in control of our lives. And what I think he's saying is something we have to recognize. The BA4-5, which is clearly more infectious, it's, you know, it's very, it's really, we have a high level of infection, but if we're not being hospitalized and we're not dying, then there's no reason to be creating a level of fear that allows them to say, see, now we got to mask you. Now we got to do all these other things. And so I want to say that, you know, though it may come across like, well, are you against Geert now? I think all of these guys are right at different times and at different focused perspectives of the conversations we're having. We will continue to bring Geert van den Bosch on to share with us how he thinks the virus is mutating, advancing. We'll continue to have Malone that will challenge that at times, sometimes agree. This is what science is. I want to make this clear over and over again. We are not an agenda driving network here. We are seeking the truth like you should be. We are asking the questions of all the best. And by the way, that's how science works. Rarely do they agree. In fact, when they're all in lockstep agreement and they're censoring somebody that's not in agreement, that's the moment you should get really terrified about what's going on. And so I just want to clarify that because a lot of people have written in um, I think BA4-5 is not proven to be this deadly lung-infecting variant that we've announced it could be. Doesn't mean there's not one in the future, but right now, I, I think Malone's making the point, let's not turn this into fear porn from our side. 
And both of those gentlemen are prolific writers. Malone yeah. at his Substack and Van den Bosch, he has his own website. Yeah. And they put out tons of information. So, you know, if you want to stay up to speed on that, we obviously cover this on the show. We have them on, but yeah. you can check out their websites too. Those doctors at LA County, USC, said three huge pillar pieces that we've covered on this show to drive home. And it happened so fast. One, they said that only... 10% of the people coming were for, for, for COVID. Now we've covered this before. This has been, this is really the epidemic was people coming in with like a broken toe or a sprained ankle. Right. They get tested and go, Oh, you have a, you have COVID. All of a sudden that's, that's in the case rates. But these people that's aren't a seeking hospital, the hospital. That's a hospital driven test. Like in the hospital, yes. hospital this, says tested positive. Right. Got yes. It. And this was driving up children hospitalizations early on when they were really drumming up uh, support for the vaccine. Yeah. They, they came out and said, well, it's not the case. And then we knew the Omicron variant was infectious, but it was not putting people on ventilators. Uh, it was actually, you know, a couple articles are calling it nature's vaccine. So these people are getting, you know, so to speak, probably really great natural immunity. So just wanted to add those pieces yeah. in there. But this is not a California phenomenon with this masking. In Germany, they're trying the same thing, but it's even crazier. Listen to this headline. It's not a Politico. COVID mask will return in Germany, says Justice Minister. It says in the article, while the summer COVID-19 wave was flattening, the government was preparing a response for an onslaught in the fall and winter, which it would present to Parliament for legislative approval in September. So really, really read that sentence there. More crystal the, ball silence, science there, right. Yeah. It, 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 cases are going down, but we're going to vote on legislation in September because we think they're going to go up in fall and winter. Oh, okay. But one of the things here, we have a great new mask study that's adding to this, this just breadth of mask studies we already have here. And this was out of North Dakota. If anyone wants to look this up, it's called Association Between School Mask Mandates and SARS-CoV-2 Student Infections, Evidence from a Natural Experiment of Neighboring K-12 through Districts in North Dakota. So you had these two districts, Fargo and West Fargo, right next to each other. One had a mask mandate, one didn't. And this is what the authors found. We observed no significant difference between student case case rates while the districts had differing mask policies, nor while they had the same mask policies. The IRRs, that's incident rate ratio, that's cases, across the two periods were also not significantly different. Our findings contribute to a growing body of literature which suggests school-based mask mandates have limited to no impact on the case rates of COVID-19 among K-12 through students. And this is, you know, this is a lot. We read a lot. We show a lot of science on this show. So let's just go to the charts. Yeah. This is sometimes just conveys the information even better. So this is the chart here, Fargo versus West Fargo. Now that black line are the masked students. This is the uh, weekly percentage of students testing positive. And you see it kind of crisses and crosses from September, 1st of September all the way to December. And then that big spike, that's the Omicron surge. And mm. you notice the black line, those are the masked kids. They had a harder time. They had more cases in that cohort than the than the unmasked students at the school. And then they both went down at a similar rate. And then just to show you the rates that were found in here, here's a bar graph. This is basically similar rates of um, COVID case infections, the IRR rates, the incident rates. Wow. It's basically the same between the schools, almost no difference. So that's what we're looking at here. But we're, okay, so we're showing masks might not work against COVID, but there's another issue we have here. We have these masks. We're wearing them daily, weekly. They're in our cars. They're stuffed in our purses. What is that doing? They can't be that clean. You, know, you can't tell me these things right. are clean. Well, a study for looking at uh, volunteers in Japan is finding some really interesting information. So this is the study here, bacterial and fungal isolation from face masks under the COVID-19 pandemic. So they looked at, um, they looked at these things and they also took into account um, 
people, how they, how they um, use transportation. Are they on buses? Are they on trains? Are they in their own private? Do they, and, and then personal hygiene. Do they gargle when they get home? All of this. And this is what, this is what they found. They, they write, we found several pathogenic microbes, Bacillus cereus, Staphylococcus, Saprophyticus, Aspergillus, Microsporum. We also found no association of mask-attached microbes with the transportation methods or gargling. We propose that immunocompromised people should avoid repeated use of prevent microbial infection. Absolutely incredible. And yeah. just to drive this point home, we have an image from the study. They cultured all of these uh, fungal cultures and bacterial cultures. And this is what they found here, just a huge amount of them. But you look across the top and it says pathogenicity. These are things that are pathogenic to humans, really not good to have on your mask. That's why they say if you're immunocompromised, you want to really keep replacing your mask because all of those things with pluses, one, two, three, four, five, six pluses are all pathogenic hanging around it, on these masks. It's really amazing. It's like the worst things, the worst pathogenic ones are the ones the most like 38%, 30% of people had this in their masks. I mean, this isn't just like some slight issue. It's that those are huge, terrifying numbers that, that we're doing to ourselves. Absolutely. And then you think about, you know, when you're, you know, you have a waiter that is, keeps pulling it down to talk to you and touching it, touching it, touching the pad, touching the check they're handing to you, touching the table, all the people putting their mask on the table. I mean, this whole thing is so disgusting. I've, I've said, I want to do a, you know, a video where we just do the same thing with underwear, take it off, hang it around your mirror, put it back on, take it off, put it on the table in the dining room, you know, put them back on. I mean, it's the same thing, right? You're, we know this for a fact. This is not healthy and forget about, these are adults doing that. You want to what the kids are doing with these masks <laughs> yeah. my god this is so stupid so we're looking at this like 10,000 foot view and it appears that the masks are, are trying to come back in here and yeah. one of those data points is the renewal of the public health emergency this was by uh, HHS secretary Javier Becerra and this is it right here this is right off their website hhs.gov and again this isn't just once or twice this is the 11th time by my count this thing has been renewed and you know what this does is it, people are asking well why is this renewed well it does a lot of things on the back end with Medicaid it keeps people enrolled um, there's a lot of access uh, further access to telemedicine but one of the big things it does is it keeps those emergency use authorization products like vaccines on the market. If yeah. this emergency was not renewed, everything under EUA is gone it, that Has day. To go back to what does that mean? Safety trials to get approved and all of those things. So what is where would that leave us? Do we, do we get a chance to look into that? Where yeah. does that leave us? If EUA you know goes away, who is getting who gets the COVID vaccine and who doesn't at that point? Uh, so we have only two vaccines in the market if EUA goes away. We have Pfizer's vaccine, which is the, the marketing one, is the, it's called Cominarty, yep. and that's for 12 years and older. So they, they'll get a vaccine. And Moderna's, it's called Spikevax, that's for 18 years and older. Everything else, forget about boosters, forget about kids' vaccines, forget about infants, off the table. Those wow. are all EUA currently. So we have two vaccines basically for 12 and 18 years of older, respectively. So while they're telling you to learn to live with it, this has been a disaster, the virus is never going away, we need to stay in a constant state of emergency so that we never have to do a proper safety test is what they're essentially saying. And we can just tell you the vaccine's great, even though we have no proof to, to prove that, like, like Matt Hancock said, just running on no data and a bunch of wishful thinking, and anyone that speaks out against us should lose their license or be censored. It's a great world. Those are very important dimensions I mean, of yeah, this Yeah, it's great. Uh, Luckily, extension. so many of you are watching the show now and waking up. It's great.
Well, some of the other people that are not happy about this and the masking are uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. He's out of Florida. He's been very vocal lately on anything that uh, looks like it's going to go back into an unscientific pandemic response. Here was him on Twitter. He said, forced masking is back in California. Leftist states cannot help themselves. They're philosophically addicted to mandates and restrictions. In Florida, we know what freedom looks like, and this isn't it. We will never allow the left to seize power and impose mandates on Floridians. So I guess that's a little refreshing if you're living in California, looking at Florida, seeing what they're doing there. Yeah. Um, you know, that's probably why there's a big exodus to the places like Texas, like Florida, yep. for a lot of people that in, uh, lived in California, like yourself. Yep. It's true. I mean, look, and, we, we didn't feel like when I travel to California, when I travel to these places like New York, I try to remind that audience I know you're getting a sense of what the world is, but you are living in a bubble here. There are places all over this country that are living freely and not locked down right now, not wearing masks, having perfectly normal lives. Um, so I would definitely recommend this. If you live in California, New York, these places, you see this all coming back, take a road trip, hop in a car, rent a car, get an RV, and go out and check out the rest of the country and say, is there anywhere else I could live if I was allowed to be free? Right. And, and uh, we, we run with a lot of stories here early on. We run with a lot of things that sometimes may not be fully uh, developed yet because yeah. we, we sent something here. We see something in the data that's lining up that is, is truthful. And this was one of the stories now as it comes out in the mainstream, sometimes weeks, sometimes years later, we have to do a flashback just to remind people that we did cover this. So in April in 2021, we covered this story. Take a look at this. All right. Take a step back and see how we what we got here in February, basically mid-February, we started to see these reports out of Israel because they were one of the first countries to really uh, blanket their population with these uh, Pfizer shot. That's in mid-February, some vaccinated Israeli women report irregular menstrual cycles, bleeding. It says in here, several Israeli women who received the coronavirus vaccine have posted on social media in recent days that they had been experiencing irregular menstrual cycles and abnormal vaginal bleeding. The health minister received similar reports from 13 women saying their period came early, while others reported irregular uh, bleeding between their menstrual periods. So it's interest. This is such an interesting story because it's being driven by social media. People reporting on social media. Now remember, uh, the the COVID vaccine trials, all of them, they were not reporting this. They were not keeping track of any changes in uh, in cycles or uh, menstruation. So people are having to take to social media to really talk about this because they are experiencing this. So this was in the which, daily which mail. Which I want to add is somewhat shocking because I remember what we did report is you weren't really allowed to be pregnant in any of these trials. And in fact, you weren't supposed to be having sexual intercourse during these trials. And so there was something about fertility or, you know, germline transfer, things that we've talked about that had them concerned. So it's amazing that nowhere in the trials was a group actually watching, you know, Know, the heart of fertility being you know menstruation and ovulation wow yeah i remember that and there's so many people writing to the show talking about this issue people that were seeing you know yeah. all of these issues and you know it went a step further a lot of people that weren't vaccinated but had someone that just been vaccinated around them suddenly they were having a shift in their menstrual cycle but so is there is there new data coming out on this there is, yeah, and, and so many stories. We all hear these stories. And just remember, when we were hearing these stories early on, this is what the headlines were telling 
us. Uh, no data on COVID vaccines to menstrual changes, U.S. experts say. Here's another one. No, we don't know if vaccines change your period. And it goes on to say, so far, there's no data linking the vaccines to changes in menstruation. Even if there is a connection, one unusual period is no cause for alarm. And then even Reuters here, here's, here's a great headline. It's two pieces of unscientific um, data in one headline. Vaccines not linked to menstrual changes, COVID flu shots can go together. Uh, but we do have new data on this. And it started really in uh, January of this year. The National Institutes of Health did its own uh, study on a U.S. cohort. And this was, a, this was at their own website right here. You can go to their own website and see this. COVID-19 vaccines linked to small increase in menstrual cycle length. And this is the study here, association between menstrual cycle length and coronavirus disease, 2019 vaccination. And what they did find was it wasn't quite a day. It was like 0.64 or something of a day, uh, plus or minus on the front end or back end of the cycles. But one of the explanations was, well, it, it's, it could be stress from the pandemic response. The lockdowns are really stressing people out. And, you know, the stress has been known to, uh, you know, change menstrual cycles and, and links of a period. So in their study, this is the NIH again, this is what they write. Our results cannot be explained by generalized pandemic stress because our unvaccinated control group saw no changes over a similar period, a uh, similar time period. Very important piece of information wow. there from yeah. that study. And now this is the this is the big story, really. And that survey, those, those social media um, responses were actually collected. A, a doctor outside the U.S. government did a survey, a large survey of, of people. And this is what she found in her her colleagues. This is the headline here. I believe C CBS News menstrual changes after COVID vaccines may be far more common than previously known. So this is the new headline. This is where it's at right now. And this is a study here investigating trends in those who experience menstrual bleeding changes after SARS-CoV-2 infection. Now, the real, the big takeaway from this study that everybody's reporting on is this uh, right here. In this sample, it says 42% of people with regular menstrual cycles bled more heavily than usual. Wow. Uh, than usual. Okay. That's yeah. what we have here. Big, big story. Um, I believe 44% saw no change. And then there was some people that were uh, in neither neither category. But if you read into the article a little more, this research study, this is what the mainstream is not reporting on. Among non-menstruating premenopausal respondents, 1,815 of them, on hormonal treatments, a majority, 65.7% experienced breakthrough bleeding after a vaccine. And then this is another data point, super important. Among post-menopausal people, so these the, the period stopped. I believe in the in the study it was um, for 12 months or longer, no uh, no cycle among postmenopausal people who were not on any hormonal treatments. 238 of them breakthrough bleeding was reported by 66% of respondents. So, so they started bleeding again. And there's another chart. Again, if we're we're just looking at really the bombshell yeah. things that the mainstream should have reported on. This is a chart of um, some reproductive issues. We have endometriosis, fibroids, uh, PCOS, and you can see all of these after the vaccination reported heavier bleeding, every single one of these categories. So it appears from this study, this survey, that reproductive um, issues uh, are, are exacerbated by the vaccine. You know, and I suppose people that are brand new watching this today could be... It's almost like something with the vaccine interacts with our reproductive systems as human beings. It's almost like that. Just a little. I'm sure it's just coincidental. A lot also, of coincidences what, out there. What you can learn is uh, watch the high wire or you can wait a year or two to see it on the news. <laughs> right. You Grand Theft World showing you the high wire. 
go watch the high wire weekly on Thursdays. You're going to learn a lot more than you're going to get from uh, MSM mainstream media. The mainstream that they're giving you is a stream of urine. Or maybe it's like that stream that Biden left trailing his leg in the Vatican. These are other stories we're not going to cover. That's an old story. That's old poop right there. Um, let's get into Urine this intermission. Without Amanita. Sorry. Let's, uh, what we have in the intermission is, let me set it up like this. <clears throat> First of all, oh, yeah, do your thing. Sorry. I think I have an interview coming up this week with Clint Russell of Liberty Lockdown. And because I am who I am, I uh, want to keep up with Clint's work. I keep up with a lot of my colleagues and peers who produce good work. So I was watching this Clint Russell joint from a couple days ago. And uh, oh, it was from Freedom Fest. So maybe like last week, right? So I was watching some clips and he was interviewing Josh from Epic Times. And he interviewed a bunch of people during the episode. But during his interview with Josh, Josh was saying these quotes and I didn't believe him. So I was like, let me go look at this documentary that you're talking about. Cause this has been, you know, it's off my radar. It's not a topic I've uh, uh, dived into too much. So anyway, I watched this uh, was an hour and 45 minute documentary and it has to do with the dealings of January 6th. So we're going to take a preview of a documentary that was just released a couple days ago. I think it was like July 22nd or something. And uh, it's called what, Tony? The uh, real, the real story, story of January 6th. The real story of January 6th. We're going to let it play for like the first half hour. And if you want to see more, you can go to uh, Epic Times Epic Times website, or I found it on Odyssey and, and Rumble and these sort of places. So we're going to take a look at where we get it from, Rumble or Odyssey, Tony? I have it from Odyssey, the one you posted in the production. Channel. All right, cool. Yeah, that one played yeah. fine. And uh, let's just take it. So this is not saying this is what happened. This is saying for your consideration, here's some basic uh, pieces. And then uh, you, I'm also showing this because the, the public has seen the government's official narrative and they got the, the kangaroo court going on where they only show mm -hmm. one side of the evidence. Yeah, it's the, not a, it's the not Senate a real trial. committee for the it's insurrection. Like, yeah, it's more like what Kafka that's a witch hunt. outline. That's a fucking witch hunt. He was writing. What's going yeah. on right now? Yeah, it's more like his outline. <laughs> it is no, no it is quite literally caught it's all very kafka-esque kafka there you go all right so let's go to uh this documentary the real story is it the real story of january 6th? real story of january 6th yep right on real story of january 6th intermission here on grand theft world episode 90 they dragged her out and it reminded me of deer hunting you drag out of a deer carcass hey! He was completely out of control. He himself was committing crimes in the process. There's people from all over the nation, from every state. There has been a lot of fraud. He could stop this. At least one person over here is being injured and taken Capitol away. Capitol Hill, overtaken by Americans. The story of January 6 changes drastically, depending on who's telling it. The House Select Committee on January 6 has deemed the incident an attack on the American system, comparable to the bombing of Pearl Harbor or even the terrorist attacks on 9-11. It's being investigated as a potential insurrection that could allegedly incriminate former President Donald Trump. And it's being used domestically to 
frame a new narrative on domestic extremism. Yet is this narrative really the case? Imagine if the American people actually saw just what happened to Roseanne Boylan and these officers who keep portraying themselves as heroes that day. He fires at her and strikes her in the left shoulder. It's a failure not only of training, but it's also a failure of bystandership and supervision. January 6th demands a full and impartial investigation, one free from foregone conclusions, hidden agendas, and naked hyperbole. The nation needs a serious examination of January 6th, one that includes the subjects too often ignored in media coverage and in political speech. With interviews, on-the-ground reporting, and exclusive footage, we'll now tell the real story of January 6th. Yeah, we're on the ellipse now. We'll meet you soon. Good stuff. Thank you. To begin this investigation, I sat down with Joe Hanneman, the lead reporter on January 6th at the Epic Times, to review our footage. January 6th started out as a protest, uh, a large gathering to hear President Trump speak about his concerns and his charges that there was widespread fraud of the presidential election. And people came in very large numbers to the ellipse in Washington, D.C. to hear his speech. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Stop the steal. His speech ran long, or his appearance went over time. And I think that caused some issues over at the Capitol because there were people gathered over there who were already in the process of breaching some of the security lines before the president had stopped speaking. So the people that were encouraged to go to the Capitol peacefully and made their voices heard were largely still over listening to the president when some of these uh, unusual things happened on the Capitol grounds. It really goes to the heart of other unusual happenings that day, the role of suspicious actors in various places around the Capitol, and all of which lead you to the conclusion that a deeper look is needed to really define that, what January 6th is, because we're still trying to define it. People are talking about violence on January 6th. How did the police factor into this? I mean, who was really instigating things? Which side? Well, there was plenty of police uh, provocation. The initial use of explosive munitions that day that started at about 1.25 in the afternoon, where the police launched explosives into the crowd, which was pretty much just milling there and standing. And these were very loud, deafening. And some of them had projectiles, uh, hard plastic pellets that rained down, and uh, some had tear gas in them. But when they landed in the middle, they caused injuries, and they got a very angry response. That was a large crowd. From what I saw, there was quite a few older people in that crowd, and they fired munitions even far to the back people that wouldn't have known what was going on up front. So this created an atmosphere that I think percolated through the rest of the day. And they continued firing into this crowd for well over an hour using those, what I would call, heavy munitions. So I don't know what their strategy was in using munitions, which uh, they had said they were not going to use the less than lethal force munitions and things like that on January 6th. 
Were the actions of the Capitol Police out of line? Were there violations in use of force? And what are the legalities of this? We spoke with Stan Keffard, one of the nation's top experts on police use of force and one of the top-rated expert witnesses in court cases on crowd control. Keffard has 42 years of law enforcement experience, including as security director for the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. He served as an officer, detective, undersheriff, and chief of police at jurisdictions in Arizona, California, and Missouri. He has testified more than 350 times in federal, state, and tribal courts. Supervisory failure, a frontline supervisor, a sergeant, or whoever's in control, a lieutenant, should have put those people in posted positions or in a skirmish line or in a defense posture, put them between the objective that they were protecting and the crowd. That wasn't being done. That was a shooting gallery up there. A congregation of officers, I didn't see a supervisor among them, who were using these munitions to inflict harm uh, and injury on people below them. It's egregious. Rubber bullets have the potential to put an eye out. Shooting down into a crowd at the head level, which is the first primary target that would be hit by those rubber bullets, runs the risk of having somebody's eye put out or having them permanently disfigured. Impact front on from ground level is designed to hit somebody in the chest or lower so that it will sting and put them in flight. That is the design and purpose of the tool. These are people who largely support police law and order back the blue, so they did not understand why they were being fired upon. These were throughout the crowd, so there was definitely a stirring the pot effect, and, and eventually it, it did come to a boil in certain areas. The protester was climbing the wall. He had seen somebody put a giant American flag up on the scaffolding for inauguration, and he wanted to put his Trump flag up. He scaled the wall, and when he got up there, he didn't have a chance to put the flag up. A couple officers took swipes at him over the rail and missed him, but then he actually got into a standing position, and a motorcycle police officer from Capitol Police came up with a pretty good stride and shoved him, and he fell at least 20 feet and was seriously injured. That was witnessed by a lot of people. And then when they carried him out, a lot of the crowd saw the after effects of that and they were very upset. My analysis of a police officer pushing somebody off the wall is that that individual is committing a crime, a very serious crime, again, putting that person's life at risk. It is unconscionable for an officer to do such a thing. The officer is required to take that person off the wall, strip cuff them, take them into custody and arrest them. Hold tight, hold tight, we're getting remission. Hey, hey, we're coming. What is happening here? Why is this officer behaving like this? And his behavior seems to be a lot different from the other officers. He stood out to us because of, uh, almost in a manic state, he was looking for more munitions. He had used his up and so he was, going to fellow officers and grabbing their munitions, whether it was a taser cartridge or it was uh, one of the grenades that they use with the, the hard plastic pellets. Hey! 
We need more munitions. We did not see that from other officers, where it was, and as soon as he got one, he'd pull the pin and he would lob it into the crowd, and you'd hear it explode. He was completely out of control. A supervisor should have stopped him, got him out of that area, and he himself was committing crimes in the process. Three ACD deployments. I got another taser. If you tase somebody, you're obligated to cuff them, now that you've neutralized them, arrest them, and that's not what he was doing. He was using those devices to punish people, not to arrest them, and that is unconscionable. Hey, Rich. It's a failure not only of training, but it's also a failure of bystandership and supervision. An officer who is placed at risk of being injured or killed because of the action of another officer who precipitated a circumstance that began to be dangerous because he wanted to arrest the person, uh, has a stake in that and would go to the officer and say, I'm going to report you to the sergeant. I don't appreciate that. You put us at risk because of what you were doing. I'm upset with you. But munitions come basically in two types. There are burning grenades and there are blast dispersion grenades. This appears to be blast dispersion, which caught fire. And if you fire them at an individual rather than hitting the ground close to them, you run the risk of incurring injury to that individual that you're trying to A, disperse, or B, mobilize so you can arrest. If you do, that explosion at a face level could blind a person, it could deafen them for life, it could do both. And that was what was depicted here in this film script. There is no tactical reason at all. This is something that is, you're showing intent by shooting at that level. It was also evident to me that the crowd was angry. The one-finger salute that was being given by that activist was a clear indication that they were mad. So what you've done is you've constructively created a problem that you started out to disperse or arrest people with. You have uh, contradicted what your mission was in the first instance, which was to disperse that crowd, get them back, because the chemical munitions were having effect on them uh, and not to uh, do something that is, um, in my mind, sadistic and um, wrong, just wrong. Do we know anything about this incident with the bomb goes off in the crowd that this officer threw? Well, I'm not sure that particular grenade, uh, if we know what the result was, but others, they fell in amidst two gentlemen who fairly shortly after had cardiac events. One, I believe, was a stroke, the other was a heart attack. That loud of a retort in, I don't certainly can't say that that medically triggered it, but a stimulus like that to anybody that's got a bad heart, those fellows both dropped pretty quickly, and they were carried out, and both of them eventually died. You may have a person who has a condition that could evoke a reaction on their part that would be detrimental to their health. I'm not going to say that that's what happened here. I'm not a medical expert. I don't know. But I think it more probable than not that this precipitated what happened. The closer the density of the crowd, the more problematic the use of these tools is in terms of a number of things. 
There have been panic reactions on compacted crowds resulted in trampling deaths and injuries uh, that occur. It's designed to get people to disperse, but in doing it with a compacted crowd, there isn't really that much maneuverability to disperse. And so it is a consideration that the commander uh, should review before using this type of grenade. And if he determines that that is a danger because of the compacted nature of the crowd, a burning uh, dispersion grenade would be a better tool because the gas is coming. It's not an explosion that causes the micro-pulverized uh, particles to be embedded in people. One of them may have been struck by a projectile. Uh, a witness did report that, was struck in the side of the head, but they were in very close proximity, so they would have certainly felt the concussion. They may have even felt the heat uh, and certainly uh, any of the gas that came off of it. And the response was very quick. I mean, within a few seconds, the first fellow was down and he was without a pulse, and they never did bring him back. The autopsy uh, ruled it as a natural death because the, the, these fellows had history of, of heart disease, but it did not go into contributing factors. And, you know, the families were not surprised about the heart attack because of the health conditions, but you cannot ignore the timing. Again, it raises troubling questions that, that really haven't been answered. So the police are pushing people over this barricade. And they were moving people back, but they were on a, somewhat of an elevated platform and were pushing them pretty violently and there was a concrete barrier and they, several of these guys got flipped over. They were pushed so hard and they tumbled. It wasn't a large height, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were injuries. It kind of shocks the census to see it because this wasn't uh, just calmly shoving people back with riot shields or whatever. These, these were, uh, well, kind of looked like a bar fight. It's very disorganized, as you can see, that they're, they're throwing punches, they're striking people with batons, and even who, one going to do it. Did they grab a, someone? Who did they grab here? That's the, that's the fellow who was tased. And he so was, they, they tased this guy and dragged him and in? And then dragged him in, yep. What's depicted here is a police mob confronting a mob and fighting with them using techniques and tactics that they're not authorized to use, that they were not taught and trained to use. Uh, their policies and procedures of any agency that I'm aware of does not include such thing as doing a front snap kick to an individual that you've chased away from the area that was responded to later by the crowd doing the same tactic, a front snap kick to the officers. You've created a one-on-one -on -one contest. This is not a karate match. This is a situation where you're obligated and duty bound to disperse the crowd and to move them back or arrest those who stay there. That's not what was done. There was a severe beating of a woman named Victoria White. What do we know about her case? Well, Victoria White from uh, Rochester, Minnesota, uh, with the crowd had come up to the, the tunnel entrance and she says she had been pushed in by the momentum of the crowd and she ended up being trapped against one of the walls. And fairly short time after she got in there, she was attacked by a police officer, a supervisor from the Metro DC Police Department. And it went on for maybe five minutes. She was struck nearly 40 times in the head and face. When the first blow came to my head by a metal baton, 
it was really bad. And I remember trying to keep myself up um, because I was scared I would be trampled. Originally, I thought I just got hit like three times on the head, but it wasn't until I saw the video that I realized like how bad it was. Get in the tunnel. I remember trying to keep myself up because I was scared I was going to be trampled. And I remember saying to the officer, you took an oath to the Constitution. And he called me the B word. And that's when I got a, one of the hardest blows that I can remember. The head is a sphere. And what happens when you strike a spherical object with a blunted object, at least resistance, and glances off the head? That's a possibility. The second thing is you can hit them flush and kill them. If your intent was to kill them, you should have been using a firearm, not a baton. So it fails, tactically, to use a baton to attempt to use it as a disabling force option. The baton is registered as a less than lethal tool. It is a tool like tear gas. It is a tool like the taser. It is a tool like using your hands to subdue the person so that you can handcuff them and take them into custody. An officer striking her with an overhand blow approximately 10 times to her body, which she was protecting herself by putting her hands up to avoid the blows. Clearly a defensive position, not an attack position. She was also punched in the face with a closed fist by the same officer. I believe it was five times. She suffered a fairly severe beating and the, the video is, is pretty graphic. They were taking her back through the tunnel to detain her. Um, so it was near the doors, the entrance to the Capitol. She is in the midst of a circle of police and she's kind of getting jostled back and forth. I know at some point my shoes started to come off and I was falling backwards and my coat around my waist slipped down and then I, I don't know. And then I know at one point I felt like I was falling backwards, then being pushed between officers, like ping-ponged. They had my hands behind my back. I didn't have my shoes. I just had my socks when they took me in. There's no words to express the way that I feel right now and um, the atrocities that are, have gone on. The fact that we're labeled as terrorists we're labeled as racist. I am a mom of four mixed daughters. I love all people. People's lies about us are causing myself and other January Sixers to endure unspeakable hell. And justice for us, it, it, it seems almost impossible. Phrases that would populate news sites all day and for months to come were repeated in near uniform. Storm the Capitol, breach police lines, insurrectionists, treason. Homogenous coverage came in real-time dispatches from the Capitol. But at the same time, rally-goers had trouble making calls or sending texts to the grounds all day. January 6th was a display of grievance on behalf of a large swath of American society. That such an aggressive slice of the political world pushed these terms relentlessly raises the first somewhat rhetorical question of why. Julie Kelly, 
political commentator and senior contributor to American Greatness, has been one of the leading journalists on this topic. It's all by design. And the idea that there are still people who believe, especially people on the right, who somehow still believe that the events of January 6th were organic. It was this uprising incited by Donald Trump's speech that day at the Ellipse. They're burying their head in the sand. So it's almost like a child. If no one is punished, no one pays any consequences for the biggest fraud perpetrated on the American people until January 6th, the Russia collusion hoax. Because they all got away with it, they were emboldened. And so that is what propelled them to then hijack the 2020 presidential election and then figure out a way after that how to bury and criminalize criticism of the 2020 election to finish off Donald Trump and the entire MAGA movement, which was the purpose of this inside job of January 6th. And so unfortunately, here we are. No one still has been held criminally responsible for Russiagate. And now we see the same interests dovetailing who coalesce behind the events of January 6th. What I think they're trying to do is take those two groups um, and tie them to Donald Trump. The Oath Keepers who provided security for Roger Stone on January 5th, that'll kind of be, in my view, the way to get to Trump through the Oath Keepers. The Proud Boys, obviously, when Trump was led into saying, stand back and stand by Proud Boys in that uh, 2020 debate, they're gonna describe that as the rallying call to get the Proud Boys to attack the Capitol, overthrow democracy. So I think that's where uh, they're headed, but that's right. This has always been about Trump, right? Well, it definitely is. It has nothing to do with January 6th, and this is why I think a lot of Americans are tuning it out, because they have not asked the hard questions. Why was the Capitol intentionally unsecure that day? Why did Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, Sergeant at Arms, the people who are responsible for securing the Capitol, not Donald Trump, the Capitol Police Board, which uh, included those two men, Paul Irving and Michael Stanger, why did they repeatedly reject pleas from Steven Sund, the ex-Capitol Police Chief, for extra help that day? Even as the chaos unfolded on January 6th, they still denied um, deploying the National Guardsmen, which of course Trump had already offered. In December, I think I said it was a setup. Um, I think now I describe it as an inside job. Um, because it's the same interests who brought us Russiagate and everything since then, who conspired behind the scenes to execute the events of January 6th and now to uh, reap all of the political benefits that we've seen ever since. 18 months of nonstop fixation, um, the criminalization of political dissent, and an attempt to finally drive a stake in the heart of the MAGA movement. This stuff does not happen by accident in Washington, D.C. So that's basically how I describe uh, January 6th to, uh, to anyone who wants to know exactly what the truth is, and that is uh, the truth that I believe. If the media and if the FBI and the DOJ, in my documents, like the indictment or um, whatever my charges are, whatever, they make me out to be the aggressor. It's clearly not me, but the officers in that tunnel that were the aggressor. And if they can say, take a picture, for instance, a screenshot, a video, and say that, oh, look, she's trying to grab onto the shield. I was trying to hold myself up. And if they can say, oh, look, she's hitting the officer. 
or trying to pull him down or whatever they said. And yet I'm telling him to stop spraying me in my face. It, it just stopped. But they want to turn all that like I'm out to get them, like I'm out to, to beat the police. In all that beating, all of that, I, I did not punch an officer. I didn't fight back against the police who, who abused me. And if they can lie about me, I know for a fact that they can lie about everybody else that was there that day. Before the smoke of tear gas had cleared at the Capitol, the decision was made at the highest levels of government to hunt down everyone who was at the Capitol on January 6th. The FBI and the Department of Justice began rounding up suspects the very next day in the most far-flung investigation of its kind. Many suspects experienced the full SWAT treatment as federal tactical teams in armored vehicles prowled through suburban neighborhoods. Front doors were blown off and flashbangs tossed inside. Family members were greeted with the laser sights of M4 carbines trained on their bodies. Even children were handcuffed as agents sorted out who was who. Some 850 people have been arrested for primarily misdemeanor charges, such as entering and remaining in a restricted building, and even parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a Capitol building. Some defendants were denied bail and still sit behind bars. To be charged, even with trespassing, meant being shunned by the community as traitors or insurrectionists. Some were fired for their jobs, based only on allegations. For one of the defendants, Matthew Perna, the pressure was too much. He pled guilty to a felony charge of obstructing Congress, and also misdemeanor charges. For these, he was facing over 20 years in prison, and he decided to end his own life. His aunt, Jerry Perna, said the charges that led to his death were unjustified. The way they're going after people is absolutely insane. And then on the other hand, on the other side of the coin, you have people committing crimes, blatantly robbing and looting stores in California and places, and they're not even being arrested. You can steal up to $900 and not even be arrested, but you can't walk into the Capitol, the people's house, with police saying, come on in. Nothing about this is normal. I don't put anything past them at this point. I don't. Um, they're out for blood, and they're getting it. They appear to be winning. I believe with Matt and with many other of the J6ers, I believe that this DOJ jumped the gun on these felony charges with many of them. And I believe they just randomly passed these charges out and then decided to look for the evidence. And in Matt's case and so many others, they simply didn't have the evidence. But it was a roller coaster of emotion from that point on, constant. And he was watching the other cases and how they were pleading, comparing his case to their case. Every time he had a hearing, it was delayed. He would gear himself up mentally, prepare himself, and they would delay it. Sometimes they would tell him when it would be, sometimes it was indefinitely delayed. Or it was um, discovery, 
They don't have enough, you know, they're still going through the discovery process. And that was mentally exhausting for him. It contributed immensely to Matt's suicide. It did. Um, it was a head game that they were playing with him. They're playing it with the rest of the J6ers. They're playing head games and, and, and it's working. Matt was a very kind-hearted person. He had a smile that would light up a room. He was very thoughtful. He loved talking to people. That was a gift of his. He could sit down with a stranger in a coffee shop and just start having a conversation with them. And he loved learning about their lives and where they were from and how they grew up, especially the elderly. With people, by the end of the conversation, he had made a new friend. And Matt didn't just make friends casually. He kept these people in his life. He had thousands of friends. Matt wrote beautiful paragraphs on every postcard talking about life and how he was enjoying his surroundings. And he sent probably thousands in his lifetime. There's no getting past this and there's nothing anybody could say that's going to make it any better. We miss him so much. And we will forever be heartbroken. Many of the defendants from January 6th are still awaiting trial, and many have been held in continuous solitary confinement, a form of incarceration deemed by the ACLU as a human rights abuse. Epic Times reporter and host of Facts Matter, Roman Balmakov, spoke with January 6th prisoner Jake Lang over the phone to learn about their conditions. I'm in solitary confinement over here. So in D.C. and in Alexandria, I've been in solitary confinement. Um, right now I'm in administrative segregation, it's called, and uh, they won't let me go to general population because um, they want to torture me into uh, trying to take some kind of uh, decade-long plea deal. Uh, 108 months is the most recent plea deal I was offered, a uh, decade in prison for defending saving lives and defending the Constitution. It's cruel and unusual punishment, and it's uh, specifically um, because they want to send a signal out to the rest of the Americans. If you ever dare to stand um, for your Constitution and for your civil liberties, that we will call you domestic terrorists, we'll drag you away from your home and your family and your community, we'll put you in deplorable conditions, um, torture you into ridiculous plea deals, and meanwhile drag your name through the mud throughout all mainstream media and call you white supremacist and all these domestic terrorists and violent insurrectionists and all this ridiculous nonsense. Um, they're using us to uh, punish, uh, pre-punish us before trial and to send a signal out to the American people that um, any resistance uh, that you have to tyranny will be treated as, uh, as I'm being treated right now. And so um, that's why I believe that they're torturing us, um, January 6ers. Were the FBI raids warranted? Is it justified that many defendants have been held in solitary confinement while awaiting trial? Are the long prison sentences mainly for non-violent crimes reasonable? This would depend on what actually took place and just how much of a threat the crowd actually was. Now on the Trump side, we do know there was some violence. How significant was the violence on the Trump side? Well, it certainly can't be denied. Some of the lo locales where there was some instigation, but uh, there was clearly enough trouble from Trump supporters uh, because it's caught on security video where th things were hurled at the police, pieces of furniture, a 16-foot 
aluminum ladder was they tried to use as a battering ram. Where does a 16-foot aluminum ladder come from on the Capitol grounds during a protest? Uh, never quite figured that one out. You saw mops and whisk brooms and uh, office desk drawers, uh, large plastic garbage cans, and a, a stereo speaker, a fairly heavy one, hurled in at the police. We do know that normal, normal riots often have projectiles thrown. We've seen BLM and Antifa riots with uh, firebombs, Molotov cocktails, you know, of course, bricks, other, other objects like that. Was there anything that severe at this protest? There were no incendiaries thrown. Uh, they did uh, arrest a fellow who had brought Molotov cocktails up within a block of the Capitol, but then didn't do anything with them. So of all the Trump supporters, I mean, what was the worst thing that we saw of violence on behalf of the Trump side? There was a line of police uh, that were below a concrete barrier, and they were climbing over. The police were moving out and climbing over. And uh, a man at least wearing Trump's gear, I believe was a Trump supporter, he took a running start and put his shoulder into the back of this police officer with full force. And the police officer went head over heels and landed. I think he was caught by his colleagues who were down below, but it, it was, I'm sure that could have caused an injury. And the video is quite shocking. So that was clearly just wanton violence. This was not a reaction to anything. It's very clear. You can see he stops, seems to be making a conscious decision. And then wasn't a sprint, but it was a pretty good gallop before he made contact. Now, aside from him, were actions like what this individual carried out, were they representative of the rest of the crowd? Was anything like that common? No, I don't believe so. I think your typical uh, rally goer that day, even the ones that went over to the Capitol, uh, were more curious than anything. Now, certainly enough of them got riled up when you're, you're having projectiles fired into your midst, but that particular incident, you did not see a large number of those things. Uh, and I believe they have, they have arrested all of the people, because it's pretty, pretty easy to spot, because uh, when those things are done uh, on video. So, uh, but I think overall it was a s small percentage of the people that were there, which is why you were hearing people saying, I was there and I didn't, I didn't see any of this stuff. Of course, violence on January 6th was not limited to just fighting and riot control. In the aftermath of January 6th, four police officers who were present that day committed suicide. Yet there were also people who died that day. After the incidents on January 6th, one of the first stories that a lot of the media were reporting was this officer, Sicknick, they reported had been beaten to death by protesters using, I believe, a fire extinguisher. What was the real story with Officer Sicknick? Well, the real story is his death was ruled by the medical examiner as uh, from natural causes, that he had a stroke. And um, there was no fire extinguisher thrown at his head. But we continue to hear this used even in prosecutions and our own president uh, over this you know, recent weekend at a commencement said the rioters killed two police on January 6th. They're saying two police now. Who is the other police officer? We'd have to ask him. It, uh, but these things just keep being repeated. We've even seen this brought up in court hearings. And a couple times we've had defense attorneys speak up and say, whoa, wait a minute, that's not true. Uh, four people died January 6th. They were all Trump supporters. Officer Sicknick died the next day. And his case um, was not a result of being struck with any object. So just to review then, 
Five deaths total from January 6th. Officer Sicknick appeared to die afterwards from health complications. We know Ashley Babbitt was shot and killed. Roseanne Boyland appeared to have died during the incident, although it was ruled as amphetamines. And then two individuals who had heart attacks or strokes. Uh, it appears that it was triggered very likely by munitions that officers had used against them. It certainly could have been. I mean, they were close enough that that, that would be a concern. The worst thing that happened that day was the execution of Ashley Babbitt at near point blank range by Lieutenant Michael Byrd, who was exonerated in any alleged investigation, and the deaths of three other Trump supporters, Benjamin Phillips, Kevin Greeson, and Roseanne Boylan, who died, all three of them, very likely due to excessive police force that day. That's another thing the January 6th committee and the DOJ are completely burying, so to speak. U.S. Capitol Police Lieutenant Michael Byrd who was off to Ashley's left when she climbed into the window. And he was fairly tight into the wall. Would have been difficult to see that he was there. And he has spoken publicly that he warned her, you know, he yelled at her to stop. You cannot hear that on any of the audio. It would be arguably very difficult because the, the crowd noise coming from that hallway, it was a din, it was very loud. But he had his gun trained on her as soon as he appears in the frame in the video, you know, it's not just is drawn and he's in shooting stance. And then he advances forward and lunges and then he fires at her and strikes her in the in the left shoulder. In the speaker's lobby, which is a fairly large space with marble columns, behind one of the columns that was probably 15, 20 feet uh, from where Lieutenant Byrd was, there was another officer who at almost the same instant as Lieutenant Byrd drew his weapon into firing position. So he had trained on Ashley Babbitt coming through the window. Uh, it did not fire as far as we know. You know it, the video was shot through cracked glass, so it's very difficult to, to get complete details, but it's very clear he raises his weapon into firing position, and then Lieutenant Byrd fires quite shortly after that. And as far as we know, then he, he drew down and did not did not fire, but there was a second officer by the stance he took, prepared to fire on her. It's hard to approximate the distance, but it would appear to be some eight to 10 feet away from where she was coming through the window, at which time uh, Lieutenant Byrd produced his Glock firearm and fired once without a safe backdrop because there were officers behind her and other innocent persons behind her, striking her whereupon she fell to the floor, mortally wounded. Lieutenant did not go forward and handcuff Ashley Babbitt and administer first aid. Uh, he withdrew, he's out of the picture. There was an additional officer who withdrew his weapon, again pointing it in a direction that was not a safe backdrop, but did not fire. So there's a discrepancy between the need of the lieutenant to fire when another officer didn't fire with the same circumstances. In order for lethal force to be authorized, the officer must be able to articulate that he or she was in fear of losing his life, was about to be killed or grievously injured. There is nothing I saw in that film that would indicate that that was possible or probable uh, from what unfolded. Uh, lastly, I am not aware of any firearms discharge report being written, and I'm not aware of any conclusion 
that stated uh, that he was exonerated based on uh, a thorough internal affairs investigation, including the Graham v. Connor litmus test. The first thing that would happen immediately upon uh, a discharge of firearms would be, as I said, this now is a crime scene. And the lieutenant should have closed on the person that he shot, handcuffed that individual to prevent recovery and necessitating weapon. Next thing, apply first aid. And immediately that area should have been taped off, sealed off. It becomes a crime scene and should await the response of a crime scene investigation unit who would photograph the positions, the measurements, the forensics involved with the discharge of the firearm. A subsequent uh, discharge of firearms report would be required to be written by uh, Lieutenant Byrd. He would be placed on administrative leave with pay. His badge and ID card and firearm would be taken uh, and an internal affairs investigation would begin. Investigation is concluded. That would go to the office of the chief of police who would make a disposition in the case uh, that he, he as, the, um, as the chief, would have to make. I was shocked that the Department of Justice issued a three-paragraph uh, response to this horrific event um, based on the fact that they included in their language uh, the Graham v. Connor uh, litmus test, which is objective reasonableness. Clearly, from in any way, this was not objectively reasonable. And to use that language in defense of Lieutenant Byrd shows a conscious disregard for the facts as to how they came to that conclusion. Lieutenant Byrd's refusal to be interviewed uh, after requesting his lawyer, which never occurred. Are you willing to give us a statement today? I would prefer to have a lawyer present under uh, the, uh, the information that you just provided. That, that is perfectly understandable, and uh, I will not ask you to provide a statement today. I will ask you though, that when you do secure counsel, uh, you have my business card, my contact information on If you have them reach out to me to uh, arrange for you to provide a statement when appropriate. Yes, sir. He has a duty and a responsibility to be libargered, the department to libarger him, to which requires that he answer their questions in an internal affairs investigation or face termination for refusing to answer. He has no right to withhold an answer. My conclusion was that based on what I saw and observed in the video clip, that Ashley Babbitt was murdered. She was shot and killed under color of authority by an officer who violated not only the law but his oath and committed an arrestable offense. What happened to Ashley Babbitt um, would not be allowed to happen anywhere else in the country, let alone have the identity, the name of the police officer involved, have his name concealed from the public for months. Um, that just never happens. Another case of the media working with, the, um, with Congress to protect people uh, who, you know, are, are guilty of a crime. Everyone's seen the video, I think, where Ashley Babbitt was shot, but what's not paid attention to is how she got through this window and exactly what happened. And there are these really suspicious individuals. What is suspicious about these individuals in the scene? 
Well, the number of them, to begin with, uh, Ashley Babbitt, when she made her way up to the window, she was surrounded by people who fit that definition. In her immediate vicinity surrounding her, there were probably three or four. Three or four suspicious actors and 20 suspicious actors total yes. in that room, in that area. And one of them, who was an instigator, Zachary Alam, he was the one bashing the window with, with a black helmet, and he knocked out several window panes. And Ashley Babbitt kind of had a running spar with him. She was screaming at him to stop. She stepped forward, and she punched him in the face. Ashley Babbitt tried to stop this individual then, you're saying? She did. She got after the police officers who were there. Why aren't you stopping this? You know? And, you know, she's been portrayed as a, as a rioter, as a seditionist, uh, but it's very clear in the video and the audio that she was uh, very upset and trying to stop what was happening because they were bashing in the glass in the doors that lead to the uh, speaker's lobby and right onto the house floor. And then when she, and her husband is totally convinced that when she does the, the punch to Zachary Alam, she had decided that she needed to escape from that hallway. That it had gotten scary, the conditions. The SWAT team was coming up the stairs and she was afraid of crowded places. That, so she decided, I have to get out of here. When she climbed up in the window, there were two suspicious actors, one on either side of her. We don't have a clear enough video angle to see if either one of them pushed her up into the window or helped her into the window, uh, but they were in that position on either side of her. And then when she was shot and fell back, again, these same several suspicious actors were right around her when she fell and was laying there. So it raises all sorts of questions. Did they, what role did they have? How did they all get there at the same time along with all these other people? And another suspicious point with all this is one of the individuals who breaks this glass is, is communicating with another one. We can watch them in the video. And then as the SWAT team is moving up the stairs, this individual goes back down the stairs and looks like he's changing his clothes. Zachary Alam did that. When he saw Ashley had been shot, he realized it. Uh, you can see on the video, he physically responds. He almost jumps back and the look of horror. He was genuinely terrified. It, it certainly, certainly seemed to be, even though he had created the conditions that led to that uh, by, by the violence with the helmet and the, the smashed glass. And he did, uh, he did go down the stairs and did not come back up. But there were a number of people on the stairs that we haven't been able to identify and also haven't been charged and who were familiar enough with the police to, to go up to them and say things or pat them on the back. Who they are, we, you know, we still haven't uh, figured out. But for that many unidentified people to be in a space where there was a fatality like that, uh, you know, it, it, it goes to our longer list of, of burning questions. News outlets have tried framing Ashley Babbitt as having not been a peaceful protester, and House Democrats have painted her killer as a hero. Yet video evidence tells a very different story of her and of her death. Who was Ashley Babbitt? We met with her husband, Aaron Babbitt, in San Diego to learn more. Ashley just loved life. She loved herself. Nobody loved Ashley more than her. I mean, she just woke up every day wanting to take on the world and, you know, never had a task that she didn't want to conquer. And the harder it was, the more she wanted to fight for it. She loved her dogs. I mean, we had three dogs. I've lost all three of them since January 6th. 
It's been a rough 18, 19 months. What, what happened on January 6th? I understand you were not there. She went. What, what was kind of the, what did you hear from her and why she wanted to go? We were sitting on the beach in Cabo. It was Christmas Day. She was looking at her phone and she said, President Trump's having a, um, a speech uh, January 6th. And I really think I want to go, um, you know, because it might be the last time I get to him talk, hear him talk, or at least, you know, for another four years. And I kind of shrugged it off, laughed it off, because, you know, we had already been on vacation. We shut our business down for two weeks between Christmas and New Year's. And, but when Ashley has her mindset on something, she's going to do it. And that's the relationship we had. You know, I was, we always wanted the other to do what made them happy. Yeah, so why did, why did you decide not to go as well? Oh, I mean, we have a business. I was not political at that point. The Aaron sitting in front of you on January 5th is completely the Aaron, different Aaron sitting in front of you now. Uh, I was just well over politics. That was more her thing. And obviously, I, you know, I voted and supported for President Trump, and I will again, but it just wasn't my thing. She was having the best day of her life, and you could see that. She put on a Facebook Live video of her walking down the, the inaugural path on the way to the Capitol, and she specifically says that I just got to see President Trump speak, and I can tell you as big of a fan she was and a supporter that she would never leave until he was fully out of sight. Now, did you receive any messages from her when she was in the Capitol building? Yeah, I mean, I got a couple texts, but it was just, you know, I'm inside the Capitol and I was looking at like, you're what? And I turned my TV on real quick. Everybody was inside the house chamber just going about their normal business. And I remember taking a picture of my TV and going, they don't look very concerned. When the news that she was shot came out, what was your reaction? Uh, I watched it live. I was, I was watching it happen. Um, I had to, out here in California, we were still heavily locked down for COVID. I had to make a gym uh, reservation, and I had a short day that day, so I got home at like 11.30 our time. Um, and I got a call somewhere just after 12 saying that uh, it, it was from a person that I really don't talk to. I mean, him and Ashley's wife were really good friends. We're, we're buddies when we're around each other, but that's about it. He said that his wife had um, thought that she had seen Ashley on TV and looked like she'd been hurt. There was something about a door or a window. I could hear the trembling in his voice, and I hung the phone up. I walked outside you know, into the living room, and I turned my TV on, and the very first image I saw was Ashley laying on the ground with blood, you know, blood coming out. The lights went out. I collapsed. I came to, there, was, there were people in my house um, I knew them, but I don't remember them coming in. At that point, I mean, my life really just changed forever. I mean, I had to, my phone started ringing, and I'm, you know, thinking, hey, I'm getting info now. And it's, hey, this is so-and-so from this TV station in San Diego. I, 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 you're not who I want to talk to. I'm trying to find out what happened to my wife, you know, and I'm, I have to answer these phone calls. I was bound to the same use of force continuum that those police are in D.C. I worked at a security and nuclear power plant. I knew the steps. I could spit them out verbatim when I was working there. And I, so I knew that it was a bad shoot. And I knew immediately, like, hey, something really, really bad just happened from what I saw. But it was probably a span of like a month that I was just terrified. I didn't want to watch it again. What I had seen, it just was so traumatic. I didn't want to watch it happen again. But then I'd like 
run into random people that I knew, grown men, customers, and they'd just be sobbing on my shoulder. And I'm like, I don't think I've really seen it all in, in its entirety. Uh, so I had to make that jump into um, basically watching and looking at every picture that no husband should ever have to look at. But I had to, because I had to hide my skin. I had to thicken my skin over it. So I got to the point to where I just, I, you know, rip the Band-Aid off every morning. I'll search Ashley's name on Twitter. I'll read all the bad stuff. I'll, you know, whoever wants to put a picture up, I've already seen it, you know. So it just, I do that and it got me to the point to where nobody can rock me. You know, nobody's going to say it to my face. They're not going to, you know, it's just, it's just how it is. Ashley Babbitt was the only person confirmed to have been killed on January 6th, but another death also has video evidence suggesting that DC Metropolitan Police may have played a role, that of Roseanne Boyland. Roseanne Boyland was part of a crowd that had gathered in the tunnel entrance on the Lower West Terrace as one of the entrances to the Capitol, and the police in trying to drive the people out, unleashed some sort of chemical irritant that appeared to displace the oxygen. The witnesses described the feeling that the oxygen had been sucked out of the air and they couldn't breathe. Because people could not draw breath in, they very quickly went unconscious. And Roseanne was one of the first to fall right at the tunnel entrance. She went down. A number of people who continued to push out landed on top of her. In almost an instant, she was under five or six people deep. There's a duty on the part of police once they push somebody out of the tunnel or attempting to push them out of the tunnel and they fall to render aid or to get them up and get them out of the tunnel. It's incumbent upon them to do that. The video is quite shocking. It looks like a waterfall going down the steps leading away from this entrance. People just tumbling out. And at that point, the police were, were pushing. They were pushing everyone out after you know, deploying the gas. And so you had a, a pile of humanity, and the people at the bottom, of course, were being crushed. And Roseanne was terrified. She was calling out, someone help me, someone help me. And another uh, bystander held her hand while she became unconscious. My assessment of the use of gas in a tunnel, a confined space, is as follows. The objective of the use of gas is to disperse or to arrest those who fail to disperse. In a confined space like a tunnel, when you discharge gas, you suck up the oxygen. You cause a panic reaction, which is an increased breathing, which ingest an ingestion of gas, causes pain and problems that cause people to pass out. So Roseanne's trapped under these people. She collapsed when, the, again, the air had been sucked out of the room by some kind of chemical irritant. How did the police react to her? The crowd and many, many people in it were begging police to help. They were pointing down to Roseanne on the ground, saying, we have someone down. She needs help, please. One gentleman, uh, please save her, please, please. And the reaction was silence. There was no reaction. And if there was any, it was uh, one of the officers kicked a couple of fairly large gentlemen in the hindquarters and kicked them on top of her. So she had more people land on her after Good, that. Pause it. I saw individuals who were all right so we're coming back from intermission <clears throat> you know seeing that uh it reminds me of that uh incident that happened in 1999 what was it the world trade 
conference it was like a davos g8 type yeah conference seattle sorry the battle in seattle you. yeah there's a film seattle, yeah you can watch it on netflix called the battle in seattle i think it was uh woody harrelson anyway it was a real life event it had a lot of police doing the same things you just saw right there uh, which is mismanagement of the situation. And it's not for purposes of crowd control so much as to demonstrate power, power, monopoly yeah. force. It's well, it's really probably to galvanize action within the, the crowd that's already animated. The city They're already animated because they thought the election had been stolen. Right. That's kind of what that whole thing that's, was about. January mm-hmm, 6th is because sure, of yeah, November Trump, 6th. Yeah. yeah November yeah. 4th, whatever the date was that past year. Right. And then the Time magazine bragged about how they supplemented the election to make sure that Trump didn't win, which was the Google goal when Trump got elected that week. They said they're never going to let that happen again. Time magazine confirmed it four years later. What am I missing here? Am I missing something? I don't know. Let's go to this uh, under technology, economics and politics. I've highlighted the clip here, Tony. CIA and FBI brag about throwing elections at home and abroad. I yeah, think that might one. fit in with what we just saw. News of the week. Bringing it full circle. So I'm Bring pretty sure I showed this clip. This clip's making the round on Twitter. When is this from? Oh, it doesn't say the day. It just says the time. Oh, pause it. I'm pretty sure this was, uh, we've showed this, this on the, but it was, this, this is jamming. I haven't seen this clip, but I do know who the gentleman on that Fox News screen is. That looks like, R. James Woolsey, a Rhodes Scholar. Okay, wow. And and hold, wait for it. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's a former director of Central Intelligence, and he's part of the Jamestown Foundation that helped to fund the Sarnayev brothers. Let me go to the history blueprint, just in case my just in case my brain is misfiring. I can check my facts here. Let's type in Woolsey. R. James Woolsey, Rhodes Scholar. Here he is, coming up, everybody. Look at this, uh, Jinsa uh, 9-11. What's that? He's part of a think tank. What's it called? Let's see. He's got a lot of connections over here. You're Let's looking for see. the Jamestown Foundation? Jamestown Foundation. Yeah, it's right oh, the there. Henry right. Ja- no, I'm sorry. No, Henry you, Jackson you, Society okay. and Jamestown yeah. Foundation. Oh, the, so. the Jamestown's right above it to the, the north of James Woolsey. Okay. Henry Jackson Society. He and MI6 director dear love are part of that but he's also as you said you said jamestown foundation was there too mm-hmm. i just didn't get to the James yeah just yet. yeah just, uh, right just, above the name james woolsey on the right side oh right here the jamestown yeah. foundation. the jamestown sorry yeah. all right so uh they found out Canada boston marathon bombings ding 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 you're a uh, uyghur sterilizations oh they do a lot of interesting stuff over there prepare preparations for martial law Tamerlan Sarnay have attended CIA sponsored workshop for the Jamestown Foundation. And who we got? Bill Casey. He's a CIA director. You got uh, Michael Hayden. He's a CIA director. Mm-hmm. You got Frank Keating of the Keating Five. And uh, yeah, I didn't have Woolsey as a progenitor of that. So maybe it's just because other CIA directors are running this one and I get the uh, Henry Jackson Foundation and the Jamestown Foundation because they're both running proxy armies i got exactly that's literally what they yeah that's yeah well i'll check woolsey later that's who that is all right now we can play a clip 
making the rounds. So this is worth a look again. And this is a former, uh, I think this guy is a former uh, head of the CIA or a high official at the CIA. And let's watch what he says. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? So the question is, have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably. But uh, it was for the good of the system in order to avoid the communists from taking no. over. That's all you got to do. We got, we're fighting communism, so we get to do illegal things and overthrow democratically. So we were fighting communism in Iran in 1953 when we overthrew Mo Mossadegh. It wasn't because he wanted to nationalize the oil and give it to his people. Communism. Kavi was fighting communism. Yeah. So why you he could spend the oil on a place that's at least a thousand to two thousand miles away. That's right. <laughs> the minimum distance. Watch, watch. He he gives a couple of examples. Example in Europe, uh, uh, in forty seven, forty eight, forty nine, uh, the Greeks and the Italians. We we don't do that CIA. now, though. We don't mess around other people's well, elections. Did he just say yum 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 yum? Yes, and. A news person, she's a pretend news person, because if you laugh at that, you're not a news person. That's she's not a journalist. She's a news reader. Yeah. They can have a yeah. giggle at the weird lizard person. Why, why, why would you find that funny? Why would you find that funny? They Because he's admitting we're the criminals. We're the terrorists. And she just thinks that's adorable. Why? I think a lot of America does. You're right. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably. But uh, it was for the good of the system in order to avoid the communists from taking yeah. over. For example, in Europe, uh, uh, in 47, 48, 49, uh, the Greeks and the Italians, we. We don't do CIA, that now, though. We don't mess around other people's well, elections. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> Only for a very good cause. Can you cause. do that? Do a Vine video on a former CIA director. Only for a very good cause. Oh, this is when Vine was out. All right, thanks for being here. It's always yeah. great to see. Have we ever tried? So yum, there yum, you go. Yum, yum, so yum, yum. that's them. That's them yucking it up and him laughing about overthrowing democratically elected governments. And she says, "Do we ever do it again?" And he's like, "Of course we fucking do." Oh, spoiler alert! It's not for a good reason. <laughs> <laughs> It's never for a good reason. It's not not one time has it ever it's, been for good. It's reason. for Exxon Mobil or British Petroleum or, or someone Fruit. like Go that. Ahead, yeah, United Fruit. Yeah. And so that was the very very first one I ever like researched or learned about. Well, Guatemala is a Central American country that uh, enjoyed a regime change circa 1954, thanks to MI6 and CIA. And uh, you guys totally describe, organic. Uh, Hokobo R. Benz, who ends up in power and United Fruit basically went to our government and said, State Department, go kick their ass. And they did. You so like your bananas. You, tell yeah. yeah. How you like them bananas. So <laughs> and, and the great thing was United Fruit, uh, their logo was like some bananas with a rifle below it. Just to let you know how those bananas are gotten and kept in, the slaves are kept in place. <laughs> right. I mean, I wanted to go to the point. They can they make it? Because Woolsey, you know, he was being coy with his CIA compatriot there on nom, screen. Because if if the CIA is hiring journalists, she's probably one of them. I don't know Laura Ingram too much, but they seemed awfully chummy. When they have their own show. Almost as if they're in the same secret club or something like that. But I got you this. I got you. Oh, no, no. That, that's a freeze. Hold on. That's a freeze frame. 
like the Jay Giles band going right there. All right, now we go back to this Rogue State. You want to learn about has America thrown overthrown other countries with their uh, MI6 cousins? They sure have. There's a whole bunch of books. Rogue State by William Bloom, The CIA of Forgotten History by William Bloom, Killing Hope, this the U.S. military CIA intervention since World War II. Huh? Huh? It's a, he leaves out MI6 conveniently, but anyway. Uh, America's Deadliest Export Democracy, The Truth About U.S. Foreign Policy and Everything Else by William Bloom. And uh, yeah, so there's a whole bunch of those overthrows. I think there's like 38 or 40 of them. Yeah, at least now. Who's yeah. counting? Those are just the ones we know about. But changing governments in other parts of the world is something that the Anglo-American establishment has been very proficient at clumsy sometimes but they've done it consistently over decades and decades and decades uh for trying to refine that process you know yeah for about 100 years now and they're they're still at it so when you see sri lanka and those people over is that legit that was my question last week is that more color revolution stuff that we've seen before this century right right. so that's the the exact same question my witness last week was going on now we had a bunch of news about a bunch of noise, really. <clears throat> that's, a, that's what we do. We discern the news from the noise here. Here's noise from this past week. AOC and Ilhan Omar pretend to be handcuffed for the cameras. <laughs> and then she says it's best standard practice when dealing with cops to put your hands behind your back where they can't see your hands. And, and then who, who was ripping on it? Maybe Jimmy Dory's like, maybe you should just put your hands in your pockets because that'll, that'll make him happy. He's like, this is the stupidest thing ever. I forget what, who's, whose take I was watching on it. <laughs> maybe it was Matt Yeah, Walsh. there's a lot. There's yeah, a lot, there's of, a lot of people talking about that. We don't have to talk about that. I just want to let you know, like, stupid stuff like that's going on. There was legit stuff we just saw in the intermission in that documentary. There was handcuffs involved. Not people faking getting handcuffs for press. It's like the opposite thing. So that's why we don't have to... Uh, we don't have to deal with that noise. CIA uh, agents Pete, are censoring people on Facebook. That's another Rhodes thing Scholar I'm... Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg defends yeah. Biden's mental acuity. Of course he does, because Biden represents the Anglo-American establishment. Pete Buttigieg is a Rhodes Scholar who upholds the Anglo-American establishment. It's like a broken record. Do people not get it yet? Rhodes Scholars uphold Anglo-American establishment. They apologize for people with mental deficiencies and demented natures. <laughs> that's what they do they put these people in front of you as leaders they're they're not until they have something better prepared after that then we go to this on the sacrifice yep can we go to this top clip in the technology section uh crowder louder yeah oh yeah yeah. with uh herr kraus kraus schwab she's got more schwabisms coming There is no conflict of interest for the people at the World Economic Forum. Their conflict of interest is with you, the American citizen. Remember, these are the same people who produced this inspiring video about how you should be happy about owning nothing. Live in the pod. Yep. As long as it's not meat, they'll the U.S. won't be the world's leading superpower. They show those flags. <laughs> wow. I'll get back to that. <laughs> really, brother. You won't die waiting for an organ donor. How are you going to make that happen? Force people to donate organs? A laser printer. Oh, well, print one right now. Oh, thank God. You'll eat much less meat. Printers never fail. Notice none of these no. things are requests for people who are listening on audio. 
An occasional treat, not a staple for the good of the environment and our health. Your body rejected the heart. Why? Ah, it's made by a printer. <laughs> That's what they need the meat for. Yeah. PC load letter. <laughs> Polluters will have to pay to emit carbon dioxide. Less jobs. There will be a global price on carbon. Higher gas make price. Fossil fuels history. No, it'll help make many people, human beings, history. Mm. What the hell was that? That was from the World Economic Forum. That's a video that they put out. They thought that was a good thing. It's the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. Yep. I'm not kidding. And they think, people yeah. like, this is going to go over really well. We feel very good about this PowerPoint. <laughs> that was Everybody should be horrified so by this. That was yes. 2016. That was in 2016? That was 2016, yeah. the World Economic Forum, and you just saw that guy speaking now. So when they talk about stakeholders... And all this has happened. Yes. Yes. And by this the way... a huge problem. This is, again... <laughs> they, it's like, guys, guys! He just had a wake-up moment. Wait a minute. They bitch about the United States. Saying, I they released it today. Yeah. That was in 2016. <laughs> Good Lord. And they've only gotten worse. They want you to live in pods, eat bugs, and rent, and not be able to buy, own anything. Now, just to be clear, they say the United States will no longer be the world's... Uh, World's superpower. Oh, good yeah. news. Okay, great. Well, by the way, we'll get to, in a second, you begging with your hand out from the world superpower. But instead, they say that it'll be a, 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 a what do they say? It'll be a group of nations. It'll be several nations who have, and they show a bunch of flags. One of them is Turkey. I mean, the place that kills journalists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, Donald Trump, evil dictator. Let's subject ourselves globally under the authority of Erdogan. Now, Romania came in behind China on transparency and international, uh, the International Corruption Index. They have Slovakia up there. Up until 2004, they were still forcing uh, women to undergo forced sterilizations, uh, wow. women of a, a specific ethnicity. Uh, the name alludes me. I'm not up to date on, uh, uh, I'm not up to date on uh, Slovakia's eugenics program. Jeez. Watch Louder with Crowder Live. All right, heading into the home stretch for this episode. Uh, Tony, go down. Uh, let's see. Jeffrey Sachs unloads on the untied nations. I'm sorry, the United Nations, they're called. It's just like a typo in their name. Or maybe it's my dyslexia at 4 a.m. Or maybe I was trying to be funny and bring up those crickets again. No, crickets aren't even showing up for this part. All right, so uh, Jason Burmis, this is a full clip. The Sachs. <laughs> Oh, you're on mute. Uh -huh. no, I was pretending we don't have a sound effect. We don't have the budget for cricket sound effects yet. Oh, no, I'm not worried about that. But this uh, provides some witty commentary at four in the morning. I was letting the audience know we don't have the budget for those crickets yet. But maybe <laughs> maybe by next week we can get some with right. your tips tonight. All right. Crickets for next week. No, not not. We're not going to eat the crickets like they do on Timcast because the, they got the monopoly on that. We'll get the cricket sound effect for the soundboard. So when we talk about crickets in the future, because I think those are going to keep uh, chirping up, if you will, we'll need that soundboard crickets sound. All right. What you won't need crickets chirping for while you're chewing. is this clip from Burmis that shows this guy, Jeffrey Sachs. You've heard about him through the pandemic. He unloads about the United Nations and how there might be some shenanigans. There might be something rotten in Denmark, to quote the Prince Macbeth via Shakespeare, whoever that was. All right, let's check it out. And uh, thank you, Burmis, for finding these juicy nuggets. Yeah, he's been doing great work. He's, well, for a long time, but since he's gotten back. Oh, I got it. Sorry. His sack is bigger than a half ago, maybe two weeks ago. 
when he was talking about a certain thing we're not allowed to talk about on YouTube anymore. And just yesterday, folks, another one of my videos was taken down, but I wasn't kicked off for community guidelines. It was another broadcast. There's now been several broadcasts with Whitney Webb that was taken down. Uh, I believe it was the COVID-1984 uh, nightmare or COVID-1984 with Whitney Webb. You can find it on Rockfin. You can find it on Odyssey, which backed up my YouTube channel. Thank God, because they're really taking stuff down. And we just don't know if we're going to be here. Now, we've also covered Sachs in the past because he exposed Operation Timber Sycamore and the U.S. CIA involvement in Syria, Syria on the Scarborough program. Oh, hold Good on a second. Wait, wait. It's too me. much. It's too much and for my head, Tony. You got to pause it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Scarborough, the dude with the dead aid in his office back in the day that we talked about six hours ago. He's talking about that. But wait, was he also 10 seconds before that talking about regime change? Mm-hmm. Is this a theme? Did they? Did I miss a day at school a where they talked of, about uh, regime change as being part of the American culture right here in Constitution? Article 2, Section 3, regime change in other countries yeah. is how we spread freedom, y'all. I think yeah, I missed means- that. I made sure to specifically add that to the Bill of Rights. All right. So they're talking about Syria and the, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, chemical weapons, uh, Aaron Mate exposed all that shenanigans, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff in Syria. It's all about, you know, United States and regime change along with, along with MI6, British empire, right? We, the individuals of all these countries are just part and parcel of what our governments do in our name. And it's what all empires have done in history. Right. I mean, it's what all empires, but what the British is the most recent manifestation of incarnation. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Of a philosophy of how to control other people. And they're continually refining it. As you point out earlier, it's a little messy sometimes coming to a checkpoint near you. (laughs) Yeah. That you can only participate in if you got the little boop boop, as Vermis would say. Four boop boops. Not enough to keep away the pre boop boop thing. All right. (laughs) Let's go back to the video. I just wanted to say <laughs> regime change, and no, he's no. talking about Scarborough. Extremely powerful. It's interesting how every episode seems to be sort of fractal in nature, you know? It's like life. Self-similarity. We, our art is just imitating life, imitating art, imitating life. Yeah. Powerful so, to show people, because Sachs himself, although very influential, is pretty much a globalist and a numbers cruncher, all right? And recently, because he said certain things about lab theories, he's now a puppet of China. He's a Chinese propagandist. But I found this clip. I was actually doing some research on Dennis Bushnell, who we talk about a lot here in NASA. And one of the websites out there that features Bushnell a lot is this Ethical Markets website. And that's where I found this speech from just about a year ago at the pre-summit for the UN food program. Now, the UN food program is also what? Pushed by the Davos World Economic Forum crowd. They've shown you this program could be utilized via refugee camps and blockchain technology, can't make this up, to combine your biometric information into your food credits. We also recently did a story on how the uh, Iranian government has joined this fray into the World Food Program. And 
the first half of this, because he talks about some things we're not allowed to talk about here, and I disagree with Jeffrey on, the first half of this, Jeffrey Sachs is on fire. I'm not sure who the panel is that we see up on stage here. Okay, I, I couldn't tell you exactly who this is. And by the way, I want to give a big shout-out and thanks to uh, the $50 tipper out there, uh, Aram. Thank you so much. He says, be healthy. You be healthy, sir. We need that because we're fully demonetized on YouTube. You see this panel, and the guy in the middle especially immediately puts his head in his hands, is not happy. You can see him fidgeting. Um, the blonde woman, there's some chuckles because Saks has serious sack in this clip. So thumbs it up, subscribe, and share. You know how to support down below, including buying me a coffee. Let's hit the clip. What we've been hearing is uh, how the system actually works right now. And I want to emphasize, we have a world. Look at this. Right away, his hand's in his head. Oh, my God. They're going to let Jeffrey Sachs speak. Oh, my goodness. Food system. It's based on large multinational companies. It's based on private uh, profits. It's based on a very, very low measure of international transfers to help poor people, sometimes none at all. It's based on extreme irresponsibility of powerful countries with regard to the environment. And it's based on a radical denial of rights of poor people. As I mean, nailing every bit of that, although we may disagree on some of the finer points, but the bottom line is that they know that this environmentalism is total Johnny nonsense. You get it? Total Johnny nonsense. It's all a cover to ration the resources and control the food. All right? So, so Jeffrey really does, and, and he continues right here just to knock it out of the park, you know, because they're always talking about this public-private partnership and stakeholder capitalism for the fourth industrial revolution. Right, Klaus? We're not the real stakeholders. Okay? No matter what they tell you that you're going to be a part of the system and you're going to have some say, you're not. I promise you. Let's continue. We just heard. It's interesting. We ask, we heard from the minister of DRC. What's wrong with your country? Well, we don't even start by saying the king of Belgium created a slave colony for 30 years. The government of Belgium ran the slave colony for another 40 years. The CIA assassinated your first popular leader, Mr. Lumumba, and then installed another dictatorship for the next 30 years. I mean, look. <laughs> I mean, this guy's really saying some things of the UN that you didn't see in the press at all. At all. And I missed this story, too. I, I literally stumbled across this story. Stumbled across it doing other research. The man knows his history and especially knows his covert operations by the Central Intelligence Agency. Let's just continue here. And then Glencore and others now suck out your cobalt without giving you tax income. 
We don't reflect on that. We say, what's wrong with you? Why don't you govern properly? And so we have a system, but we need a different system. <laughs> we cannot turn this over to the private sector. We already did about a hundred years ago. Not only to the private sector, to the private sector with the U.S. military behind it. With the defense of these property rights in Mr. the Minister of Honduras's country, where United Fruit ran the country for a long time. Huh. Huh. How about that? With the U.S. military backing. You see how this goes? See, these are just those type of Trojan horse civilian systems for other interests, like the International Monetary Fund, John Perkins' Confessions of an Economic Hitman. You see, he's going there on behalf of International Monetary Fund interests via the Central Intelligence Agency to set up the private industries that are actually going to take over the resources of that country based on the puppet they either control or install. That's the system we have. And their attorney was the foreign minister of the United States, Secretary Dulles, and his brother was the head of the CIA and overthrew the next door neighbor, Mr. Arbenz, to make sure that United Fruit could have its property. So we have a system. But we need a different system. And the different system has to be based on principles of human dignity in the Universal Declaration, principles of sovereignty, principles of economic rights, because these are not nice things to do. In 1948, all the government said that food is a right, social protection is a right, not a nice thing. Not. I mean nailing it here they don't want you to have the right to food they want to have a system of control that's social credit score and carbon based that will give you allotments of their printed nourishment while they eat the regular food jeffrey okay these human rights you speak of well this is the age of bringing in trans humanism jeffrey so the collective not the individual is important how dare you say the word sovereignty jeffrey are you xenophobic huh they're looking at globalism they don't want sovereignty and uh, eventually he's going to talk about the uh, african union joining the g20 into the g21 which you know again the g20 i'm not the biggest fan of uh, really, most of the most important things that are going on there are going in the, on in uh, closed-door meetings. It's kind of like a public relations fest. But he talks about the African Union, and they should have the ability to join and have a say, you know, 1.2 billion people, and they still haven't. And now I believe just in, within the last few days, there's some kind of uh, paperwork put in that they may be able to join. And when you have in February... Um, the uh, foreign policy, a.k.a. CFR, uh, saying they're going to join. It seems like they are going to have them join eventually. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but it all depends on their leadership, right? 
who they've got in there. So let's let's continue with with Jeffrey right here. Not a pleasant thing, a right. That was 73 years ago. The SDGs are nothing more than our generation's attempt to honor the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I come from a country that not only doesn't care about the world's poor, it doesn't even care about its own poor. One in seven Americans is hungry right now. And they don't care. I mean, the poor people care, but one political party, all it cares about is cutting taxes for the rich and filibustering any solution. So we're in a world that's really tough. The private sector is not going to solve this problem. I'm sorry to say to all of the private sector leaders, behave, pay your taxes, follow the rules. That's what you should do. And what the governments should do is the following. They won't, but they should. First, the G20 should become the G21 by inviting systemically the chairperson of the African Union and the African Union to be the 21st country. The, 20, the European Union is a member of the G20 as the EU. If you add the AU as the 21st for the G21, you add 1.4 billion people to representation at that crucial event. You know, as we've played before, however, all the way back in the 80s and 90s when they were talking about a quote-unquote new world order and the UN being at the head of that, uh, a lot of the African leadership would say, you know, even when the rules in the past supposedly benefited us, all of a sudden they changed the rules. Why would this be any different? A unipolar world could be a very dangerous world. So I'm going to leave it with that. I appreciate Jeffrey Sachs for talking about all that deep state real deal CIA stuff. We've talked about some of that stuff in the past. You can find it via Loose Change, Fabled Enemies, Invisible Empire, and Shade the Motion Picture. They are free. Uh, they are my documentary films. I'd love for him to share them with others. You can find them in the playlist section at YouTube. We're demonetized there. Need your help. Buy me a coffee, five, ten, fifteen dollars. That's how we do it. The links are down below. We're also over at the Rockfin. We got a new subscriber and a big donation yesterday. I want to give them a shout out as well. It's where we live uncensored. And then we are also on Podbean and Rumble as well. Odyssey backing up our stuff. In fact, let's. The uh, last one they took down was New York uh, nurses tell the truth about what's really going on. Had some inside sources. The new one down, Whitney Webb. Let's see which one it is. Uh, that's the one that's been now taken down. Two-year-old video, COVID-1984, with Whitney Webb. Um, and several of these have now been taken down. A lot of Johnny nonsense out there, folks. So once again, I love you. It's not about left or right to this guy. It's always about right and wrong. And we will see you on the flip side. That was a great report by Jason. <clears throat> he does them almost every day. You should check them out. Uh, speaking of... It's not about uh, right or left. It's about right or wrong. Somebody who figured out right or wrong was this guy, Smedley Darlington Butler. He wrote this book called Wars a Racket. In here, he said things like, uh, in chapter two, who makes the profits? Let's see. Take our friend, the DuPonts, the powder people, right? We, we learned about the DuPonts last week, didn't we, in intermission?
Mm-hmm. And, yep. and, and here's the famous quote, because this is where we're, we're talking about regime change, how it happens for those rich folks, right? They got the military in between them and other countries. Quote, this is Smedley Donington Butler. He won the Congressional Medal of Honor twice. He's the most highly decorated uh, soldier of any of the uh, armed forces, and he was a Marine. Quote, I helped make Mexico, especially Tampico, safe for American oil interest in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National Citibank boys to collect revenues. I helped in raping half a dozen Central American republics for the benefits of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers uh, in 1909, 1912. Well, Brown Brothers went on to fund the Nazis later. So thank you for doing that, U.S. military under the direction of Woodrow Wilson. Or no, that was just pre-Wilson. It was before. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, I, I brought to light, uh, I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interest in 1916. In China, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went its way unmolested. So uh, parenthetically, the Rockefeller Foundation, which came from Standard Oil, they could then set up the medical system in China that brought you the Wuhan lab. Now, we are bringing it all full circle as we're closing out the episode. We want to close all those open loops through the episode for those with long attention spans. There's one more story I'd like to cover, um, mm-hmm. yep. which is the CIA Facebook story. But before sure, we yeah. go to that, I dropped the link in the uh, production chat. I want to sample uh, just because the theme of CIA MI6 regime change, Central America has been a heavy theme in the last uh, hour or so. And Jake Tran had made a documentary. Uh, this is why people hate America or something like that. It's on the the uh, the R bed. Yeah, oh, this is why CIA. people hate America. That's right. Name, so yeah. it's uh, it's 1954. It's Eisenhower's time in the White House. United Fruit is having some problems down there. They go to the State Department. So he might summarize it in the first couple of minutes. Let's just take five minutes of it because it's like 4.20 a.m. right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, just to put it on the record so people know it's out there. If you want to learn more about these things, it's uh, a thing you need to know about, apparently, because it keeps coming up. So let's check it out. June 18, 1954. As dawn broke over the country of Guatemala, a plane suddenly swooped over the sleeping capital, Guatemala City. As it passed over the National Palace, the plane dropped thousands of pamphlets into the air. Confused citizens and police officers began to pick them up, and what they read was ominous. If Guatemala's president, Jacopo Arbenz, didn't resign by the afternoon, that same plane would return to bomb the city and the National Palace, signed by the National Liberation Forces. A few hours later, President Arbenz heard the news. A plane had just attacked one of Guatemala's port cities, and an army of insurgents had crossed into Guatemala. Their banner read God, Fatherland, and Liberty. Arbenz's greatest fear had come true. The invasion had begun, and they were coming for his head. June 27, 1954. After nine days of bombings, guerrilla fights, and psychological warfare, President Arbenz got his final ultimatum, surrender or death. He was surrounded by an invading army without any military support of his own, and he knew he was finished. At around 9pm, he addressed the nation over radio, and the second democratically elected president of Guatemala stepped down from his position and went into exile. On paper, the downfall of Guatemala looked like just some trouble in a faraway country that no one cares about. But in reality, it was a coup orchestrated by none other than the CIA. 
That part is not very surprising. The shocking part is how a US fruit company lobbied the US government to overthrow the Guatemalan government because they were threatening the US fruit company's profits. Yes, a fruit company helped overthrow a sovereign government to protect their bottom line. After the invasion, Guatemala fell back into the hands of a brutal military regime. And for the following decades, terror, poverty, and assassinations dominated the country, all with the blessing of the CIA and the United Fruit Company. My name is Jake Tran. I make documentaries on money, power, war, and crime with my team. Subscribe for more. If you want to win $1,000 cash, all you have to do is follow me on Instagram. Right now, everyone is struggling to save money, especially with the super high gas prices and inflation. And one of the easiest ways to save money is by canceling subscriptions that you no longer use. That sounds great and all, but without all the Hey, Jake monetizes himself. He's got product placement. He's got calls to action. He's got lists. He's got rewards. He's a very advanced entrepreneur. I think he's in his young, uh, like youthful 20s. No, I'm early, sure he's younger. Yeah. Early 20s, yeah. So uh, he reads books, he makes documentaries, he gets sponsorships, he does that consistently. Good for you, Jake. And they're very interesting. I, I catch them when I can. If you want to watch that whole, uh, it's probably 45 minute documentary on how the United yeah, Fruit minutes. Company went to the CIA and the United States State Department to get her done. That's not in the time of Smedley Butler in early mm -hmm. 1900s. No, no, no. This is decades and decades this is, later. This is half a half a century later. It's 50 but, years later. Yeah, the almost. reference was the Dulles brothers were involved mm -hmm. with that because they were the lawyers. That's where I first learned about the Dulles front, brothers. Yeah. Right. The Rockefeller front was the Dulles brothers and Sullivan and Cromwell law firm, among others. Was the yeah, I was gonna say it's the yeah. and Sullivan and Cromwell seated the CIA and the OSS. So it's like the law, the law firms for the rich dudes. The robber barons uh, staffed the intelligence agencies. And then the 20th century of American coups in these other countries is a story of how the companies that built the World Economic Forum later. Yeah, that's right. And exactly. Bilderberg in between. Bilderberg was yeah. 1944. So was that coup you just learned about where they started. They virtue signal about all these, the, these uh, buzzwords and euphemisms about change and you know health and food production and energy and carbon. And yet they're the ones doing all those things and then making yes. it harder for you to participate in those bring markets. Bring to... the bill up to us, please. They take oh, the yeah. food and give us the bill. You got it. And the yeah. bugs. They got the bugs. <laughs> Klaus, Klaus says, eat the bugs. Eat the bugs. They do. All right. So the next story I want to go to is the... Uh, oh, yeah. The, the fact-checking people over at the Facebook. What type of people are staffing those areas? And uh, there was a Jimmy Dore story. He's just like, mm -hmm. he covers so much of the good stories. Um, he does. And, that's the problem. Like, yeah. He's, and he's it's surprising because I watched the interview with the guy. I'm like, who's this dork? And then it's like, oh, he's the former senior, you know, whatever over at CIA for 15 years. Yeah, it looks like, like some hipster or something, some IT hipster type of dude. And that but, might no. be the Achilles heel that they got over there at the three letter agencies. <laughs> let's play that <laughs> card. Let's play that card. Let's see where it goes. All right, let's check it out. And then uh, we'll uh, bring in a surprise closing clip from somebody funny. We'll see how it works. Facebook is filled with spooks. Um, this idea that they're for free speech or anything, but well, let's watch this. They can put out a video and it's kind of funny. Well, let's pause watch. it. Pause it, Jimmy. 
DARPA's life log became Facebook. So it's not like no one, no one on our side thinks like Facebook's about free speech. I've never had a Facebook page, um, although I'm sure they have some AI avatar profile created about me from people I know who are on Facebook. But nonetheless, it was a DARPA lifelog project that went dead the same day that Facebook came alive in the public. So it was like they flipped a switch, Jimmy. So it was always about control, surveillance, cybernetics, And interesting to think about, like, think about this too. Like they went after young adolescents. So like, or I guess they're later adolescents, older adolescents. Those are uh, college bound. So first they got all the kids that are, you know, have, you know, hopes and passions and ideals and sort of, sort of romantic ideations about life. And like you, you take sort of those, that energy and I don't know, you, not that they were manipulating thing that intensely back in those days, but they, the, the target that crowd first, I'm sure there's a good market argument to be made for it before they opened it up. Because when I was in college, Facebook, or when I was going to college, Facebook was a college only platform. Uh, for the long, for at least a couple of years when they first started. And then like my first thing, my freshman year, right when I got on campus, then they opened it up and you, anyone could join, but it was, uh, but yeah, let's go back to the clip. I think the original name was hot or not or something like that. <laughs> it's no, like seriously. Amazon. That's, uh, it's that's, just... that's one of the stories. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Let them, let them roll this with the, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. My name is Aaron. I've been with Facebook for two years now. I'm a product policy manager. What does your job entail? We're part of the team that writes the rules for Facebook. If something violates our standards for safety and security, what Facebook could, should, can do. You and your team are faced with very important decisions, especially when it comes to content. There's very little agreement whether we should be leaving more content up, taking more content down with any particular rule or issue that we're looking at where something has come up where the rules are not 100% clear. We're not going to make everybody happy. How does your team work on that? Transparency is incredibly important in the work that I do. How do we think about the balance between harmful content and protecting freedom of speech? It's a balance. Does it ever make you feel uncomfortable to be put in a position where you're having to draw the line? Yes, and I think it should make me uncomfortable and all of us who do this work. If 99% of the people are expressing themselves, sharing their family photos, exchanging ideas, and 0.001% are encouraging violence or spreading harmful content that can ruin the thing for everybody. These decisions can have real effects on people. We are developing rules and policies without regulation. We're really navigating that space as best we can. Why would updating regulations help you? Regulation can help us better define what is acceptable and what's not. I think a standardized approach would help platforms all across the board actually give us guidelines where right now there's very few. Technology has changed so quickly, we need the legislative and regulatory space to catch up. Regulation can help us better define what the bounds of those rules should be. Jimmy. He's I one of the that. he's one of the forty thousand. Hey, oh, my, oh my god, thousand. He's one. Let me back that up a little bit. You can turn it down. He, he, he is one of the forty thousand people working on safety and security issues. Hang on. Learn why we support updated internet regulations, including reforming Section 230 at Facebook.com slash regulations. Now, you want to know the spoiler alert on that? That guy sounded like a real decent dude. Wait, Jimmy, before you say that, I, I just want to say I really enjoyed how they kept cutting to his wedding ring. You know, so that means he has a family and kids. 
that's I trust him more now because he's worried about the things that I'm concerned about. You know, <laughs> that a is exactly why Facebook. they kept showing his wedding ring. <laughs> yeah, they kept showing his wedding ring to make you think that he's a decent guy who's into commitment and family. And if I was on Facebook right now, I would never be part of that one percent who would go on there and wish ball cancer on him right after seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> to me, he looked like a pencil neck dipshit climbing the tech twat ladder. But here we go. <laughs> I, I, I would have gone if khaki pants became a person, it would be that guy. But here we go. Uh, I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't call him a craven corporate tool at best. But here we go. <laughs> you would never guess from an official Facebook video that I just showed you that that lovely guy was until a couple of years ago, one of the most senior people at the CIA. Now he's deciding what we all get to see and don't see on Facebook. Now, Jimmy, didn't we have a story about the CIA where they had a huge problem that they don't have to tell us about where they kept catching people with child pornography at the CIA? <laughs> that's oh, that's right. The, what's harmful to see on the internet for me. Thank you. The people who got caught with child pornography at the CIA yeah. never got prosecuted. No. And I guess I, that the, so he he doesn't prosecute pedophiles, but he's going to come police Facebook for bad content. I'm going to guess his calibrator is a little broken. Uh, let's move on here. Here's the article that Alex McLeod wrote about. He said, meet the ex-CIA agents deciding Facebook's content policy. Aaron, that guy you just saw, he's CIA. Or at least he was until July 2019 when he left his job as the senior analytic manager at the agency to become senior product policy manager for misinformation at Facebook, now known as Meta, the company that oh, blah, blah. In his 15 year career, Aaron Berman rose to become a highly influential part of the CIA. He worked for the CIA for 15 years. Oh, my God. For 15 years, senior analyst, did he start in high school? I think he started when he was four. No kidding. For years, he prepared and edited the president of the United States daily briefing. Writing and overseeing intelligence analysts to enable the president and senior U.S. officials to make decisions on the most critical national security issues, especially on the impact of influence operations on social movements, security, and democracy. That's what it says on his LinkedIn profile. None I mean, of don't, none of that sounds good. And none of <laughs> Literally, it all none, sounds like wow. It, it all sounds the opposite of what you would want for someone who's a fact checker or monitoring content on a social media platform. You wouldn't that'd be like the last guy you'd want. By the way, they never mention any of this information in that Facebook video. Well, it was just too yes, short. It was me. mentioned. They needed a three he said video transparency, video. and they believe in transparency and transparency. <laughs> I think they mean your records will be transparent to the intelligence. Yeah, I think apparatus. that is what they mean. Berman's case is far from unique, however. Studying Meta's reports, as well as employment websites and databases, Mint Press has found that Facebook has recruited dozens of individuals from the CIA, as well as many more from the FBI and the Department of Effing Defense. These hires are primarily in highly politically sensitive sectors, such as trust, security, 
and content moderation to the point where some might feel it becomes difficult to see where the United States national security state ends and Facebook begins. Wow, dun, dun, that's dun. great news. And after staring into dun, his dead eyes, I feel even better. That doesn't. He says more funny stuff. All right, so I don't know where it ends either, but here's the point where we're at. Noam Chomsky said something else I find that I agree with, right? So uh, recently he's, he came out and said the United States is more censored now than the Soviets were under the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And who's censoring us? Those DARPA, Facebook, CIA people that also are, you know, part of that deep state behind the scenes that, that never changes to election major or election. Right. Deep state is a part of the government that never changes over with elections. It continues That's to why run it's a deep op- state because right. that, that transcends the electoral process. So therefore, right. you're going to use the term unelected rulers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They took control of the State Department, CIA. It's deep capture, people. Mm-hmm. Get get with it. Get with it. All right. We're rolling up on 430 here. Mm-hmm. Let's go to. Do you want uh, me to keep playing that or do you want to? No, nah, let's, let's leave okay. it. Let's leave it there. We'll you get points. Show notes. Yeah. Uh, Let's go to the thank yous. I want to thank uh, everyone who waited for the first hour while we were mm-hmm. getting our tech shit together to make the show happen. But we did because you guys are patient. We had a show together, and I think this is one of the better shows. Uh, analytically, we've gotten into a lot of good deep dives and references, brought out a lot of other things for consideration because thinking is an ongoing process. And I think we put a lot of good food for thought out there tonight, who especially, aside from Grand Theft World members, who got that special treat last week of the live stream? We're going to be putting more stuff in there for the members. Stack more and more value for Grand Theft World members to thank them uh, for for contributing consistently because that's how we can plan and scale a business based on freedom and liberty here and get this done. Because otherwise, you know, stuff's not free in the world. It's getting more expensive. So we got to work together and uh, be the tide that raises all ships. Who specifically do we need to thank tonight from the Rockfin chat, Tony? That I don't know. I was on Rockman tonight, but uh, I don't know if LD's around or not, if he's been documenting that or if he has access to the Rockman chat. If not, we'll give those thanks next week. Um, had to, LD it's will be back next week. Here. There's some, That's what Tony's there, offering you guys. Yeah. But we do appreciate so much everyone's support as we do every week. And um, I just want to point out that LD had some tech hiccups today and I, then I was doing some traveling. So we had a little bit of a rough start, but everything got squared away he'll uh he'll be back we didn't quit we didn't give up we didn't do blame throwing it wasn't about you know it's just about what 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 question needs to be asked and what button needs to be clicked and let's figure out how to make it work by uh not fighting that's a good start to getting things resolved don't fight don't blame throw ask good questions and oh uh, he got it we got it i got it hell yeah thank you ld so he doesn't have access i guess i don't know i bought enough uh, time with my sidebar there so Roland Sorensen, thank you very much. Um, Vervain Verve, thank you. Uh, Jonathan Soper, uh, Nicholas Keiki. Oh, Nick so, Chichi. He's Chi-Chi. my sound guy. What's up, Nick? Chichi. I wanted to say Chichi, but makes it nice. Dallas Avon, every week. Always appreciate your support. Very consistent F- supporter, Dallas is. F Fitz. Bent Reg, Tcan, Chris Youngblood, Matt Green, Thomas Hutchinson. He actually tipped uh, quite a bit and had a little comment here. Still the best uh, compilation. Bro. Thank you. He always does it. I really appreciate that. It means a lot to us. And Denver Attaway and Zach Boyles. Thank you guys so much. 
for your support. And, uh, you know, thank you for putting up a little bit of a different start tonight. Yeah. I mean, uh, not, I mean, first off, every Grand Theft World episode is unique. You don't know what's going to happen once we kick off. I mean, if we can kick off thus far, we've had a good track record. We haven't had to miss a show. Sometimes we're out of town. We switch around the host and co-host situation, but they're going to keep unfolding their plan week by week. And my hope is as long as we keep coming here consistently and like calling it out as they're doing it and giving you guys contextual history to bring it forward. So you can like, uh, uh, you know, have you and your family get an understanding, have you and your friends get an understanding, have you and your community have communications about these things. Cause they're not going away. You know, when Rosa Quarry 20 years ago is telling people about agenda 21 and yeah. public private partnerships, and they're using the Delphi method to take over your meetings and town hall and stuff like that. People didn't get it, but now they can hear her words. She's not with us anymore. Sadly, like Charlotte Isserby, she's, she's no longer with us in the fight anymore, but they've left work behind that we can use today for people who are here and alive today to keep them alive tomorrow. We've lost, we lost a well, lot of great minds just since I've been starting the research. I mean, yeah, you know, Life and we're going to continue. It's going to so. continue. Well, I mean, it's in this work to me is so important on for many reasons, but the effect it has, especially for the future, if somehow the signal can stay out there, can be interpreted, understood, can be um, received. Um, to me, it's just so important to have the availability for the, because to me that what the powers that be are going to continue to do is to do their agenda, which is speeding up. So in other words, their actions are going to become much more conspicuous. Yes, they, they do lie, but they're going to lie faster and more conspicuously to the point where it's becoming so apparent that I'm hoping it's, it's reality is slapping you in the face quite literally at that point where it's all this now for people who are waking up on maybe a mass scale like that, they can go back to productions like what you've done throughout your career as a, a forensic historian, alternative historian, and so forth, and so many others. I mean, we could just all the people we frequent on this show, and so many others that you know are colleagues of ours that have done such good work in this area. So I think if anything, it's really it's a tool that can be used, especially in the future, when I hope they, if anything, overplay their hands. You know, their poker face maybe gives away finally. Not that they really even have one at this point. Right on. Well, that's a good way to close all the circles, bring it all to a nice conclusion. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in and not dropping out. Here's a little JP Sears to play us out. He's got a little summary for us. I think it'll play very nice in the future for this week's time capsule. again president biden shook hands with air more on that performance in a minute but first our top stories tonight bill gates is generously giving away all his wealth and we'll tell you to who a very non-compliant japanese prime minister has been taken care of in canada justin trudeau is improving his reign of terror the pelosi's are excelling at insider trading and victoria's secret went woke with feminism and now they're going broke also we're trying to turn the u.s into a third world country we'll tell you how in a moment but first america's most trusted physician who hasn't treated a single patient in decades anthony fauci has announced he will retire at the end of Biden's current term. 
which could be any day now, if you know what I mean. The very trustworthy Fauci has held the position as the director of the NIH since 1984. No coincidence there. But once retired, there is no telling how the gain-of-function department at the Wuhan lab will remain funded. Dr. Fauci's retirement plans include enjoying the rest of his years while sipping drinks on the beach while trying to not get caught for what he's done. And over the weekend, a non-law-abiding gunman opened fire in an Indiana shopping mall, leaving at least three people dead. Luckily, he was stopped by a... Oh, um... Let's leave out this next part about how a good Samaritan with a handgun shot and killed the gunman, preventing more deaths. Because wouldn't we be better off if law-abiding citizens couldn't own guns? In other news, the New World Order's own Bill Gates has announced he will give away virtually all his wealth to his foundation. And because his foundation is owned and controlled by him, he'll be giving away all his wealth to himself. That's how his philanthropy works. Back to Biden. After seeing the president shake hands with air back in April while in North Carolina, many Americans underestimated the president thinking, well, that was a one-time thing and it'll never happen again. But it did, this time on the world stage in Israel. But unfortunately on this occasion, they got him to his seat that he didn't know he was supposed to go to quicker. Which meant other world leaders weren't able to watch him wander around walking in circles for as long. And for those who are so confused that they think Hunter's dad is confused, here's Biden getting off the plane in Israel saying, what am I doing now? And that's a very decisive question showing strong leadership. We also have new reports coming out that during the presidential campaign when Biden wasn't hiding in his basement and was actually showing up for public engagements, he had to be fed pills just to function. Because without them, he was reportedly like a small child. Like a small child? Well, no report yet on whether or not he was sexually aroused by himself. But Hunter lists Joe as Pedo Peter in his phone. So he probably was. And now I will shuffle my papers around even though I am not reading off them. Obedient people in the US, mostly with blue hair, are doing their best to march this country into third world status. Accordingly, just when the naysayers claim the Biden administration hasn't been accomplishing anything, we're proud to tell you they've accomplished a new 40 year high of inflation. 9.1% in June, to be exact. And the good news with this accomplishment is that the money you work hard for is worth almost 10% less, which makes you more dependent on the administration that's working hard to make your money less valuable. Also in June, food prices increased by 10.1%. So while your money is worth almost 10% less, you have to pay 10% more for food. But that shouldn't matter to you, unless you want to eat. But for the few Americans who do want to eat, you don't have to worry, because the nation's largest farmland owner, with over 260,000 acres, will be looking to do with his farmland what he does with his other philanthropy. And in June, fuel prices have... Let's just skip this next part. Insider trading is a crime for thee, but not for me. Accordingly, Speaker of the House and Keeper of the Crypt Nancy Pelosi and her husband, who's a strong DUI advocate, have just bought up to $5 million worth of semiconductor stocks. And coincidentally, that's just ahead of the Congressional House's big vote that targets the industry. And for all the skeptics out there who don't like criminal activity 
as they look at the insider trading and inappropriately label it insider trading, we'd like to point out on Nancy's behalf that if everyone knows about it, is it really insider trading? And while we cannot and will not give financial advice while we're brainwashing you on this show, given that the Pelosi's just bought a bunch of semiconductor stock in an industry that Nancy helps regulate at the federal level, you might wanna buy some semiconductor stock. Now you might mistakenly be thinking, well, given these hard economic times, I just don't have the money to buy any stocks. Well, don't be stupid, because one of Biden's top advisors says Americans are seeing very strong economic conditions. And in other news, terminal cancer patients are seeing very strong health conditions. Meanwhile, in Canada, the leader of the Freedom Convoy, Tamara Litch, sits in jail without bail, while Canada sets a rapist free. As you know, the Freedom Convoy is a dangerous organization that puts Canada at great risk of remaining a democracy, which rivals Castro's son's agenda for the country. We know that, for example, in Russia, when Putin has his political rivals thrown in jail, like Navalny, that is blatant tyrannical activity. And when Justin Trudeau does the same thing, we want you to know he's protecting Canada from his political opposition that believes in nothing but freedom. And luckily here in the US, our president is doing the same thing. And in other news, Trudeau got a haircut and is looking more intelligent than ever. Moving along. Victoria's Secret went woke, and now they're going broke, as they're laying off 160 management positions. Going into the archives back in 2021, when Victoria's Secret originally announced it was taking their branding woke so it could do even better in business, here's what our mentally ill department reported back then. Leftist agenda. Hello. Victoria's Secret, we've recently succumbed to the pressure of woke culture, so things will be getting a lot better for our brand. Our new lead rep is activist soccer player and member of the gay community, Megan Rapinoe. As a company, we're listening to her for some reason. Rapinoe said at Victoria's Secret, our old approach was patriarchal and sexist, saying that we viewed what was sexy through a male's lens and through what men desire. Because Rapinoe's good at soccer, we've learned using a male's lens is obviously not a wise thing to do when our customer base is predominantly heterosexual women who are buying lingerie to be more desirable. Because suggesting you have to be a woman to wear women's lingerie, it's a harmful message because it discriminates against women who aren't women. Yep, turns out we were right. As Victoria's Secret has let the leading goal scorer of feminism steer their ship right into the rocks, we'd like to do our parts in helping spread the fruits of feminism so other people and companies can have similar benefits. To do that, we've got an exclusive interview with the head of feminism, Jeff Zenisek. Jeff, welcome to the show. Now, is it true that you identify as a man? I do, and I have apologized for that many times in the past, and that's not why I'm here today. Now, Jeff, given that feminism is all about women, and not that we're admitting on air that we know what a woman is, what makes you as a man qualified to be the leader of feminism? Because women before did not have strong leadership, but now they have me, a man, to tell them what to do. Why do you think that is? They tell long stories that kind of take forever. People don't want to listen to it. Their voices are like high and shrill and like kind of grating. But if you have like a bassy, deep voice like a man like me, people are more likely to listen to it. 
It's more pleasant to hear. Jeff, what about the naysayers who think you lack the diversity to be a leader in the feminist community? To that, I will say I am a member of the LGBTQIA plus community in that I am bisexual. I will have sex with women who are straight and I will also have sex with women who are gay. Very informative. Now, what is the goal of feminism? Feminism is all about teaching women, the more they act like men, the more empowered they are because they're women. So as a woman, you have to act more like a man to be more empowered because being a man is better than being a woman. Now, for those who want to know, how can women get involved in feminism? Uh, hit me up in my DMs. I think it's important for the movement that we put our best face forward. And by that, I mean, we're only looking for women that are sevens or higher. We might accept sixes if I'm really drunk. That's great. Jeff, where can people find you? You can follow me online, Jeff Zinesek, on any platform. And you can also follow the YouTube channel for my podcast, Two Woke Boys. Jeff, thank you for taking the time to come out of the show and explain to all the women out there what feminism is about. And while we're on the topic, the feminist community couldn't be more proud to learn that a human with a penis has been nominated to receive the NCAA's Woman of the Year Award. Leah Thomas, them there may stand on top of the podium once again above all women. Now we've inquired with the NCAA about why Leah Thomas was never nominated for their Woman of the Year award while them there was competing in the men's division for all those years. But we've yet to receive a response. We'll keep you posted. Objective truth is stupid, isn't it? Oh yeah, and former Prime Minister of Japan Shinzo Abe has been assassinated, and we have no idea why. That's it for tonight's news. The world is collapsing all around you, and we're doing it to you while you think we're on your side. Thank you for your trust. Good night. Conspiracy is the story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.